It's your old pal Santa here, and I want to give you a holly jolly thank you for downloading this, the Hardcore Truth Book Report. The boys at AE Podcast have asked me to thank you for all of your wonderful love and support this past 12 months, and they've decided to share this enormous five-hour bibliotech with you to show their gratitude. This mega-sized report was originally released over a year ago by your friends Adam and Kevin over on the AE Podcast Patreon page, where you can find many more Bibliotech reports, including It's Feeding Time by Ryback, Exist to Inspire by the Hardy Boys, Making the Game by Triple H, and brand new this month, part one of the review of Mayor Kane! Ho 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 ho! All of these book reports, along with over 50 episodes of Smackdown Crawl, and hours and hours of bonus video content, can be yours instantly by becoming a $5 backer on patreon.com forward slash AEPodcast. And if you are already a backer, then please do go and check the Patreon page, where you will find a couple of bonus bits of content in your stocking. Santa doesn't want to spoil the surprise, but there is an extra special Christmas book reading and a one-off special video featuring Adam and Kevin. Thank you again for another wonderful year of support, love, and friendship. Please now enjoy this very special Hardcore Truth. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? Hello once again, here we are, delving into the Bibliotech. It's time for a book report, this one requested via fan vote, which is how all things should be requested in the literary world as far as I'm concerned. Adam, today we got a very special book which we are looking at. Yes indeed, it's the Hardcore Truth. How do you like him now? So, your Hardcore Truth in a big pond. What was it like reading this book? Because this is... You know, the bibliotech can't be rushed now. This ain't no like, you know, churn it out real quick. You gotta you gotta read that fucking sucker, you gotta ruminate on it. So what was that process like for you with this book? At first disappointing, to be completely honest. I was <laughs> all aboard the Hardy Boys train in the poll. Like I really wanted to read that fucking Hardy Boys book because it was gonna be like another rock says. For fuck's sake, it's up in my spare room at the moment, taking up You shelf bought space. it straight I away, like uh, there ain't no way we're not doing this. Like <laughs> Well, we're not. We're doing the hardcore truth instead. And yeah, at first I was a little bit like, oh, I don't really care about Bob Holly. This is an incredibly interesting book, Kevin. Oh, man. I've made more notes on the first half of this book than I did for the entirety of The Rock Says. Like, so, am I right in saying it was probably a little bit erroneous earlier when we were like, ah, you know, Bob Holly, he's not a big star like Glenn Kane or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So, therefore, his, uh, his book report, his bibliotech will probably only be a one-off, a one-parter. Yeah, it'll be a breeze, won't yeah. it? Like, yeah. No, we've got a big task ahead of us, Kevin, because this is a very different book to the ones we've looked at previously. So we're not necessarily saying it's definitely going to be a multi-parter, but we're very, very open to the possibility that we're not going to get all this talked about in one sitting. No, we sit down and we, we, <laughs> we just leave the mic going and see how long it takes for us to get tired, and then we'll call it a day. It's very laid-back bibliotech, isn't it? You know? Yeah. You've got your book, it's fine. You Reading know? can be fun, that's the whole point of this. There's no homework here, guys. So before I hand over to you and you take me through this uh, amazing journey, I'll point out for the record, this is a book where I got Amazon Kindle like 
a year and a half ago, mm. the point of which was, oh, I'm going to have something which is not work-related and not, like, you know, no responsibilities on it. Because every wireless device I had, I had Twitter on it, I had Facebook, and I had email. So every time I'd sit on it, say, oh, I'll just spend the rest of my evening doing this instead, I guess. Mm. And one of the things I did was I got a couple of books to help me along the way, you know, to use the Kindle. And I got a Daniel Bryan's book, which I read and I enjoyed. And I got a lot of books about Donald Trump to read up about and be, like, angry in bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also got Hardcore Holly's book, which, if an e-book could gather just on a shelf, Aww. it has, because it remains unopened. Unopened. Like, it's to the point where we've now got a second Kindle in the house and it <laughs> shares our, our books. And Joe, like, you know, when she got the Kindle, was like, oh, what's this thing? that showed up the hardcore truth it's like do you want to read this book huh come on how do you like him now read this book maybe were you surprised that this book existed i mean did you know that bob had written the book yeah i heard about it a little but a little while back when it was first released i remember hearing the rumblings of it and i remember there being a lot of fuss about it because everyone was going oh but it's a sort of a tell-all kind of book there's no gloss or anything he doesn't pull his punches because he's not looking for a job where he's not looking no. for because I mean that's I think an issue with a lot of the non-WWE books is that they're oftentimes and I could say maybe with the exception of Bret Hart's book or Chris Jericho's book I guess because he did it independently but oftentimes a lot of those books are coming from people who either have the viewpoint of I fucking hate this company and this book is my attempt to tear him to shreds disparage them or this is my attempt to try and maybe get my way back into their good graces or build up fan support does bob fall into either of those categories no and you can tell the way it's written at this point he's got no desire to go back to wwe i listened to him go on xbox podcast and they Mm. talk about the book on it there and he said the whole reason it's written the way it is is because he doesn't you know if he gets invited back to wwe he'd be fine with that but he's got no he doesn't give a shit, basically, right, if he right. ever goes back or not. So he's got no reason to be nice for the sake of being nice in this. Oh, my God. I'm really, really excited to talk about this. I mean, I just want to frame frame it before we get into it. Hardcore Holly is a wrestler, obviously, who you grew up watching a lot of. When yeah. he appeared on the podcast, in the first instance, he was bodacious Bob with his long hair. But he's obviously someone, once he got into the Hardcore Holly gimmick, that you were very familiar with and I was very familiar with. Was doing the podcast, he's one of these guys who I think we probably didn't even talk about when we did a retrospective episode because he always ends up figuring lower down the ranks. Mm. But did doing the podcast season one particularly, does that change your opinion of Bob Holly? Because for me, it's kind of, it's enhanced it. It's like I had a two of Bob Holly and now I'm on an eight. As in just, I thought all the things I thought about him as a kid, mm-hmm. but now it's just louder. Yeah, you, you feel <laughs> the same way, but more. Like, yeah. That's how I felt after doing season one of the podcast, to be honest. I felt... Yeah, I didn't really change my mind on Bob, but it sort of confirmed what I already knew. SmackDown Crawl is making me slowly warm up to him as a wrestler more and more. Like, even though we do take the piss out of him a lot on there, I'm enjoying Bob on screen because every time we see him show up on the crawl, it's like, oh, this will be good. Like, which says a lot, you know? I didn't feel that way in season one of the podcast about him. Yeah, and I think it's, it's an easy thing to do when you see someone who's involved in, like, kind of segments that are kind of goofy to laugh at and make fun of that you kind of just assume, oh, joke's on him, ah, fucking idiot. But I think the more we're watching SmackDown, you realise that not necessarily that he was in on the joke, but I don't think Bob was as passive in the entertaining nature of his segments as we maybe originally thought. Definitely not. Yeah. Well, we've been around the bush long enough. Do you want to get into this, sucker? Yeah, we got a lot of work to do, so let's get started. <laughs> Basic background here, the hardcore truth. It's been sat on your Kindle for nearly two years now, gathering dust. 
You've not read it at all. You've not read any of this book, basically. <laughs> no, it's as if like, you started reading it and I was like, oh, I better read it quick otherwise I'll lose. That's why it's the Bibliotech <laughs> and not the... Ah, oh, no, I've lost it. No? Could, couldn't come up with anything in time. No, oh, like... All you've done is you've just opened up the floodgates for a million book puns to come into yeah. my fucking timeline. You're now. welcome, mate. It's all right. So The Hardcore Truth, <laughs> The Bob Holly Story, written by Bob Holly with Ross Williams. Published in 2013 by ECW. Board. Oh shit, yeah, there's an ECW press. It's like Eastern Canadian writing or some shit. Not even, it? It's entertainment culture writing. <laughs> They're not even trying. Entertainment culture, like. I swear to God that, because ECW Press have done a bunch of wrestling books. Oh yeah, they have. They can't not know what they're no, doing. I know. They, they know. When you see a wrestling book with ECW press on the side, you're bound to think, oh, well, they've got to know their shit. Like, well, when I think of ECW, I think of Hardcore Holly, uh, one, of the, uh, <laughs> one of the original entrants in the Extreme Elimination Chamber at December oh, to dismember. Oh, fuck me. Uh, cut his back that one time in a match with uh, Sabu. So, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So I did a bit of looking around, the general consensus online. A lot of positive feedback on this book. Oh yeah, I, I, I heard the scuttlebutt when this came out and this got, like, not to say glowing reviews, mm. but he did the circuits and everyone was like, wow, this is a fascinating read. Yeah. And everyone, everyone had nice things to say about it. There was no one who said that this was like a hatchet job or like, oh, this is, this is like a, a waste of time. Everyone recommended reading this. Yeah, and yeah. like... Even all the people in the Glargay community that know our feelings on Bob Holly and feel similarly, they still recommend the book and they say, whatever you think of the guy, the book is an interesting read. Apart from one person who tweeted at us the other day saying that they like started listening to the audiobook and they gave up because it sounded like it was written by a nine-year-old. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> that simply isn't true. It, it's not that badly written. That's like. the best thing about having a ghostwriter. You have the luxury to not have it written by a nine-year-old. It's not like <laughs> you get to pick who does it for you. Like so, You know what? I'm going to say I don't know where I stand on Bob Holly at the moment because I know like Bob Holly's one of those guys where there's been so many worried rumors and you know scuttlebutt and wrestling lore about shit that he's done or ways he's acted and that is kind of on one side the other side is like uh, he's vastly entertained me even more mm -hmm. so when I look back at it so I'm not coming into this like yeah fuck Bob Holly the no. bully but at the same time I'm not like I'm not getting ready to defend him a great deal. Well, I went into the book basically saying, fuck Bob Holly the bully, and it's made me question... I don't say I like Bob Holly now, but it's making me question things I think about him. Mm. And as part of my research, I watched a load of clips of people talking about him in shoots. There's lots of compilations of... And a surprisingly yeah. few people bury him for being a bully. A lot of people come to his defence, even folks like Maven. Yeah, because he gets l lumped in with JBL as like yes, the, the bullies. Always. Yet, I think when you find... They're not allowed people other than Farouk like I'm not saying as a joke literally the only person I can think of is Farouk who defends JBL whereas yeah. uh, definitely Bob Holly has had people going yeah but yeah a so, lot of people come to his defence and yeah this book doesn't obviously it doesn't paint him out to be a bully it's his book but like it's it seems pretty balanced and some of the things he says do come off as quite fair whether you agree with them or not the hardcore truth a bully's tale <laughs> Ross Williams, the fellow that wrote the book with Bob Holly, is an author who has actually worked in the wrestling industry a little bit himself. Oh. And according to Bob, again on Xbox Podcast, the way they wrote this was four times a week, they would spend three or four hours a day on Skype talking overseas, because Ross is from the UK. Ah. So they would spend all this time on Skype where Bob would relay all these stories and everything. Ross would go away and write it, then send it to Bob. The book opens up with the preface. It's actually written from Ross Williams' point of view, and he's 
basically explaining how he came into contact with Bob Holly and how this book came into being. So this is written, it's not like... I did this, like, as in Bob Holly, like... No, the book is, but the preface is just okay, okay. from Ross Williams basically saying, before we get into it, this is how it came to be. And basically, he was two months into becoming a pro wrestler, and he ended up getting put into a last-minute tag team match where he was working against Hardcore Holly. In the match, Holly burst Ross Williams' eardrum by hitting him on the side of the head so hard and gave him, like, a bloody chest from crazy hard chops. Uh... After the match... After the match, apparently Bob apologised to him for any mistreatment and said he had respe- um, tremendous respect for a man like him. They email each other a few weeks later and stay in touch, correspond, and eventually like, they come up with the idea of doing a book together. See, so- that's really interesting because that's like literally... like that. That's what I... What I'm, in my head, I have about the, the, the Bob Holly type of bullying or whatever, which is people who find themselves in the receiving end of that are people who are just starting wrestling yep. or learning to wrestle... Bob Holly, they know the reputation, so they take it, and then afterwards, it's like, good job because you you took you took the punishment I gave you. Let's be friends. Let's be friends, which yep. is kind of seems to me it's like almost like opening itself up for a vicious cycle of young folk getting the shit knocked out of them by Bob Holly to earn respect, so yeah. Bob Holly can beat people up so they can earn respect. You know, it seems pretty toxic. Like a little bit, yeah. It's like there has to be other ways to earn people's respect in wrestling I'd like to think that's one That's one of the things which why I think I could never be a wrestler like with stuff like having that having to deal with that kind of mentality couldn't do it no I know exactly what you mean but yeah it does say it's a perfect example of like Bob doing what you would traditionally consider bullying someone that is new to the industry yeah and then again, they become really good friends afterwards. Mm. And the guy that was on the receiving end of it is, is like, oh, you burst my eardrum. I'd love to write your book for you. Like, <laughs> and that's like a recurring theme with a lot of people that Bob interacts with in his career. So now we're switching it up. We're going straight into Bob Holly's point of view. The rest of the book is written in first person. I did this. I did that. I am Bob Holly. Mm. And straight off the bat, I will say this is far, far, far better written than anything that was written by the Joe Chiapetta or... Michael Chiapetta. Michael Chiapetta and Joe, Joe Layden. Yeah, this shits all over their writing style straight away. Yeah, those it's... were like a seven or eight-year-old writing. Like... Legit, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I've not read the book, I'm just going on that This is a key stage tweet. two level now, this is like... <laughs> No, this is genuinely written better. It's written in a way that is far easier to take in. It reads well. And in, the most important thing is it's very hard to convince yourself that it's not Bob Holly writing this. So he doesn't go into a, a second font when he becomes the big There's shot. none of that. <laughs> like none that. of that. Because the big shot was Hardcore Holly with the volume turned. New font. Way up. <laughs> <laughs> Bob himself on Xbox podcast said he was thrilled with how the book was written because mm. it sounded like he wrote every word of it it is all very much written in the style of bob holly like geez take no ghostwriters of fucking rest and autobiographies because you know you always hear the story of your mick foley's book and the ghostwriter who wrote the the test chapter yeah. for it. it's like mom made the best spaghetti on the block like, <laughs> and like, who is this it's not me uh, so yeah I, I appreciate that like i mean I guess if you're gonna be on skype four hours a day with bob holly that's the benefit of it, you get to know him like so let's get straight into chapter one of the hardcore truth bread gravy and baby food so i'm gonna say right now the actual you've got the physical book here yes sorry here's the book if you want to talk about that yeah which no one can see because it's, it's it's a podcast but i will say not to use the phrase business secrets of the pharaohs. It comes up a lot on this show, doesn't it? It does, <laughs> but in terms of the actual quality of... It's a very strangely formatted book. Right to the edges it goes there. Yeah, and it'll be... I'll tell you now as well, it's strangely formatted in terms of chapters and headings and stuff. There is subsections of the book that 
Well, I'll explain when we get there. It's a tough one. It sounds like some fucking Sean Penn's book you're reading us through here, or something like that. Like bread, gravy, and baby food. <laughs> Chapter one of the book. This was the uh, alternate title for Jesse and Festus's theme music. Do you know the, the the infamous opening sentence of the book? I know it's something which is like something about bullies. I've never been a fan of bullies. <laughs> Says Big Bob Bully fucking Busick over here. Oh yeah, straight off the bat I'm going to address the fact that I am very anxious about my Bob Holly impression not being up to scratch. You're going to see a wildly inconsistent form of that impression all throughout this. I'm probably going to be relying on a lot of... <laughs> Let's just think, much like Bob, you can use that to buy time and think what you're, <laughs> think what you're going to do. Like. So he starts off by saying he understands the irony of saying that, like... I know that everyone thinks I'm a bully and everything, but I truly do hate bullies, and I always have hated bullies. He was always picked on by his older brother and his older brother's friends, and he found that once he responded with violence, the bullying went away. <laughs> so, page one, page one, I think we get a really good look at why Bob is the way he is. This is like, who I am and why I am. <laughs> wow, Bob, wow. <laughs> Oh, I will say as well, I'm going to be, when we refer to the topic of bullying, I will be saying bully and bullying because of Ryback, who famously said he hated bullies. Ryback, who has famously also written a book. Oh, God, why did you bring that up? Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Just throwing it out there. You're never going to do that Hardy voice. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have bought it. <laughs> you jumped the gun. Exist to inspire. What the fuck was I thinking <laughs> He was never apparently close with this brother of his. Uh, apparently, when his brother went into the Marines, Bob was just glad to see him gone, like, relieved. So, did he grow up in Alabama, then? Like, yes. And he only had the one older brother? Yes. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Straight away, you get the impression that he's going to be very forthright in this book, because within the first few pages, he tells you, oh, yeah, I've never liked my brother. I was glad to see the back end of him when he went to the Marines. Like, he ain't going to sugarcoat any of this. He's very, very brutally honest. That's that's quite, you know, refreshingly brave, very I would say. Very refreshing. Because like, I've read so many books a great example of what we think out of Eric Bischoff's book where the title is Controversy Creates Cash and the whole builder was like literally they had problems with the book where it's like you're not going to believe what I say in here <laughs> and then it's like literally fucking 19 chapters of I'm totally normal what are you talking about everyone was wrong except me uh, here's yeah. why my behaviour is normal and then like one page where it's like but some of you think that I'm a bit of a rotter and I'll address that now but I like Bob is just like grabbing the bull by the horns here and I appreciate that yeah like, straight off the bat I know you all think I'm a bully Here's how fucked up my childhood was. Let's yeah. get into it. Where like, was that in Journey into Darkness? It should have been like straight. Look, guys, you know I use chemicals. <laughs> right, we didn't know the, the elephants in the room. We right. didn't know that back then. <laughs> he said his dad was a deadbeat and that he knows pretty much nothing about him wow. apart from the fact that he was a street fighter and he would never pay child support. Jesus Christ. So you've got a man that was estranged from his father and all he knew about his dad was that he fought on the streets and this is the same boy that also found out that the only way to get the bullying to stop was by responding with violence. Gee, like, that is just straight away, like, wow. It's yeah. immediately clear, like... <laughs> and that's great, like he's, like, he's laying it out there. Like, he's not hiding that fact. It's not like, oh, I've looked at the book and I've deduced from this. Yeah, yeah. It's like, he's making it clear that this is who he is and this is how he was formed, like... That's really important, because, I mean, I think that, like, if that happens to you, that that obviously forms the basis of 
your character absolutely like, you know, yeah. as a human i guess and he's acknowledging that fact his mom on the other hand he loves his mom like hell like she had a fucking tough time bringing him up she couldn't afford a babysitter, so Bob would walk three miles to work with her every day, sit on the floor of her office for eight hours, and then walk three miles home with her again, and then they could eat bread, gravy, and baby food every single night for dinner. Oh my fucking god, can you imagine the shit? Oh <laughs> it god. would look like baby food. It literally like... go out the same way it comes in, like, Jesus. But he said he wasn't unhappy as a kid because he didn't know any better, he just... That was his life. Mm. Got on with it. He was, you know, it didn't fuck him up too badly. Well, at least, you know, at the time it didn't in the case. When he was 16, he saw his dad for the last time. He showed up with his new family to visit and there was no real bonding or anything. Just showed up, hung out with them. Mm. After Bob started appearing on WWF years later, his dad did try to get in touch, but Bob said he refused to speak to him just because, like, he was... You know, just because I'm famous now doesn't mean I'm suddenly going to forgive you or yeah, put anything behind yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very much kind of like... I don't want to draw too many parallels between Hardcore Holly and John Lennon, but it seems like there was a... You know, similar there in that, like... There wasn't a relationship. Mm -hmm. Once he became famous, there was an attempt maybe to yeah. rekindle, and it was just, no. And Bob shot that down straight away. And then apparently many years later, he tried to look up his dad, you know, to sort of find out what's going on and found out that he died in 2008. Jesus. And he, he doesn't really pull his punches about it, you know, he says it is what it is. Like, God, just imagine just finding out like that, like looking up basically. On I Google. wonder where my dad is these days. Oh, he's oh. passed away, I guess. That's the end of that chapter then. Like, Off we go, like. Weird. Really weird. So his mum goes on to marry another guy, this guy called Gary, who was a race car enthusiast. <laughs> Already it says like, like literally like it's a fucking Saturday afternoon movie here. It's like, mum's new boyfriend, Gary. What's he do? Race cars! Whee! Turns out he's actually Count Olaf wearing a race car helmet. <laughs> like... <laughs> But, Sorry, a series of unfortunate events with Bob, Holly, Molly, Holly, and Crash. <laughs> and Cra Crash is the little baby like. You know? The Holly orphan. Exactly. Really I would fucking love that. Like, Amazing. <laughs> so she marries this race car enthusiast called Gary, who's apparently, he's alright. Like, he wasn't a complete dickhead. The race cars would kind of... I mean, if you were a race car enthusiast or a driver or whatever, you could probably be a baseline dickhead and get away with it because it's like, oh, like access to race cars, isn't it? Like, I guess Can't be that them. bad. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. But he wasn't a role model by any means. And he says, completely honest again, that he could tell his mum was struggling for the family and all she wanted was to provide. So she probably just married the first guy that she could tolerate. And he uh... says he gets that. Like, he doesn't resent her in the slightest oh, for it god in heaven that's so fucked it, up it takes a little while to get used to how honest this book is because it comes at you with both barrels straight away like him talking about this shit's fucked up and i'm gonna tell you all about it well i mean i'm i appreciate that level of honesty and i guess it's gonna probably make everything in wrestling seem small by comparison <laughs> like when yeah. you got that that's happening in his real yeah. life you know but it is impressive for a man like bob holly who you stereotypically think of being like one of the toxic masculinity yeah, members of yeah. the locker room to talk about his feelings and his upbringing so candidly i'd sooner like, die than open up type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah that yeah. kind of mentality it is it's nice to see him not going with that yeah like, yeah absolutely after bob graduates from high school his mum breaks up with gary the second husband and bob suggests that maybe that was her plan all along like mm. maybe just sort of so stay with this guy through, yeah. get the kids raised and then i can break up with him and go back to doing whatever like and again he's like fair enough i get it mum. that's that's decent of you to yeah. do that for us so gary had money but he never actually supported the kids is the thing like he made them buy their own clothes 
and like they had to buy all their own sports equipment and stuff for school and they all had to do an insane amount of chores around the house this is why i say count olaf because he was literally like working bob to the bone as a child like making him mow the lawn and stuff like that and Jesus basically Christ. never having a break and while bob was still in high school he was paying rent to this gary fella what yeah. rent rent wow as a child jesus christ in heaven but again, man, it was what it was. Like that's just how his upbringing was. He didn't think anything of it. God, it's, you know, your hard upbringing just gets kind of tossed around. But when you get into the details of it, Jesus Christ, it's just I couldn't couldn't imagine what that is like. I yeah, actually couldn't imagine. I think that's most of the, the bleak stuff out of the way. Really, it is kind of all contained in the first chapter, mm. and then it starts to sort of brighten up a little bit. Chapter two, we're on here, the opening bell. This opens up with. One of the good things about moving in with Gary was that he had a TV. This was new to us because we had never been able to afford one before. I discovered roller derby pretty quickly and thought it was great. If you look at it now, it's obviously a work, but back then I thought it was real. Now, what do you know about roller derby, Kevin? Oh, God. This is going to be one of those weird things like where like I know elements of it. I mean, like I have some friends who used to do roller derby but like a roller derby as i know is like a is an all-female um kind of group sport where you go around in kind of circles trying to overtake each other yes. bumping into each other and stuff like that i know that it ran in like the 70s in america there was a few startup things because i know Meltzer used to cover it and i've heard mm. it brought up a few times and i know when ecw went on tnn back in like 2000 roller jam which was another attempt to do mainstream roller derby was on tv afterwards and that they were hated easy to do because they had to like be their lead in for roller jam which they yeah. thought was ridiculous but as far as i know like i don't know if it was like if it was an all-female thing back then either i, is, I know now like because what's that movie the fuck there's a movie that drew barrymore did that was about with alan page and i think that yeah was about yeah roller right. derby. yeah but like, I, I all i know is that it's a thing which seems to be throughout England and Ireland and America still like it's it's big but it's not like national sports kind of on TV yeah it's kind of like a university sports team kind of thing you see a lot of isn't it yeah it's not something I know of as being a work because I know like a friend of mine tried very hard to get onto a team and Mm -hmm. like it it was fucking hard and she got the shit knocked out of her basically so didn't seem like much of a fun work like we don't have time to go into the rules of it and everything but roller derby as a sport that is played competitively in teams has only existed since 2002 what in the 70s and 80s, it was a work on TV. And I looked up the stuff on YouTube, and yeah, it's it's a work. You can tell it's a work. Like, it's all staged. That's amazing. And they would broadcast this roller derby like events on TV as if it was a real sport. And it's got me... This is like the first time I've heard of something outside of wrestling that is presented as a shoot, but is actually a work. That's and it's, so fascinating. It's got Because I know Joe discussed this recently on one of your how-to episodes where she said that sports entertainment should be opened up to more sports outside of wrestling. And that's how we got loads of tweets from people saying we should watch Dream Team and the Renford Rejects. The Renford Rejects! <laughs> and, yes! And Comley had to be like, no, not like that. <laughs> that's a TV show about sports <laughs> idiots. Like... But yeah, that's the only time I've ever heard of something else being a work, and it's really got me dying to know if there's anything else out there in the world. Like, so, and not magic. Don't tell me magic's <laughs> a work. Like, duh. That's really interesting though, because it like so. Uh, oh man, I, I could talk for for hours and days and try to figure out like about when does that one that started in two thousand two? I assume it shares some superficial similarities. Oh, it's, it's played with the similar rules to how it was actually presented back in the day. But even just, I mean, having seen roller derby, like. Gotta think how you meant to work that and like yeah. not just do it as a shoot. Like it's yeah. very hard. It's a podcast for another time, I'm afraid. Man. 
So he discovers, because now he's got the TV and he's watching it with Gary, he discovers big-time wrestling and Portland wrestling. And he says his favourite wrestlers as a child, I've got a few names here, Mr. Saito, Bob Roop, don't know who that is, but that's a fucking Roop. brilliant name. Bobby Roop! <laughs> Glorpius. <laughs> Ricky Hunter, Rocky Johnson. That's pa- Rock's dad, Rocky yeah, Johnson, yeah. yeah. Peter Maivia, Rock's granddad as well. Oh, the High Chief. Pat Patterson, and his all-time favorite was apparently Playboy Buddy Rose. Playboy Buddy Rose, he's a very interesting character in wrestling. Um, he was a big, big star uh, all around different territories, and when he went to WWE, he put on weight. So basically, Vince just made fun of him for being fat. Like, yeah, that's kind of sad. Pretty much what Bob gets at says that you know Buddy Rose should have been treated with a lot more damn respect in the WWE. Oh, that's really sad because he would have been there sometime that Bob was there. I think that's really, oh, really? sad. He would have seen that. Yeah, mm. got a great quote here that we can all relate to. I think. Inevitably, some of my friends and I would end up wrestling each other. When I was in junior high, my friend Scott Claus and I would take a roll of aluminium foil from the kitchen cupboard. We'd start with a little ball and make something the size of a basketball. Then we'd take it outside and beat it down until it was as compact and as hard as we could make it. Then we'd have a wrestling match, an aluminium foil ball match. Whoever got to the ball first could use it on his opponent. The problem was back then, we still thought wrestling was real. We beat the holy hell out of each other. (laughs) Everybody on TV bled from the forehead, so I'd pound his face with the aluminium ball to try and split his head wide open until he'd start crying. Wow. So yeah, even at a young age there, loving a good fight, like... Jesus Christ, that's so strange to think, because it's like the the aluminium foil into a ball and then hitting with that. Think about that, if you get a foil ball the size of a basketball and compress it down to a baseball size that's going to be hard that like. reminded me like in school once there was um, in boarding school there was a kid who was getting picked on by uh, one of the older scary boys and the older scary boy used to go to the dorm to beat him up every night and uh, as like, kind of a, a weird sense of like trying to make light of the situation to not be so bad look please don't beat me up with your fists you can do anything other than that and uh, anything know, anything you know, let me pick something. The guy's like, all right, fine, pick anything and I'll still hurt you. And he picked a piece of popcorn from a bag thinking, there's no way. <laughs> the guy literally got, took off the, the fluffy bit, had the kernel and literally just dug it into his forehead, rubbed it over and over again. Like, you mm. fucking, oh. But I don't know why guns said, but I guess it's, Bob makes an interesting point there about how uh, when we're watching wrestling as kids, there is a bit of a propensity, I guess more so back then because you didn't really know it was a work as much to beat the shit out of each other. Yeah. Um, not something we've talked about much uh, on the podcast before. Did you ever do any backyard wrestling or kind of playground wrestling where it's like, you know, it's meant to be a work, you're meant to keep each other safe, but you probably hurt each other? Yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about this before with like our brothers and stuff. Mm. I smashed my brother's shin in with a rolling pin and that was the last oh, time we yeah. ever wrestled together. Like My brother hit me in the head with a nightstick. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty sore. I gave my cousin an X-Factor onto a, a bag full of books and gave him a bloody nose. That's pretty bad. That's probably the worst, that's the worst thing I did to someone. I received a pedigree from my brother that smashed my face into the kitchen floor, which was pretty shit. I got a 3D. Uh, okay, well, there ain't no topping that. That's such a protected move. Like I was twelve, I was like two eighteen-year-old men. Jesus, <laughs> literally like something the Dudley Boys would do. Like a little child, like despicable. <laughs> so he said at this point in the book that he knew he wanted to be a wrestler as a kid, but he didn't actually think it would be possible. It was just something that was in his mind, like you know, like a, like a dream you have as a kid. Yeah. Like, when he was in high school, him and his buddy would wrestle in the front yard. So like they'd just literally go out into his garden and just wrestle with the hopes of drivers going past, slowing down, and watching what was going on. 
and he He's said trying to draw in the crowd. Yeah, like. and he said that was his first taste of entertaining other people. Like was by wrestling on his front garden. So that's so weird. Yeah, I know, right? That like I I, I wrestled with a friend in language college when I was twelve. Um, <laughs> um, similar thing. Well, no, because we were re- we were wrestling. We was like we go like to like to the field like it was a couple of us. We just like do some regressing like to blow off some steam or whatever. Mm. And then there was like a group of kids thought we were fighting, and we looked over. And all of a sudden, there was literally like thirty people watching us, thinking that we were fighting. Wow! We were like, Come on, like, oh, give me give me the, the <laughs> give me the stunner. Like, Time to go home, brother. And right. I think it was when I did like try to do the rock stunner style. I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> I think the, the kid in the glasses is in on it. <laughs> I want my money refunded. <laughs> Chapter three, the need for speed. So from the age of 16, Bob starts riding dirt bikes as a hobby. Of course. Still did it in the WWF while he was there, but he hasn't had a dirt bike since his last one was stolen in 2009. So is that like what's just like a matter of fact? Like it's kind of well, if I can't have them, then you know, if people got steal them. There's no point. Like I think it's more the fact that he was so upset about his bike being nicked. So the rest of this chapter is basically him explaining what happened when his bike got nicked in '09. <laughs> Flash forward to 2009. Like, I love the idea of like whoever was writing this book. He's like, Bob, it just it really doesn't make it. I my goddamn dirt bike got stolen. It's got to be in chapter three, man. I'm fixing to talk about it. Like so, we're going to include it. <laughs> So it went missing from his garage, and he expected the thieves would come back the next night. And he saw a load of trucks like outside his house, as if there were people scoping the place. Well, so out. what were they going to come back and do, Bob? Finish the job and kill you? He like. thought they were going to come back and steal more stuff, presumably. So he <laughs> you already got your dirt bike. You got nothing else. This is such a funny thing to imagine. He saw these trucks near his driveway. How old is he here? This is two thousand and nine. Okay, so okay. this is like. 40s Bob Holly. Sorry, that's really sad because I thought I was like, oh, a little 14-year-old Bob Holly. No, no, like, no, oh, we're just jumping ahead for no reason. I'm going to get the big bullies. He's still... No, it's a fucking grown-ass man. thinking he's going to come back. He's in the middle of the night. He sees these trucks and he assumes the thieves are back to finish the job. So he loads his 9mm Smith & Wesson, obviously. Jesus Christ. And Of it, course he's got guns. In his... In his boxer shorts, in pitch black, he sits in his kitchen with a loaded gun, just waiting. Waiting. And nothing happens. He just sits there and waits the whole night. And he said he didn't sleep for days afterwards, and he's still mad as hell to this day. I just imagine, like, four days going by of him sat on a stool in the kitchen with, like, a gun pointed at the door, like, trembling. as well the idea that Bob Holly is mad as hell. Not because his bike was stolen, but because the thieves didn't show up two nights in a row for him to murder them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what really like. Yeah, because he gets pissed off about people not standing up to fight. This is yeah. what it is. Like, so you can nick my bike, but you've got to come back here and fucking fight me after at least. Come on, what a fight, what a shoot him. Like, that was for fucking, <laughs> no, let me fight you with my bullets. Well, I think what he was going to do is like smush the gun up in as small as possible <laughs> and then hit the guy in the head with it. Like. And people slow down. Woo, kill him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 4 Growing up in the fast lane So he talks about his high school sweetheart Linda They get on really well But eventually after graduation She goes into the Air Force And it's sad It still makes him sad to this day When he thinks Aww. about her apparently He starts seeing a girl who he doesn't name And he expects it's just going to be a casual fling with her But he does get her pregnant And they have a little girl together He doesn't specify how old he is, but he says it was around graduation and not long after graduation. So to me, that would say around 17 or 18, basically. 
Um, so they live together, and I think they live with her family for a little while. They try and play house, but eventually they split after a few years. When his daughter Stephanie turns 12, she tells him that she can't stand living with her mother anymore, and she wants to move in with Bob. So Bob takes full custody of her to no resistance from the mother whatsoever, wow. apparently. And he doesn't go into any more detail than that. I, I imagine it's pretty salacious, really, like... But that's all he says about it is, you know, his daughter did not want to live at home anymore. So he took custody of her when she was 12. Wow. And yeah, wasn't the fight put up from the mother. Interesting. God, I didn't even know he had kids. Yeah, I know, me neither. And he doesn't really talk a lot about them in the book. I will Mm. say these early chapters where he gets quite personal. You only get to a point, I imagine. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Chapter 5, Fighting for Food and Diapers. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. It's really bleak, isn't it? Wait, what's the last like Life in the Fast, like? What the fuck <laughs> happened? Boom to bust, like. So it's in the early 80s now, and even though he explained what happened with this partner of his in the future, at this point in the book, he is still living with his girlfriend's family, and they're, right, raising, yeah, yeah. they're raising a baby together. And is he, like, is he working? Did he go to college? Is he... That's what this is about here. So he's graduated from high school. He's not in education anymore. He doesn't He doesn't ever go to college. Like, yeah. Um, but I figure he, if you're working to fucking get your rent while you're in high school... Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. He was raised to believe in working hard yeah. every day, like... So he's living with the girlfriend's family and he's trying to make ends meet for the baby. Money is so tight that he takes part in a bar fight, which he wins and earns $100. And hey, it's a little bit of money. He's good at it and he enjoys it. So he continues doing this three weekends a month for six months. Jesus and he wins Christ. every single one of these fights except for one, which was against a Golden Gloves winner and apparently a state champion boxer. So a bar fight. So I'm assuming this is basically bare knuckle boxing. Pretty much, yeah. He doesn't go into too much detail about it, but from what I gather, it's going to be like, okay, lads, bar's closed, lock the door, let's get it on, like... Human cockfighting, maybe. So he only lost this one match, and he said he pissed blood for days after the fight. No one wants to piss blood. He later actually meets up with the person who trained... Are you okay, Kevin? That hurt my cock just thinking about it. Oh, God. He later meets the person who trained this boxer that actually beat him, and he said that the whole thing was just a setup because the promoter who put on these illegal fights was so fed up of Bob winning, he actually ended up pulling in a boxer just to have him getting taken down a peg. <laughs> Too good to be a street fighter, like. At this point as well, Bob is still pretty set on wrestling. He knows that, you know, he's not sure how he's going to get there because things are kind of messy at the minute, but he still wants to be a wrestler at some point. Well, mate, if you're fighting for money, you might as well fucking fake fight for money, you know? It's a little bit easier on the joints. Well, you say that, but as Bob says himself, I always like to fight. (laughs) (laughs) He goes on to say, I still do, although I don't go looking for them anymore. I've never cared if I lose. If I get my ass whipped, that's fine. I enjoy the challenge of a good fight. That is so fucking strange. Like, because they like everyone, like, even people, like, so few people have that mentality. I think that mentality would have happened a lot in wrestling, like, back in the day. But, like, I'm trying to think of like, anyone who's on the roster now who'd be like, I f- love, love to fight. Nah, yeah, because you become an MMA fighter if you love to fight. That's yeah, what it is. Like, that's, that's the career it. path yeah, for yeah. you. Like, if you love actual fighting. God, you think Bob Holly probably, if he was coming up now, would probably not get into wrestling given I think what it is now yeah he'd go for MMA and again I saw an interview with him recently where he was saying that if Dana White ever gave him the call he'd be all over that 
even, <laughs> he said that like even at his age, even after all these years away from wrestling. <laughs> Get he... me Bob Holly. <laughs> I think we just figured out Brock Lesnar's return match. <laughs> the Royal Rumble rematch. <laughs> <laughs> 14 years in the making. <laughs> So Bob, you know, he steps away from the bar fighting after he hears about that setup. But then he does hear that the guy that used to run the fights wants to draw a bigger crowd and he wants to get a bit of a better attraction going. And apparently the word is he's bringing in a bear. So Bob hears this and... This is Alabama in what? The, the 80s? This would be the 70s, I think. It's very bad at clarifying what year things are taking place in. This pro- actually, yeah, this this would have been the eighties, I think. Okay, yeah, I, I think so you're I'm right. wondering if there's an actual point where bears stop being used in fights, but I guess it's not what I thought no, it was. Yeah, you're right. This I just checked. This is the early eighties. This in this is, and obviously Bob loves to fight and he loves making money. So and a he bear, hates bears and he hates bears, so he's bound to wrestle a bear. One thing I can't stand: it's a bear <laughs> and, a, and a bully as well. <laughs> He says to this day he still has footage of him wrestling the bear. He says for the first few minutes it looks like he's doing okay. But then the bear bites him on the top of the head and it's immediately over. And he says this is when he started balding. He says that he can pinpoint this is exactly where he started to lose his hair after getting bitten on the head by a fucking grizzly bear. Why? He thinks he got fucking cursed by a bear or something <laughs> like, you know. Mate, I'm just saying there's not many studies done into bear bites causing baldness, so you can't discredit him automatically. Yeah, right? Ursula's alopecia is criminally understudied. I like the idea like if Bob won the match, he's like raised his head with the bears like snickering in the corner and Bob's like, what are you laughing at? Like, oh, you'll see, Bob. You'll We'll see. I wouldn't spend too much money on combs if I was you, but get that bear out of here. (laughs) Chapter six, chasing down a dream. So for three years, he worked as a mechanic. You know, he actually got a good, well-paid job for once. And he's good at being a mechanic, and it's something he will come back to time and time again. Yeah, that's one thing I knew about Bob was that he was legitimate. Like, he did... I know that there is something with him actually doing NASCAR race car yes. stuff, but I know that he was like a total like auto whiz. He is a total case of what people like JR always say about how like, yeah, be a wrestler, that's great and all, but make sure you have a craft you that isn't wrestling. Got a trade or something you can do, yeah. Because there are several points in the book where it's like, well, I wasn't wrestling anymore, so I went and got another job welding or whatever. Like, And he, he's always, always working. Like, yeah. He's always got something going on. The real sad sob stories in wrestling is always the guy who is good at wrestling and loves it and nothing else. Nothing else. They've like, not saying they can't do anything else, but it's like when they, they, all the other things that they do are like being a bouncer. You yeah. Know? It's like literally the only thing that they love is wrestling and they can't get joy out of anything but that. Like I think Scott Hall is a perfect yes. example of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, he, he, he had nothing to his name other than wrestling. Nothing gave him that thrill. And so when you hear guys like Sandman and Bob Holly who had whole other lives yeah. outside of wrestling... You're happy for them. Yeah, right? exactly, because they don't just you know earn their their meal piece and actually only get joy from fucking wrestling all the time, which yeah. is not a great way, obviously, to it's, learn a living most of the time. It's like getting released from prison after being inside for such a long time. Yeah. Like Some wrestlers aren't equipped to deal with the outside world after wrestling mm. again. They've got no skills to fall back on or anything. Yeah, like, yeah. So, it, it, yeah, it's very smart, and he is a very good example of someone that is like always ready to go straight back to a job, even when he's not wrestling. So his manager, when he's working as a mechanic, knew someone who knew a couple of wrestlers, and he put them in touch with Bob. And she put him in touch with Marcel Pringle. 
That's uh, Marcel Pringle. Any relation to Percy Pringle? In kayfabe, I believe, yes. Ah. And the biz was so closed off that Marcel wouldn't train him or even put him in touch with any trainers. Like He basically refused and was like, yeah, yeah, okay, you want to be a wrestler, whatever. You carry on doing and what you're doing. And this is in the 80s. Yes. And this is with a lad who's, got, who's wrestled a bear and has been in street yes. fights. You'd think they'd be snapping that shit up like literally but they're so so protective that's so interesting mm-hmm. the squeaky wheel gets the grease eventually and eventually after much persuasion the guy puts bob in touch with a trainer in pensacola so it costs three grand for the training which bob spreads out over several payments and he literally has to scrape every fucking penny for don't forget he's still like a fucking young dad as well like. and this is before you had Yelp as well so you couldn't even get any reviews for the wrestling skills like you're just completely at their mercy yeah you gotta hope they're a good one yeah like. that's it's so funny you have to like cajole them please let me give you three thousand dollars to do grand. something that I have literally I don't know if you're gonna do a good job or not and even if you do a good job or not I have no way of telling because it's so secretive and closed off mm-hmm. it's as if I can compare this to anyone else that's such fucking bollocks. So happy the industry's moved away from that yeah, kind of Yeah, like, Seriously. The I mean, more exposed, the better. Like. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's still there's still people taking money from... from oh, yeah, know. there's definitely hooksters out there yeah. that are really taking advantage of would-be wrestling students. Like. But, like, that's such obvious. It's like, there's a guy... Like, they probably do that with every single fucking yeah. person. Yeah. It's literally... The, they're, they're looking to find the people who aren't going to complain once they've paid their three grand yep. because they're so passionate and want to do it so bad that even if you fucking cripple them on their first day or whatever, which is apparently what happened back in yep. those days. a lot of cases. No one's going to come back after you because they want it so bad. Exactly. And you prove it. It's such manipulative behaviour. It's a con. It's a massive, so massive con. con like. So he scrapes every penny for these payments and he gets trained by Bob Sweeten and Rip Tyler, who are two NWA wrestlers. Oh, Rip Tyler. I know Rip Tyler. Yeah, yeah. And they don't tell him it's a work, obviously, because wrestling is bullshit. And so Bob still doesn't know that. Bob it's... still doesn't know. They spend ages torturing him and stretching him. And the way Bob says it explicitly is they were just trying to break me and trying to get me to quit and to get me to give up on becoming a wrestler. So at the start of the class that he joins, there's 20 people there. And by the end, there's Ten. three left. Three! Three. Because all they did was they didn't tell people wrestling was a work. They just stretched them all day, every day, tortured them, wore them down. And just try to get them to quit and grind them down as That's much as they could. It's an easy sixty grand to make. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's literally you a con. Have to train three of them. Like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so interesting though because like I know with Flair and Piper, you know, reading their books and hearing their stories, how like literally for them, I mean, Piper didn't even know as he was wrestling. Yeah. That it, he was he wasn't told until he had a few matches. Flair was literally as he was going out for his first match. Yeah. Heart pounded. He got like. Right, he's going over. This is the finish. He got the, the word in the That's ear. That's really common. Literally, as you're going out for your first match, yeah. you get told then, like, oh, everything's a lie. Best of luck. You think you get it, like, week three or four, like, they yeah, tell you about the training. I, I get the old school mentality of not wanting to expose the business to any old fucker, because if this guy's not legit, then we can't trust him with our secret. But does it really take months of grueling training to know you can trust someone with it? I mean, what do they think is going to happen if they... You, know? you can trust fucking coke head promoters and scumbags <laughs> like Hulk Hogan with a secret. Yeah. But you can't trust a recruit until you've tortured them for months on end, obviously. Yeah, got a couple more grand out of them. Example of it here being, he constantly made us run stairs to improve our conditioning and go for runs by the arena while he rode his bike behind us. We'd run in a group and if any of us slowed down, he'd make us start over again. 
Even if we ran two miles, if one of us slowed down, he'd make us run the two miles back to the arena and start all over again. It was absolutely brutal. Jesus Christ. So he's also working full-time as a welder while he's doing this. Which is a physically demanding job in its own right. Yep, rise. that's manual labour. And he's travelling to Pensacola and back every time to do this training. Wait, so Pensacola's in Florida, right? Yeah. That's a fucking serious track he's making then. Yeah. Fucking hell. Starts wrestling as Hollywood Bob Holly after graduating <laughs> wrestling school. <laughs> they they call him Bob Hollywood. Like he, uh, oh my God, come on, yeah, seriously. So, so literally a better or Bob Hollywood. Paul Hollywood, mate. Like. Yeah, maybe. Graduates wrestling school after eight months and starts wrestling as Hollywood Bob Holly, which is a very typical plain boots, plain trunks, baby face kind of gimmick. I bet he had a star on his trunks. And he's, this is something I didn't know, but he said the reason back then that the young talent were always, always, always baby faces is because the heel always calls the match yeah. back in those days. So therefore, the the young rookie has to be the face because the heel's the veteran and he's the one in charge. And usually, as well, like the the heel is going to be an old, like it's the easier story instead of the young the young upstart and the old guy. And, yeah, I guess. Know. But I, I didn't know that that was the case that the heel was always, always, always the general and always mm. calling the shots. Like, ah, that's really interesting. interesting. I mean, I'm sure up at the top main events and stuff like that, it probably you know leaned up a little bit. On yeah, I'm front. sure. But for yeah, definitely for when you're starting off. For across the board, like. Because you know what? I think that to an extent, though, I think that's really good because there's nothing fucking sadder. And this, I see this all the time when I go to shitty indie shows or like small indie shows, where you've got someone who's clearly got like less than a year of training. And they're coming out and they're like, here's maybe a high concept heel gimmick. <laughs> you know? And it's like, you kind of, you beg for a little bit of this plain fucking, like, please learn to do the basics first before yeah. you start thinking about character. Because, like, I, I see that so fucking often. It's so cringy where someone is like, can't do the basics, yet they're trying to do this fucking high concept Bray Wyatt type of gimmick. Yeah. It's like, learn, how, like, you know, New Japan their dojo system you don't get a character you're not allowed to have a character really? for your first year when you're a young boy you have to be plain black boots plain black tights no knee pads no adornments nothing fancy you're a regular plain boots and tights guy that's awesome that's a really good system because you have to find yourself I that love that idea that is fucking brilliant yeah I would love like a sub NXT developmental yes all the like, plain like fucking shit like preschool NXT or something <laughs> like, that would be so interesting to see no what I love to see is a guy like, I'm a master of mind games but I'm not so good on wrist lock so dude ah oh, jeez I gotta go on my left to do a oh, master <laughs> of psychology so Rip Tyler, who trained Bob, makes a deal with a Japanese star called Mr. Ito, and they set up World Organization Wrestling, also known as WOW. <laughs> wow, Bob, wow indeed. It's a promotion on the Gulf Coast with TV time already sorted out for them. So Bob is basically exhausting himself by working full-time in the welding plant, and then he goes and films rigorous TV tapings, of which they would film several back-to-back, for little to no money as well. And they actually threatened to drop him from the show if he didn't step it up. So he actually had to start working harder as well. It wasn't good enough for them. And this is, of course, you know, yeah, he'd probably get nothing for that, right? I mean... Next to nothing. Like, because that's back in the day, like, that TV, they would have had to pay to get that TV show yes, on TV. So, yeah. they're, you know, there's not as if there's money to be going around in the first place. Yeah, Bob was living off scraps, basically. Jesus. He talks a little bit about blading at this point, And interesting thing is, Bob used to keep his blade in his mouth. Oh, I've heard that. I've heard that. He's I've another heard one that. of those. Absolutely. So, the, the mouth, yeah, Hogan is out in the mouth. The one which I still hate is the, the Flare finger. on the finger. Oh, fuck that. The first ever blade job he did. Oh, no! 
all nervous and he drops the blade and his opponent because wrestling in the 80s you know you, you can't fuck anything up his opponent gigs him for him and apparently cuts a major artery on Bob's forehead and he has to get 18 fucking stitches 18 stitches <sighs> Now you think of a blade job that requires 18 stitch. He must have jammed it in and been like, Nargh! you know when Fraser cuts the Martin cage in Fraser, <laughs> it's like a bit. Like, it's fucking like mass transit like cut job. Oh, dude. That's fucking crazy. Really gross. After two years of WoW being open, Mr. Ito pulls the plug and they close it down. Next part of the book is the Hardcore Truth Part One. So wait, what the fuck was that then? That was the first six chapters, and now we're getting the Hardcore Truth Part One. So, so we've changed chapter structure. So it's not like chapter one, two, three, four, five. It's chapter one, two, three, four, five. The Hardcore Truth Part One. Yeah. Fucking Sean Penn over here, seriously. Hardcore Truth Part One. Is it fake? Basically, a little one-page micro chapter. Oh, so he's got he's, he's breaking it down for you a little bit, like the kind of the the the, the ends well, and the outs. Well, that's that's what I thought it'd be. I thought every now and then we'll get a hardcore truth where it's like the hardcore truth chair shots. What well, the chair shot truth is like, but it, it's not. It's just like whatever he fancies talking about for that bit. You'll I see. If it was like a it's DVD, it'd be a little like a, a little bob would pop up <laughs> with his music playing in the background. How do you like the truth? Yeah, like, and he yeah. goes, is it fake? Well, let me tell you something about that. Ba, 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 and then back to the regular. Yeah, <laughs> but this is just him explaining his stance on the whole real or fake thing. And he says that he's really mellowed out on the whole subject over the years. He used to get really riled up about it. But these days, I mean, you know, he's, he's not one of these old guys that still gets upset. He knows the business is exposed. And getting upset about it at this point is just a waste of energy. Like tell Jim Cornette, like legit, legit. That's that's what really winds me up is people like him and Jim Ross who just can't let go of the fact that you can't put the worms back in the can. Like. Yeah, well, you know what? They're taking the bumps though, aren't they? At the end of the day, I don't, you know, <laughs> Bob Holly is just talking about it. Chapter seven: The Wrestling Graveyard. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. Not my grave. <laughs> Pat Rose, who Bob's worked with in the past, manages to land himself and Bob a tag team gig in Mid-South Wrestling, which is the one run by the two Jerrys, as you will yeah, know. Yeah, Mid-South is considered to be one of the best, like, real ahead of its time, like, amazing wrestling from Mid-South. Mm-hmm. So he moves up to Memphis to work with Jarrett and Lawler in the hopes of basically building up more notoriety with the goal of being, obviously, end up in the WWF. It's so funny because, like, I really don't think of Bob Holly and like Memphis or that that type of style at all. Mm. I, I feel like that Bob is completely at odds with that. I thought he'd be more kind of a a Bill Watts type of guy, as any other the dingy arenas where guys beat the fucking shit yeah. out of each other. Whereas Mid South and you know Memphis would be a little bit more of the character and a little bit more of the showbiz and the razzmatazz and there ain't no way I'm putting on that turkey suit. <laughs> yeah, bit cushier. Like. Yeah, I didn't think Bob would be in there. Doesn't mean it's all fun and games though. Oh no, absolutely not. But it's just maybe a different style. I mean, this is where we first start to get some bitterness because there's not really been a lot of bitterness in this book so far. He doesn't really go after people so much. Yeah, but here is where we get the beginning of that. I was told we would get paid every two weeks, but when that first paycheck came, I knew something wasn't right. Jeff Jarrett came in with everybody's envelopes and handed out the checks. Why? Why? Why would you have Jeff Jarrett, the fucking, the promoter's son, why would you have, and top star, who's younger than them all, why would he be handing out the checks? That's so fucking shit. See if this story sounds familiar at all, Kevin. Oh, like, for fuck's sake. Everybody looked at their checks, and to a man, everybody looked so depressed. 
doesn't make any sense to a man everybody looks so de- just everybody looks so depressed like jeff came back in later all smiles and said damn you guys are all acting like somebody died somebody else said you get the fucking paycheck we just got and you'd feel the same way he didn't say anything he knew so it's literally the same interaction that Stone Cold had with Jarrett at that time. It ain't gonna get bigger by looking Literally. At it. Big smile on his face. I've got the fat paycheck. And I'm here to give you your little measly paychecks. You get this little bit of matter, like if you put all your paychecks together, they probably wouldn't be the size of Jeff's like Probably not. And all of those together wouldn't be the size of Jerry's like fucking hell, that is so rubbish. But here's the bitterness where it really comes out. The only wrestler they paid well was Jeff. He was driving around in a nice vehicle and making a ton of money. What could any of us say to him? His dad was the promoter. Jeff was a real dickhead back then. Still is as far as I'm concerned. He reminds me a lot of Triple H and that's not a good thing. Jeff will will stab you in the back because he's not man enough to stab you in the front. He's the furthest thing from a man. That came out of nowhere. Sorry, I love that that's in the bit. After the bit called the hardcore truth. No, well. I know. Like now that's out of the way. Let's get back to regular. The softcore truth. The furthest from a man you can get. Whoa. Most he ever got paid was $189 for two weeks of work. And bear in mind, he moved to Memphis. So he must be full time in it. And that's covering your own travel. Yep. Covering your own accommodation. To, to put it in perspective, $189 over two weeks, he said it works out at $15 per match. $15? Yeah. Which is less than £10. Yeah. That means he was doing 12.6 matches in that fortnight to get paid $15. So basically two days off. In, so one day off a week. Yeah, essentially. Less than six days. Yep. That is fucking ridiculous. For that money. That is so fucking shit. Pathetic. That is so, so crap. My God in heaven. So as you'd expect, after two months, he couldn't hack it and he moved back to Mobile to get his old job back as a welder. He eventually went off to Atlanta for a bit to do some enhancement for the NWA. He worked... (laughs) I forgot about this. While he's in the NWA doing enhancement, he works a match with Ric Flair where they don't talk about anything beforehand and Bob's like... A little bit shaken because he's like, A, it's Ric Flair. He's a big fucking deal. And B, he not spoke to me before the match. We're just going to go out there. Like, that's weird. Flair gives him a 10-minute match where Bob gets plenty of offense in despite the fact that he's a young jobber. And Bob is, like, so overwhelmed and grateful. He goes up to Flair after the match and thanks him. And he's, like, really, really appreciative that he gave him all that. And Rick just says, yep. And walks Yep. <laughs> that's amazing. Well that that's like that's what Flair did, wasn't it? You yeah, know? that's that says a lot about him as a wrestler, I think, because it wasn't even a deal for him to do that. That's just who he was. Like I think that's so fucking interesting because you know what? I bet Bob, as a young guy in in mid south and elsewhere, I imagine he got fucking no offense. Oh, of course. After, yeah. You know, it's so funny when you hear about those old timey wrestling matches where they're breaking them in, it's like you're the baby face and the heel just comes in and it's like it's not even a squash. It's like a five, ten minute match yeah. where the heel just grinds him down and then just wins. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Too like. protracted to be considered a squash. Yeah. Like it's just a burial. But yeah, Ric Flair actually didn't put him over, but he gave him a little something, something. Like. That's funny because you know people used to go after Flair. Like uh, his a lot of his contemporaries or his predecessors said that your know, Flair gave too much to, to everyone and that he couldn't be a proper champion because he would like you know, bump for the ref and he'd bump for a jobber it's like you can't do that it's like well you know what he's fucking entertaining isn't he like you yeah know? exactly and that's what wrestling's about 
Yeah, I, I like to go to see wrestling where the wrestlers fucking bump around and do something. <laughs> you know? You're gonna go see an old man beat up a young man very slowly over ten minutes side? You know it, it's Friday. Woo! <laughs> Come on, gang. But so even though that was great, he doesn't hold back in going off on how uncourteous Rick was for not actually talking to him after the match. He's the furthest thing from a man you can get. He goes off on one and then he starts whinging about how sad it is to see Flair wrestling in his sixties for TNA. And he says that the TNA run was a massive slap in the face to Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels. I mean, it was. I agree. I totally agree. It's just, I love that, like, well, we're on about Ric Flair anyway. I'm just quickly going to get my feelings out of the way now. Bob Holly's got a fucking hot steaming basket of hot takes here, Adam, it seems like. Yeah. After a particularly good match, Jim Cornette finds him backstage and basically says to him, you've, you've got to stop coming here. Like, you should, if you respect your own career, you need to stop working for the NWA because all they're going to do is job you out. Yeah, yeah. You, so, you get, like, that label as, like, a career jobber. Exactly. Which so, probably was, Bob was a bit too good for that. I mm. imagine is that what he's kind of trying to get at almost? Yeah, like, Jim is basically saying, I can see how you're being booked. I can see where this is going. If you want to have a better career than this and make a better living, stop coming here, basically. Yeah. It's not going to do you any favours. Shit. Oh, man. It's when he said that Jim Cornette was, uh, you know, asked to come and see him. I thought he'd, like, come in. It's like, you know, it's a dimly lit room. It's like, what are you doing? Take me into this dimly lit room. And Jim Cornette's like, come down. Don't worry. I got an idea. I want you to meet Bart Guns. <laughs> oh, no. Bart Gunn walks into the shadows like, I'm hearing that in, you know, five, six years, we're going to form a really forgettable tag team. You in? The NWA will invade the WWF in 1998, and you will forget about it. Wow, that plan was bubbling under the surface for so long. All along. Like, I think you grow your hair real long, we'll give you a really shit name, terrible music. <laughs> be pretty bodacious. <laughs> so Bob listens to Cornette, and he takes his advice and stops travelling to Atlanta. He does his day job for a few months until Corny eventually phones him and says, I've set up Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Why don't you come and work for me for a bit? You know, I'm the guy that told you you should stop, you know, being treated like shit. Come work for me instead. So obviously, Bob loves that idea. And they have an arrangement where he goes once a weekend for a taping at Cornette's. And eventually, he starts doing house shows for him as well. So what gimmick is he doing for Cornette? Is he just like Bob Holly or is he... just a guy. Again, I think he is just a hand. He's not really being featured or anything. A carpenter. Yeah, but he's he's (laughs) getting put in better spots at least with Cornette. You know what? Like, as easy as it is to rag on Cornette and fun and funny as well. It's just great. Let's love doing it. Um, But if you are a wrestler who is of the same mindset as Jim Cornette and like... That's the thing is like Jim Cornette likes one or two flavors of ice cream. Mm-hmm. I love a hundred flavors of ice cream. But if you're one of those one or two flavors that Jim Cornette likes, he is the fucking best person in the fucking world. Yeah. Like if you're if you're vanilla basically, or mm-hmm. you know vanilla with some chocolate chips in there, or whatever, you're very basic plain ones. He's always popping up throughout history of wrestlers are like you know he did the same thing with Mick Foley you know word in his ears like you know don't come here da 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 yeah. and then Smoky Mountain he helped out so many people and I don't think when Cornette was doing Smoky Mountain it was from like a self-preservation type of view I think he was trying to like legitimately help push oh, this vision I, I think of wrestling so too, yeah whatever people say about Cornette I think he definitely wanted to help the business and he wanted to help young wrestlers if like, you're into his narrow view of yeah, it yeah if you're one of his guys yeah like he actually goes on to praise Cornette as a mind and as a person, but he does sort of point out that he's very stubborn and he can be very <laughs> abrasive and hard to work with and he gets why he's got the reputation he has. And a hardcore pot Bob Holly calling fucking Jim Kettle <laughs> Cornette over here. Like, Jesus Christ. Eventually he starts taking on more work with Smoky Mountain 
to the point where he's working seven days a week between his welding job and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So he's just never resting, basically. Do you know much about Smoky Mountain? Very, very little. It's on the network as far as I know I now. I think it is, yeah. And it's some really, really weird fucking shit. And, like, I think a lot of people have in their minds, like, Smoky Mountain is kind of like what we imagined like, Memphis was like that back there kind of you know family friendly kind of play wrestling yep. southern kind of you know make sure we all come down for the pancake breakfast <laughs> you know that type of a thing like like basically like Southpaw regional wrestling or yeah. something like that but like you know like New Jack and the Gangsters that all started in uh, New Jack Sm- yeah Smoky Mountain really yeah and it's a lot even though he was a lot of it was very hokey he tried to do a lot of stuff that was kind of considered at the time to be very cutting edge and I imagine considered now to be so cutting edge it's quite distasteful Ooh. but I would love to rewatch Smoky Mountain it's weird like you know like ECW it was kind of like an Isle of Misfit Toy it yeah. was kind of people who like were deemed to be not suitable for the other companies at one point or another and found themselves there. You got Chris Candido was there, Mick mm. Foley was there, Jericho and Lance Storm got their start Fucking in Smoky a. Mountain. Really be interesting for us to review it sometime, I think. I'd like to hear a how-to Smoky Mountain wrestling Ooh, or something baby. somewhere down the line. So, yeah, he's burning himself out with this schedule. And after a few months of doing this, he calls it quits because he doesn't trust the stability of Smoky Mountain. Like, he likes Cornette mm. as a person and everything, but he doesn't really trust it enough to go full-time yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, Bob v, being very sensible and very work-minded, he'd rather have a definite job doing something like welding than a risky job wrestling. Like, he's very <laughs> smart like that. I think Bob Holly may be the first wrestler with a book who's like... This sensibly might like this is the like, closest to how I would. Like, yeah, I was being arrested. Not taking too big a risk. He takes little yeah. risks, but he's very careful about how very much he'll careful. risk. Very calculated. And he closes off that chapter of his life with, "I thought that was it for me in wrestling, so I went back home and I built me a race car." <laughs> I gathered all the parts for the quest and decided I was going to go do that instead. <laughs> chapter eight: Need for more speed. So, Bob loves going to the Mobile racetrack, like, as a fan, going there to watch the races. So, are we getting to know Bob Holly, the race car enthusiast? Yes. This will very much be the college football chapters of the book, like In the Rock says. Okay, because, well, there's, there's one or two ways this could go down, because it could go down as, like, yeah, the college football things, like, in most rest of books, where it's kind of unnecessary, this is part of who I am. I'm worried, though, because of Bob's enthusiasm for the circular car driving, that it could be, like, Chris Jericho. Fuzzy. Fuzzy. Yeah. Like, yeah, the chapters of me getting drunk with some asshole from Judas Priest is as important as WrestleMania 31. Shut up. <laughs> you guys... You guys want to hear about Fozzy? No. Huh? At the, ba- at the back. Oh. The Fozzy? Oh. The ba- yeah, where are the band playing at the moment? Mm. You what? Oh, okay, well, next time. We'll get him next time, guys. Mm. Come on, here we go. Yow. He, he manages to keep a pretty decent lid on it. Like, there's a bit of racing stuff where I was, like, skimming it because I was like, please, let this end. <laughs> but it's it's nowhere near as egregious as The Rock's book or as what I've heard about Jericho's books. Right. Like, he keeps it relatively concise. So he loves going to the Mobile racetrack. He meets his first wife, Terry, there. He meets someone else there as well who helps him build his own race car, one of the racers at the track. So when he says he builds it, he literally, like, 
like when Homer tried to build his own car, like it's like a mattress and puts you know, four. It's it's like you buy a, a little box car, not a box car, but you, you buy like a, a racing car and you work it up like yourself. And yeah, you know, you buy the basic part of it, and then you and your mates will sort of put things together. And so it's like Bob is building his own rig. Yeah, and that is a big part of the hobby. Like, is the joy of getting your hands dirty and working on your own car. Like he said, he would spend hours fine tuning it and tweaking it just because yeah. he enjoyed it. Like Terry, you either sit there and they say, or you can get to fixing to knit me. <laughs> some seatbelts <laughs> so he starts racing and he wins his second heat race and there were people that were saying like oh yeah it'll be years before you win a race but he wins his second race in a heat so he only races in about half the 1992 season but he still this finishes. is NASCAR this isn't he doesn't say NASCAR at any point this is the racing that they were doing in Mobile right so but it is like it's I don't know anyway near, yeah, near enough about NASCAR to know I always assumed paid for this because I assumed like say over here in England you can set up your own football team if you want but it takes a lot of winning and a lot of effort to climb the ranks to become in part of like the FIFA league or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. and I'm really showing my ignorance here like it's not even called the FIFA league the it's FIFA league U- UEFA it's I know so sensible little sensible soccer you that's fucking the one. moron that's the one so I don't know I always assumed that this was just some local community racing right, or like right, maybe right. a state thing or something but to be honest I didn't absorb the information about the racing quite as much as I did about the wrestling so okay, okay. maybe don't ask me too many questions about the racing <laughs> Julina I've not got too many planned so it's okay so he only races in about half the 1992 season but he still manages to finish in 5th for the overall league and he's pretty confident about the 1993 season <laughs> chapter 9 a political race so a different kind of race no, not with cars but with Wait, political race. We're still talking about racing, but the politics of racing. As oh, well. sorry, I thought it was that. After I had that, I, I went ran home, for the mayor. I built me a presidential candidacy. I'm going to be the mayor. <laughs> and they're going to learn to like that. <laughs> I know, it would be great because it'd be just like the 99 thing where it's like, you know, Bob Dole and Bill Clinton are on there, like, kind of taking care of their business on the campaign trail. Like, Who's this third guy who keeps insinuating himself to showing up at the debates? The like, big shot, like. What is candidate Holly smoking? Like, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, basically, he develops a rivalry with another racer called Rod Merrill. Oh, what a dick. I hate you, Rod. Yeah, and it's one of these things where every race would apparently end with one of those two winning. You know how in, like, Mario Kart, there's always one CPU driver that, you know, is your rival. Yeah, I get you. I hate you, Waluigi. So they got really heated and would always, you know, they would often race dirty, like hitting each other and like ramming each other. throwing fucking banana peels behind them. Pretty like, much. Like, all right, all right, straight up here. Right? The only way which we can maybe, I don't know, just probably a lot of people listening to this who are race car enthusiasts. My uncle likes cars. Uh, but to help the rest of us, let's maybe view this from terms of Mario Kart. Okay. What weapons in Mario Kart do you think bob holly would use like what do you think he's kind of like a chaotic type of guy throwing his fucking shells everywhere do you think he'd be more kind of like a bob holly driving with the the banana peel at the rear view you ain't gonna hit the big shot from behind well his stance on hardcore matches that he talks about much later in the book is that he would prefer to use a few weapons mm. and weave those weapons into the story of the match gotcha. sensibly ah. so i think bob holly would be the kind of guy to use a green shell yeah, or maybe he'll hit you with the fake item box or something. You know, he's gonna, he's not going to be coming out there with the magic eight or with the fucking you know piranha plant or anything. Yeah, like, ridiculous gimmicks, like too gimmicky, know. mate. That's maybe Crash's scene more than <laughs> Bob's. Like. 
So, yeah, they're doing shit like spinning each other out during matches, and they were both told, cut this out or you're going to be dropped from the league. Like, I mean, I just assume if you try to do stuff like that, you just end up killing each other. Like, you think, of, you but, know. you know, the cars are really fucking built to take a pound in. Like, I imagine they're the kind of cars that you could go into, like, a demolition derby with, you know, and be relatively safe. Has he got one of the thing on his wheel that the Roman centurions had where he could, like, drill into the side? <laughs> you know? So this crook, Rod, has his friend Tommy ruin Bob's car during a race and they get into a fight afterwards. Like, so basically the guy wrecks his car by ramming into him and Bob fights him and gets suspended for two weeks. Uh, he ends up winning the championship by one point and he gets 2.5 grand to go with it, which he assumes he's going to invest in cars. That seems like such a small amount of money. For such a, what you would assume to be a dangerous sport. And, and a an big, expensive And a big boy. time sink as well. Like. I mean, imagine like the, the parts and working on that and the maintenance. Yeah. And if you're one of those people out there who values your time as being worth money. Of course. Uh, which <laughs> a lot of it goes into, like... So yeah, he's gonna like he's thinking he's gonna reinvest his money in cars, but thank Christ! In November '93, he gets a voicemail from JJ Dillon. So ah. okay, the racing's. I I really kept that short, but it felt like it was a lot longer to read. Yeah, I didn't notice that a, a large chunk of the book just flipped over to the yeah. left. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but it was bad enough. Chapter ten. Who the fuck is Thurman Plug? Oh God, I forgot his first name. Thurman! What a bad name! So the previously aforementioned Marcel Pringle sends a tape of Bob's work to Percy Pringle, a.k.a. Paul Bearer, who passes it on to J.J. Dillon. And Bob is brought in for an interview with Dillon and Vince. Apparently, everyone was very polite, very open. It was just a very rational, let's just have a chat, talk about you, talk about mm. wrestling. And they offer him a spot on the roster right there and then, like, after the meeting straight away. That's funny because I don't know if Bob will go into this, but this would have been, what, 93, 94? Yep. There literally was a hiring frenzy at that time. Jericho mentioned in his book where where you got characters like Bastion Bugger, Sparkplug Holly, you yep. got um, Thurman Plug, I should say, you know, Mantor, all these guys who just... Like, they had fun ideas for gimmicks. They wanted people just to put the gimmicks on. The gimmicks were already ready yep. to go. And it's like, let's just get all these... You know, that's where you got, you know, um, uh, T.L. Hopper. Yeah, the wrestling yeah, yeah. Basically everything from the How To Live show. Pretty much, <laughs> Pretty much. yeah. Silly gimmicks. Jericho was originally pegged to be the goon. Yeah. Because Jericho's dad was a famous hockey player and they had this goon character idea. And Jericho was actually approached similarly because Jericho had worked in Smoky Mountains. So therefore Jim Cornette was like, oh, I know a guy who could work in blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that this was them reaching out to find competent workers to give very silly gimmicks for. But yep. the idea from the get-go with all of these and why Jericho didn't go with it was because apparently the idea was that these would, all of them were going to be lower card guys. Mm -hmm. Like, no one was going to get a push from this. And that's why you ended up with a lot of, you know, a lot of people like, for instance, Fantasio and Mantor had like one or two appearances and then they were gone because it's yeah. like, the gimmick's a great idea, the guy can't wrestle, so fuck it, let's just do another one. <laughs> he doesn't really go into that whole hiring frenzy that you mentioned. Is, is he aware though that he's, yeah. Absolutely, and he says that the reason they call him Thurman Plug and that they want him to have this gimmick is because they know he's into racing and they're crazy about the idea of having two job wrestlers people that are a wrestler and right. something else which is obviously what the new gen era was all about so like, literally him stopping wrestling and going and doing a couple of months of race car driving actually got him a job in wrestling 
Well, is, is, I mean, it's more can, so. It than... helped. It definitely helped. I think because obviously what got him the job was people passing his tapes on to the right people. Mm. I think the fact that they then heard he's got a gimmick being a race car driver in real that life. Got him in the door, like... That probably is what got Vince to go. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, let's bring yeah. him in today. Like you know, I think that sped it up considerably. That's so interesting. Mm. So now we come to the hardcore truth part two: life on the road. Life on the road. <laughs> Were you singing Heidecker and Woods? Yes. Life? No one's going to get that. I, don't know, I just like saying Life on the Road. Like, If you're like me, a regular English man, you hear Life on the Road, you think one thing. David Brent, Life oh, on the, the Road. The David the Brent movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Ugh. So he talks about how it's a constant circus, the lifestyle in WWE. and oh, how... Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> circus clowns. He says how the current guys all have it easy getting holidays off, which... Lol, they literally didn't this year. They had what? to work Christmas Day. Like, mate, seriously, fucking check yourself there. That, I call BS on that. He, he like. seriously thinks they have it easier these days. And in some respects, they have it easier because they're not all fucking addled with drug addictions and painkiller addictions. Yeah, still got to make the fucking time. The schedule is still fucking disgustingly hard work. Like, yeah, literally, if you're a fucking try, tell that schedule being easy to someone like the Miz who has to fucking work Monday for Raw Tuesday for yep. Mixed Match Challenge you know it, just, just had so a baby and he's on yeah. Raw the next day like <laughs> working the house miss, shows yeah. ah, I got it easy though chapter 11 starting the engine <clears throat> so he wrestles his first WWF match in January 1994 against Barry Horowitz and obviously he goes over Time yeah, that wouldn't be one for the ages. Sorry. I really want to see that match. Time for some more burying of Jeff Jarrett. He says he was only getting a big gimmick because and a, and a big push because his daddy was now in the WWF offices. Oh, that's who Jerry Jarrett was brought in around that around time, that wasn't time. he? Yeah. God, actually, I never actually paid that before Jeff's... Because Jeff's first run was very like in- inexplicable that he was there because he went away for so long afterwards. It's like, yeah, his dad was there. It yeah. kind of makes a lot of sense. Did Bob give any kind of indication about what he thought when he was given this gimmick was he like awesome cool yeah i love race cars i love wrestling or is he like oh well a job's a job i guess he gets into it more but basically it's oh well a job's a job i guess it's i'm fucking thrilled to finally be at the wwf already i'm working the job that i want to be working it's a pity the gimmick's kind of crap. So and... he, he's all like kind of, but I love race cars. This is going to be great. I'm well, going to fucking make this go. No, he's obviously been as enthusiastic as he can, but he knows just from the name alone that it's... Right. Like, he tells a story of being like on an airplane and, you know, obviously when there's a bunch of wrestlers on an airplane, like on a commercial flight, people are going to notice. Yeah, yeah. And people like turn around and be like, oh, what are you guys? And he's like, oh, we're all wrestlers. And like, oh, really? Who are you? What's your wrestler? And he's like, I have no one. He's like, no, no go on. Oh! Who is it? And he's like Thurman Sparky plug and they laugh at him oh. and he says that eventually after a while he started just telling anyone that asked like oh yeah I'm on the production team like I don't no. I don't rest. that <laughs> is so fucking sad so he clearly knew very early on that this gimmick wasn't going to get him anywhere that but he just thought so sad it's a foot in the door make the most of it oh my god the poor lad so yeah Jeff Jarrett was only getting a good push because his daddy was in the WWF offices and he also says that as soon as Jerry Jarrett was working in the office everyone there got a pay cut and he is so bitter like this point is like really really he's still hung up on it and he's probably convinced that that pay cut is some sort of roundabout let's fuck over the people who used to work for us a few years ago as opposed to the reality of 93, 94 business was shit steroid Uh, trial exactly think back oh nine eleven. The steroid trial, which is the equivalent of For that. sake. You know, so obviously there was hard times for the company. It's weird that Bob, like, as 
it seems so far that he's coming across as being, you know, mellowed out a bit, time has went on. But there seems to be certain things there where he refuses to look at the bigger picture. And that, yeah. like, obviously, everyone was getting a fucking pay cut because they brought on loads of new wrestlers mm-hmm. while the company was losing money. Yep. Duh. <laughs> yeah, he can be very even-handed about most things, but there are mm. some things like the Jarrett's, for instance, that That's, he is still yeah. huge chip on his shoulder about Real it. sore spot for him, absolutely. His first ever TV appearance was in the 1994 Royal Rumble match. He got subbed in for an injured 1-2-3 kid. And he was apparently in the match for over 21 minutes, which he was astounded by. And he is very quick to point out that that is considerably longer than Jeff Jarrett was in the match for. <laughs> for fuck's sake! Really sore spot, like. You know, this really goes to show as well. You ever has happens in wrestling, and it's always really sad where you have these really one-sided fucking like rival. Like you know, one guy hates one guy, the other guy. He's like, eh. I've heard Jeff Jarrett talk mess about a lot of people. But never, I didn't know there was ever an issue between these two guys. Maybe that's why Bob Holly's still so wound up about it, because Jeff doesn't acknowledge him back. Like, it could be that. It could be that, like, he still hates him because he doesn't get noticed by him. Nice. Backstage, he becomes really good friends with Randy Savage and Rick Martel, and apparently they help him a lot, like, with guiding him through WWF. You know, because obviously it's a fucking political minefield with what you should and shouldn't do backstage. That's actually the only benefit, I think, of being in the company. Like, that's a terrible time to be in the company, like, in so many ways. But the only good thing is that you have veterans there from the Hogan era who are a year maybe from being out the door to WCW or off to greener pastures or to, to retire. So there's a lot of minds there to actually absorb from. So yeah. that's great that you actually got to... Wow, Bob Holly and Randy Savage. That's not two names you'd ever consider together. Weird combination, isn't it? Yeah. He gets booked in a 10-man tag at WrestleMania 10. Oh, yeah. This is the one that gets cut, isn't it? It gets cut because Razor and Sean go too long. They go like 20 minutes over or something outrageous like that. And they just had to have the long segment with the Bill Clinton impersonator. They couldn't oh, drop you, it. Oh, like. you couldn't lose that gold, Kevin. IRS lost his WrestleMania 10 moment that year, and I'll never forgive him for oh, this. Oh, apparently Randy Savage went ape shit at Sean and Razor when they came backstage to Gorilla. He was fucking furious at how disrespectful that was to the other wrestlers to I mean, go over. It is. It is. And it, it, I'll be the first to say that's a great match and I love that match, but it is rude as fuck that you think you're so important that you can eat up a huge <laughs> chunk of the show like that. <laughs> like there was a time where I went to do an open mic spot like at, uh, at Zing, the little cafe bar where I used to work that did stand-up yeah. comedy and they're like, can you do five minutes? And I was like, uh, well, I just got a really great story story about pissing on the mail that I really want to tell and it's like I'm telling the story no matter what like I literally was up there for fucking 15 minutes like and everyone backstage was pissed but Meltzer did give it like 4.5 stars that story yeah so. I mean like you know, it, it, you know there's a lot of piss on the mail it was really good it was really good you know lots of, lots of things are going on and then Brian Adams is like what why did he piss on the mail I don't like this guy why does why did he do that you've been listening to too much of that show Kevin it's not good for you to listen to I'm it not, that often I'm not doing it in bird song anymore so it's okay <laughs> <laughs> apparently Randy Savage this is according to Bob the reason Savage got blacklisted from the company is because he told Vince he was quitting the entire business and he wanted to retire from wrestling altogether and then he showed up in WCW <sighs> He briefly mentions the Stephanie rumours, but only to then bring them up and say that's all they ever were was rumours. That I mean, I I don't buy the the Stephanie rumours. He, mean... he says that all he ever saw was Savage being friendly with Stephanie. He didn't see any more than that. And based on how brutally honest and open-handed Bob has been about even people that he likes in this book, I don't think he would have shied away from that if he no. knew something like. I think that's like. 
that is the, the excuse he's given there that's quite likely mm. and I think the way it could be perceived as being like oh I'm actually going to go over to here like because Flair writes in his book about uh, him and Bischoff basically would have this little team where it was they would go after the big wrestlers yeah. from WF who say that, like Hogan was gone from wrestling forever on Thunder and Paradise Flair and Bischoff is like right let's go and have a chat with him in his trailer and they laid out the plan for him mm. and then it's like literally the, the exact same thing with Randy Savage he's like yeah I'm gone from wrestling they went they had their chat offered him all the money and told him he could you know do whatever he wants basically yeah. and all of a sudden plans change it's so interesting like that Vince would be sour on something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure if I buy that as being the only reason no. Savage was blacklisted for so long. Because, like, come on, everyone comes back. Sam Martino came back. Ultimate Warrior came back. I don't think that is a big enough reason no. to keep him away. No. But I, I'm the same as you. I still don't buy into the Stephanie stuff, even so. Yeah, like, I think that's BS. Okay, now we're getting onto a good point here. A nice big one. This will be a recurring theme for the next few chapters. The Click have made an appearance in the book. Uh-oh, just incredible in the gang. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, he doesn't get mentioned at any point. Really? Actually, like... Really? It's almost like he wasn't a member of the Click. <laughs> Do you think Just Incredible thinks that X Factor was the Click? Just <laughs> him, X Pac, oh, no. and Albert. Albert. You know, and Albert is well up to Vince. It's like you gotta make some changes, man. You know, you gotta you gotta change things up. You gotta you gotta get them skyscapers out there. You gotta get me in just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> just three guys running the show. He didn't. Pay, he thought Sunday Night Heat was the show. You see. That's oh, why. he's so terribly confused. We, we, we ran this fucking shit. Like, <laughs> oh god, the poor man. But I quote: Randy was right. Sean's little group of buddies, the Click, as they call themselves. And Bob says he hates buddies. Yes. He absolutely hates buddies. Hates friendship. And he <laughs> he said it right from the get go. He's. Yeah. <laughs> You're making this very difficult for me. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Randy was right. Sean's little group of buddies, the click as they call themselves, and he spells click correctly like C-L-I-Q-U-E. I think that's like a burn. Like, I'm not going to use your spelling. Oh, like K, right. Like... So he didn't put it in like inverted commas. No. He did capitalize the C there on the click. Still a bit of respect, I guess. The click as they called themselves were taking over. It was Sean, Scott, Kevin Nash, and the 123 Kid. Triple H would ass-kiss his way into the group when he turned up in 1995 and kept ass-kissing his way to the top of the industry. He keeps dropping little hints about what he feels about Triple H. There's even like a point where he mentions Triple H like, he's a great worker, but we'll, uh, we'll get into him later. Like, he's teasing you with so his opinion. So he literally has to warm himself up, like, because if he gets out here in chapter one, like, or whatever, he'll speak. Yeah, he'll, he'll tire himself out for the rest of the book, like... <laughs> So apparently on the road back then you would order food for that evening's catering. So like you'd be in a coach or whatever and they'd give out food tickets where you have like a set of predetermined meals on it and you choose what you want and you put your name on it and give them all back in. So then basically after the match is over later, you come and your meal is ready for you and they know what you're ordered. I heard that the catering situation back during these dark ages was very, very grim. Like Kevin Nash said in the shoot interview that they literally had like ham sandwiches like yeah. put out for the boys. Like, Well, if you're lucky, because apparently Shawn Michaels was caught ripping up Bob's food cards. What? Several days in a row. Basically Why? meaning that Bob was being starved like by Shawn Michaels. 
And of course, he wasn't like doing this in front of Bob or anything. It was like a secret thing. Bob had to find out through other people. See, this is the annoying thing, though, is that you're 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 literally only getting one side of the story because there has to be more to it than that. Like, do you think what literally Shawn Michaels is like him over there? Let's enta- I mean, let's fuck him up. Like. But that it, that could be it. I mean, because Shawn was a dick back then, and they were a group of bullies. Like, but it's Bob Holly, so part of me is like he obviously said or did something like that they took the wrong way. Well, if you're looking at this as maybe just Bob's side of the story, maybe take the next bit as a, with a pinch of salt. Because in response to this, Bob confronts the whole clique. He doesn't just find Sean, he goes up to the entire clique and he threatens to cut off HPK's fingers with bolt cutters. The next day, apparently Kevin Nash makes a joke at Bob's expense and Bob threatens to knock him out. Apparently the clique never cross him ever again. I am almost 100% certain. I'd say I'm probably like 90 certain that I've seen a shoot interview with Kevin Nash where it was brought up about like Bob Holly or whatever and he's just literally like you know the way like a bully who let's say a bully but like someone who's clearly gotten away with antagonising someone reacts he's just like literally laughing to himself like about like the whole thing I have a funny feeling that Scott Hall and and Kevin Nash didn't turn to each other and go oh god stay away from Bob Holly Mm. I imagine them laughing their heads off at him and I feel that's shitty like but I think that's how they would have dealt with that probably they're all a bunch of bullies like Oh, and Scott Hall as well. He doesn't go into it here, but I saw some shoot interviews where Bob goes off on Scott yeah. Hall. He fucking despises really? Scott Hall. Yeah. Wow. It was like, I think, they, you know when they do a you shoot, they ask some really fucking tasteless naff questions. It was something like, who would you murder? If you could murder three wrestlers in the wrestling industry, who would it be? And he was literally like, Scott Hall, Scott Hall, Scott Hall. Like, Which of these three women are most ugly and then you'd have sex with and then be like, eh? you're so ugly and then get sick on them yeah those kind of caliber questions and would you eat the sick afterwards and then it's like but don't worry now we've got something more lighthearted. let's watch a youtube video of like a fat man in a mask going bob holly i've got a gimmick and a question for you it's okay because sean oliver will make a little face though when he does this so it's not offensive he's not guilty he's not guilty (laughs) didn't you see the face yeah he made that's disapproving that is doing a face at the camera his face is shrugging don't you see what he's doing with his eyes so apparently the way the money worked is they were all given advances every week to help cover the cost of fuel and eating, etc. You get special McMahon money. It's better than real money. Oh, pal. no. <laughs> but actual paychecks were very slow to arrive. So once Bob worked five weeks without actually getting a break and got $50 for his trouble. So Wow, that's WWF. Like. Yeah, so most of your money was basically advances to cover Covering the cost. Travel, yeah. And then eventually when you do get paid, it's a pittance. Well, don't like, worry, though, because once... The- that big uh, royalty check comes in for all the Bob Holly merch and uh, no. you know what I bet they told him when he was coming in there's no way they didn't think this that when he was getting the gimmick originally that the whole thing would be like oh we have a race car toy yeah him. yeah toys maybe an F1 jacket or something that you can buy because your like... Bret Hart was going to be uh, Cowboy Bret Hart was the original plan Cowboy for Bret Hart and one of the main reasons was because they had a thing with the, the, the toy maker that they were going to make like a, a toy horse for it like, it was going to be like <laughs> And you literally had the situation, Brett, in this book is like, he had to go up to the guy and be like, I don't want to be a cowboy. When you have a toy horse, there are two things you can do. You can book Brett Hart to be a cowboy. Or, or get, rid, get of rid of it. Yeah, I guess they went with the latter. Like, So after six months, he talks directly to Vince about his thoughts on Thurman Plug. And basically like, this is embarrassing. I don't like the name. And Vince goes as far as to agree with him. But he says, let's go with Bob. Spark plug Holly, which is an improvement, but not fantastic. 
bit shit still. I think, I think Thurman sounds better, if I'm perfectly honest. He basically says 94 was good because at least he was on the right ladder now, career-wise, but it was generally underwhelming and he needed to get opportunities fast. In the build to the Rumble 1995, he gets put in a tag team with the 1-2-3 kit and they go all the way to the finals in the vacant tag title tournament at the Rumble itself. This is going to seem like a really heartless thing to say. It's not as if Bob rose massively above that level. Oh, no, and he's... Is he aware of that? Very, very aware, and okay. even bitter to an extent. Don't right. worry, he will address that. Like like I say, he's very even-handed in the book, and for most things, he's got a sense of the big picture. Because I would look at points in his career, particularly like maybe like a... You know, 98 or even like you know, early 98 or 97 or even like 2003 or 2002 kind of time where I'd say his stock was lower then than it was in 1994 because at least then he was Damn. a fresh guy with a new gimmick. Yeah. I was just wondering if he views it that way himself. He knows how far he went in his career. Right, okay. He's very aware of how big his trajectory was. Right, like. okay, okay. Hardcore Truth Part 3, Flying High. So what, is he talking about uh, being on an airplane or being on a Rob Van Dam weed? Airplane, you're right. Okay. Apparently, this is one of the other old wrestling customs, is that with WWF, you do a lot of flying, obviously. Mm. And with all that flying, it happens quite a lot where someone's seat will get upgraded for free, just because, you know, there's free seats going on a plane, yeah, yeah, so yeah. you get the free upgrade. And apparently, it's one of these weird customs where you absolutely must offer that free upgrade to all the veterans on the roster first. I have never heard that. I buy it, though. This sounds exactly like something that would happen it's in wrestling. It's such fucking bollocks. Which is why it sounds like it would have happened. It's so funny, because like Foley talks about it in his book, like literally, he only started getting first class, because he got... He got he got it once after he won the championship, and then he kind of like asks, like, "So my first class then?" And they go, "Yeah," and then he just got them from then on, and he yeah. ne- he never got it before then. And Foley was everything in terms of a veteran up until 1999, like. And he didn't get off for no fucking free plane tickets. Is I don't it, know. Let me guess, is it like veterans like fucking JBL and The Undertaker and fucking Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart? No, no, well, he doesn't actually name names, but I'm pretty sure he does mean the actual veterans, like the people that have got Vince's ear. Not not in a bad way like the click, but the folks that have been around for quite a while. Like Who probably are going to get first class fucking anyway. Most likely, yeah. But I don't know, that seems to me like another realistic wrestling bit of bullshit yeah. where it's some shitty carny thing that we all have to live by but never question it for any reason and what if you don't offer it up then you're a fucking pariah you're a piece of shit like yeah you're disrespectful you don't respect the business you should never have been broken in this business etc inexplicably have to buy the Undertaker a craft beer or some shit like that's how the business works Kevin we wouldn't understand (laughs) it we're on the outside like so he says I would offer my upgrade to the big guys if I had the chance Bam Bam Bigelow for example when I first came in I made sure to offer him my seat if I got an upgrade he was a large guy and he wasn't going to be comfortable in coach. It's kind of ironic that I got him out of coach because he ended up throwing me under the bus. Oh, God. Ends that there. Oh, that's <laughs> the end of that. Well, until chapter 12, the man with the flame tattoo. We get a chapter about Bam Bam here. Sorry, this is amazing. I didn't think that when we get into the hardcore truth, it would be like, oh, all the people he has heat with and many, many more many besides. Many more than you knew about, Kevin, yeah. So on the night of the Royal Rumble which is the one where 1-2-3-Kid and Bob Holly are in the finals for this oh, tag the, the team tag tournament. The tag title tournament, yeah, yeah. 
Patterson tells Sean and Bob that Bam Bam is doing some post-match shenanigans that are going to be setting up for his WrestleMania match against football superstar Lawrence Taylor. Ah, yes, the great WrestleMania 11 uh, main event, which was terrible. So because of that, and they want to do this post-match shenanigans, they're going to make Bob and 123Kid win the belts. Yeah! Which is a good thing. Oh yeah, I forgot that's the first title he won, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. We went on right before the Rumble match itself, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good match, and I put in a good performance. It was a nice feeling to hold that tag title belt in the air. I thought to myself, I could get used to this. They had us lose the title the very next night. Oh, serious transition. Like, yeah. I knew it was short, I didn't realize it was that short. The next night, they drop it to the smoking guns. Here's the question I wanted to know. Um, does he have any, like, kind of, if he was obviously in a tournament with him, did he have any thoughts on X-Pac as a tag partner? Like, being X-Pac is technically in the click, but X-Pac is obviously... Xbox is the member of the clique that people seem to have less least amount of problems with because he was such a good worker and so willing to work with people. I've heard him say that in shoot interviews, but looking over it here, he doesn't really talk much about what it's like to tag with Kid because, to be honest, yeah. they, they were, weren't a tag team. They were put together yeah, for that yeah, tournament yeah. and that was it. Oh, like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him say in shoots before now that they worked well together mm. and... Apparently, X Park went to bat for him, like because during this match they wanted to give X Park the pin, and he said to the management, "Why can't we get, let Bob have the pin and give him a win for once?" Jeez, what a fucking like shit like that. It's like even when X Park was you know at his inverted commas worst, worst or whatever, he seems to be like just has that selfless mindset all the time. Which he understood he, the business, I yeah. think. Yeah, and yeah, it always seems to be that when it comes to conversations about the click, he's always the one that gets off lightest because he seems to have been the least scummy. He's kind of like the Richard Hammond of the click, I guess. Like, he's always just the one that's in the background going, <laughs> he never actually got his hands dirty himself too much. Yeah. Apart but... from shitting in bags, allegedly. <laughs> During when they lose the belts back to the, uh, the smoking guns, Bob gets his first ever wrestling concussion, and he writes a pretty scary description of what it's like. And He's one of those guys that I think, because Bob always had a, like, had a good look and a good physique, and I've always wondered, what do you think about this, um, wrestlers who have that good look and good physique tends to, very often then people don't r- r- kind of correlate that with oh they'll get a lot of headshots and a lot of trauma so that the people think oh like a Mick Foley a Terry Funk a Tommy yeah. Dreamer you know a Sandman the kind of the more hardcore style wrestlers and whatnot. but I don't think people kind of go oh god if the concussions that Bob Holly or Al Snow had or Crash yeah. Holly had despite the fact that those guys were in that hardcore division mm-hmm. but maybe they had better bodies or better looks so people kind of go oh they probably didn't get concussed you don't think of Bob Holly being concussed he doesn't look like a broken down piece of meat like Mick no. Foley does so you assume oh he's the picture of health I guess like but-, but he probably got quite a few in his time I imagine and he talks about this first one and it's scary like wandering around backstage in that state being confused oh, apparently Jesus. back then they had no doctors or medical staff backstage Whoa! so his choice was because they were taping tapings in a row together his choice was you can go to the hospital and miss the rest of the tapings and potentially not get paid for him or you can just get on with it and so I assume he got on with he this. chose to get on with it and he Jesus. says he doesn't remember any of the rest of those tapings you know what that's the story you hear all the time from like you know an ECW type of thing except it would be one of those like kind of it wouldn't be the case that that comes from the office. It's just that's the ethos amongst the yes, boys, whatever. Yes, that's the agreement. Yeah, but the fact that that's in a fucking multi-million dollar company at that WWF. time. WWF. WWF. In the early 90s. Yeah. Like, this isn't that old school. This like, is literally as the federal government were breathing down their neck as yeah. well. You think that they're looking after their guys a little bit fucking better. Give them a fucking... Give him his money and let him go to the fucking hospital. Disgusting. Oh my god. As part of the run-up to WrestleMania, Bob gets put in a program with Bam Bam, designed to give Bigelow some momentum leading up to his big Mania match. 
Bob prides himself on never refusing to do a job, ever, and says he was fine with every encounter, but out of nowhere, Bam Bam started telling people that Bob was bitching about not wanting to do the job, and seemingly for no reason, Bam Bam was just stirring shit up, he says. He confronts him about it, and Bam Bam apologises and says it was all a big misunderstanding, but Bob still thinks it was a chicken shit move and said it was his first lesson in the industry of learning not to trust anybody. Like, Oh, that's really sad. And this is a really common thing, again, I've heard in most interviews with Bob. He never went out socialising or partying with the guys. Yeah. He was always very much the guy that would be sat in the locker room, like, tying up his boots or whatever. He'd speak if he was spoken to, but he would keep Sturm and mind his own business for he most of the time. He used to ride with Foley a lot of the time, and Foley was like, said that if Bob had his way, they'd sit in silence for the whole car journey. It'd be like him, Al, and Mick Foley would ride together. Mm. And so the only time Foley ever got anything out of him was when he paid like a Nat King Hole's uh, Best of Christmas. And it was talk, Elvis. They talk about really? that Really? Oh my God. But it's just interesting because like, he, he calls them Bob, no fun of the fair Holly. Like, yeah. He's like, literally like a sourpuss. But that's sad because... I always assumed that it was because he's like a Steve Blackman, like takes everything so fucking seriously, doesn't want to, you know, let his hair down or whatever because he's got no hair. I didn't realise it was a, I don't trust these people. Uh, yeah, it was more to survive in this industry, I'm going to have to not trust anyone and not make friends, basically. And he does, he does yeah. make friends and he talks yeah. highly of people, but he was never one to get really into the fraternity aspect of wrestling. And his, I think his default setting is if he meets a wrestler, is to. Don't re- trust, don't you. trust you. Yeah, yeah you've yeah. got to earn the trust. He ends the chapter by saying, in defense of Bam Bam, it was a shitty thing to do to have to go to WrestleMania and lose to a non-wrestler. So he understood his bitterness as well. Like, I mean, that's it. So you saying that Bam Bam was bitter about it? Yes, because he was going to have to fight a footballer at WrestleMania and lose to him. See, I'd always heard the story that Bam Bam was happy with doing it because he got to be the main event of WrestleMania. And it yeah. was the highest profile thing he ever did for WWF. And some could argue the highest profile thing he ever did on a national stage um, and got most mainstream exposure. But, yeah, interesting. Chapter 13, Treading Water. He talks a bit more about the toxicity of the clique and he goes on about how fucked up Sean was at the time and how easy it was for the clique as a whole to just shut down the careers of people they didn't like. People like Shane Douglas and Sid. Mm. He said that, again, he just kept his mouth shut and did his job. Even though he saw this shit that was driving him mad and bothering him, everyone was apparently so job scared and he knew that you know, speaking out against it could easily cost him his job, so he just got on with it. You think he'd align himself with the BSK, like? Oh, you know? he, t- he mentions the BSK on a number of occasions. Really? As a sort of a, like, they were a group of guys that were huddled together, and because Undertaker had so much sway, that would often rub off on the other guys. But he never mentions them abusing their powers. That's more just like... You can't really abuse your powers as the preeminent domino players in, <laughs> in the WWF, like... Vince, if you don't give Charles a match this week, I'm not playing bowls with you <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> it's like Bob Holly's just there trying to play some dominoes on his own. And <laughs> what are you doing, Bob? Nothing, just playing some dominoes. Oh, really? And start kicking off, like, We're the Bone Street crew. Get out of our locker room, so now we're in 1995, and he's talking about how WCW is starting to heat up, and they're mm. you know looking at poaching guys. He says that one day he was sat on a plane with Lex Luger for hours, like they were sat next to each other, and they talked for hours, and they got on really well. Luger says to him, like, oh, he's always looking for someone to work out with, and Bob seems like a cool guy, so here's my number, we should work out together. Literally the next night, Luger shows up on Nitro. <laughs> Bob calls him a traitor. I mean, I think it's the Luger thing is it's it's like a pretty damn scummy move. Yes, like, yes, it really is. Because I think I can explain away a lot of the other times where like people have been poached and whatnot. Like even the Hogan and, and Savage, I don't blame them at all for the way it was approached. 
But I think Luger, I don't think he, he would have gotten the same deal. He could have probably gotten a lot of the same thing had he not done it in that way that he did, just showing up. Like. Luger was a guy that was given a lot by Vince. He got like, a fucking bus! Yeah, Vince gave Luger a lot of opportunities and a lot of money, and that was pretty shitty. Apparently, Double J was also leaving for WCW at the time and had promised that he was going to take Road Dog with him. When they got to Atlanta, they only wanted Jarrett, so apparently he just ditched Road Dog and left him without a job. Oh, that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Triple H gets brought in as well around this time, and Bob gets used to put him over. He says how, despite whatever he may think of Triple H the man, again, teasing what we'll get into later, he is a great wrestler. And the problem is, Bob could tell the company were already starting to see him as a good talent that was used for people that were coming in. So yeah. he could already tell that he was at risk of getting pigeonholed as a, a mechanic and someone to be used to enhance other guys. I mean, I gotta think that's what they told him he was gonna be when he was coming in. Well, I don't know, because I don't think they could tell any wrestler that, really, unless you're someone that's really very yeah, blatantly like so. Gilberg or whatever. Yeah, it's like, yeah. really, you're going to hire me? Or like James Ellsworth, I'm sure they told him he was going to be a jobber. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he, he puts it very well here when he says, Jerry Briscoe even said to me, we need guys like you who can wrestle to get over the guys who can't wrestle. That seemed fucked up to me. Why not just push the guys who could actually wrestle? I knew what I was doing and I didn't screw up spots, but I felt like I was getting penalised for being good at my job. Which is a really fucking rational way of putting it. Like, it the is... better you are at your job, the worse your positioning is almost. But I think what he's missing the point of there, though, is is it not true that the actual ability to wrestle in the ring is but one of many parts That's to being true. good at it's that just job. one facet. Yeah, you're very right. And, I mean, does he talk about how he views himself on promos, on the mic? Like, does he think at this point that he's good? Because I've seen some spark plug shit from around this time and it's cringy as fuck. All he says is that he didn't believe in the character enough right. to sort of give a, a believable performance because it wasn't him. Very much like with Rocky Maivia and The Rock. Like, And he said that he was talking with Vince. Was he pitching other characters or other ideas? I mean, oh like... yeah, he, he will later mention about how the company is very quick to say, you make your own push, you know, it's up to you how yeah. far you get pushed, and you can pitch them ideas to the end of the earth and, you know, you won't get what you want, and even if something good does happen for you, and he actually later on cites Zack Ryder as a perfect example of how yeah. you can get yourself over, and if the office doesn't want it, they won't let it happen, mm. like... And I think that's very much how he felt about his role in the company. And that's why Bob Holly celebrates Rusev Day along with the rest of us. (laughs) He keeps sliding further down the card and he notices that it's happening more and more. He's getting used to enhance like lower and lower guys. Yeah, it seems to go think about Mankind's first appearance, if I recall now, was beating Sparkplug Holly. Not surprising. So as you say, he decides to pitch some ideas to Vince. About a year or so after he came into the WWF, he feels comfortable enough there now to give Vince his ideas. And he presents him with the idea of WWF sponsoring him as a racer to take part in pro races and to try and get some exposure with a racing demographic. That's a really smart idea. And actually, one that they did later on, I remember seeing on SmackDown, some of the stuff in the crawl will be coming up where they definitely had sponsored cars. I know WCW had an NWO car, NASCAR. That explains why there's so many WWF magazines with the checkbook advertisements. <laughs> yeah, there's loads, up, there's yeah. loads of adverts for like, get your own WWF checkbooks. And so many of them are like Stone Cold with a race car and a driver or the yeah. rock and a race car. That, that's what that is then. Yeah. But Vince buys the idea and he immediately buys into it and says, yep, go for it. 
how would you act if this was say like a big company sponsoring you and bob's like you know explains and vince says well just act the same way with us then forget that i'm actually your boss you go out there and be a racer and just pretend that wwf is a big company sponsoring you the racer and he basically gives him an unlimited budget and says go off buy what you need to buy you sort it out you're the expert not me and even so, Bob is very respectful and is very careful with the money and, you know, spends it very well. Wow, I can't believe he actually did this. Mm-hmm. And so Vince buys him a load of cars and lets him go wild, basically. Bob is super appreciative and spends the money carefully. And he works a pretty busy schedule for a while where he is traveling with the WWF, but also then flying out to do races with his WWF car when he gets the chance to. That's, sorry, this is so funny. We started this anecdote. I thought it was but they didn't see the big picture and they didn't do no, it. No, they and went all in on that's- him. They, and this is after him being jobbed out a lot and stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Vince, well, you know, Vince, you know, he likes calculated risks and he saw the idea of, you know, there's surely some crossover between NASCAR and wrestling. Yeah. So let's try and work that a little bit. That's really interesting. That's so cool. So Bob's enjoying this. He's loving the fact that, yeah, wrestling's not going so great now, but Vince McMahon is literally writing the checks for him to go and have a racing career at the same time. It's It's the best of both worlds. Right before there's a really big race on a track that Bob is dead excited to finally get to race on, he gets a call saying they're going to cancel the race car idea because they've lost way too much money in the steroid trials and they can't afford to keep bankrolling it. Oh my god, that is heartbreaking. So wait, he never actually got to to race? He did races, he did plenty of races, but it was like when he got told they were cancelling it is right before a really big one that he was super excited for right so he never got to kind of the high profile stuff no it really sucked the wind out of his sails he was devastated obviously surely they'd realise though that the amount of money they've already put into it they might as well keep it going to actually get the benefit of him doing some more high profile stuff to actually get the exposure and the ad the ad advertising basically of what that's what the whole was for I don't know how it works I'm assuming there must be a lot of entry fees involved Uh, in racing and stuff but you know when it comes to the upfront investment Vince is I've heard this in quite a lot of instances where he's okay with writing off an investment that Mm. didn't work out it's not like he needs to recoup his losses he's just like well it didn't work it didn't work I'll do but, it again in 20 years. <laughs> Bob. Na- NASCAR 2020. Like. <laughs> 2014, he's picking up the phone. Bob, let's do it. <laughs> Bob panics straight away because he's thinking like, oh, well, not only has this gone crap, but I've lost Vince a load of money. And he's like, Vince, I don't want you to worry. I'm going to sell all the equipment for you and I'll get back every penny that you've invested in this. And Vince is like, absolutely not. Don't you worry about it. I've already, I've decided what I'm going to do with the equipment. I'm going to sell it to you, Bob. I'll take it out of your paycheck. And Bob's like, well, I appreciate that, but this is like 300 grand's worth of racing equipment. You can do that, but I won't be able to live anymore. I'd have to quit. And Vince is like, well, no, 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 let me say, I'm, I'm going to take it out of your paycheck. I want to sell you all of this gear for $100 and I'll take it out of your check. What? And Bob's like, really? Are you, are you absolutely certain? And Vince is like, yeah, absolutely. I'll take $100 from you. We'll say no more about it. I've already got my guys writing up some paperwork for you. And all of it will be yours. You do whatever you want with it. And he does. And apparently he doesn't even take the $100 out of his paycheck. That money never left Bob's account. Bob gets given all of this racing stuff that he's invested in. Like 300 grand's worth of racing gear for free. And he does it as a hobby when he gets the chance. And apparently many, many years later, he does end up selling all of this equipment when he's done with racing. Yeah. And he goes back to Vince and he says, here's all the money from that race car stuff. And Vince is like, absolutely not. That's yours. I you cannot believe that. That is absolutely unbelievable yeah um, i am i'm honestly i am so shocked by that i know i have spent hundreds of hours it feels like in the last month or so because on how to wrestling we did our episode of vince mcmahon recently yeah and i you know i fucking 
I I literally burnt myself out of Vince McMahon trying to find out as much as I can about the different parts of him. And I was trying a lot to find instances of charitableness yep. and generosity. And there's a few here and there, but I, the one thing I was thinking at the end of it of doing the episode, I was like, I don't know if I represented that side of him. But then I was like, I don't think I have enough information. evidence or in, yeah. information of it. And there it is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a big one. That's a really generous thing. Like, And he uh, says, yeah. he, he cites that as one of the big reasons he was so loyal to Vince for such a long time. Honestly, I couldn't imagine him saying a shitty word against him ever Like after that. That is one of the most generous things I've ever heard Vince ever doing. And mm. not just because of the nicety of the dollar figure and the money of him giving him that. It's the fact that... Who it is. Who it is, where he is on the card. Yep. The fact as well that it's like it's a business risk. It's yeah. it's like it's not as if it was a gentleman's agreement. It was literally, right, we're doing this as a business. Treat me as a business and a sponsor. Yep. And then he goes back on it and it's actually, no, I'm your old pal fucking Vince McMahon. Like, and he had people, obviously... It wasn't Vince's call to do that because obviously it was the money people in the company who were like, we lost money because of the steroid scandal. Yes. And even still... Vince was like, we'll write it off as a loss. That you, you keep is... It. I can't believe that. I it's amazing, isn't it? I can't believe that. They talk about it on that X-Pac podcast and he brings up how when he was going through rehab and everything, he was like, oh, this is going to be shit because I'm going to have to stop working. But Vince carried on paying him a full-time wage the whole time. Like, but like rehab, I can... That's the only time you hear about Vince's yeah. generosity is when he puts guys through rehab. Like Regal and whatnot. You yeah, hear about exactly. Him where he's like, he hired him. He's like, I'll pay you for the year, but you go to rehab. But I always could view that because at the end of the day, it's like he's investing in a performer. A talent. And a talent that he knows. And with the case of you know, Regal and Xbox, he totally got the money back on that investment. This is literally turning to essentially a jobber on the roster and being, here's like two houses worth of money. Yeah. Here's a third of a million dollars worth of racing equipment because I know you like racing and you had the balls to give me this idea. Even though it didn't work out, you at least came up with it. But it shows as well, though, that Bob is passionate about that because if I was in Bob's position, you know, I would have been like, yeah, I'm going to sell all this straight, straight away. Straight away. My house, like. Straight down CEX with that shit, mate. <laughs> immediately. But like that, yeah, that's incredible. That it's is absolutely amazing. Very nice story. So the way you started that, I was so expecting the heart crushing, like, and I'm still bitter about it to this yeah, day. Yeah. I'll never tell you about Vince McMahon, like. No, no, quite the opposite. An right. actual touching story. Chapter 14, The Click Takes Over. We haven't already taken over I before, thought they were I guess. Kind of, yeah, had their hands on things a little bit. So, at this point in time, the company is transitioning away from Nash as champion, who <laughs> Holly is very quick to point out was costing them money as champion. So, I love the idea, like, you know, that nothing symbolises the Kevin Nash championship reign quite like ham sandwiches and catering. It's yeah. Like, it's like, you know, Austin's there, we got loads of fucking nice food, you know, you get what you want, as a buffet. Kevin Nash is champion, ham sandwiches. And you still get people trying to say that Roman Reigns is the Kevin Nash of today's product when they're having the most profitable year on record. You like, know what I will say to those people? Go back and watch 1995. You won't want to. <laughs> do that. You, you do that and then fucking come back and moan about Roman Reigns and today. Jesus fucking Christ. So they're moving more towards Shawn Michaels being champion and the whole locker room is still job scared because of the fucking stranglehold that Nash and Shawn have over everything. Like He talks about how big reason why he never got on with the click is because he would never go out drinking and clubbing and that was essentially all they were about. Ah, but... You could easily point to Triple H in that group, the teetotaler, who's never drunk 
in his life, never done any drugs, yada, yada, yada. Well, Triple H has literally just arrived here because Triple H arrives and Bob says that he went straight to sucking up to the click. He says Triple H was a very clever man and he knew that to get far in the WWF, he would have to go straight to the click and make it work with them. So he was carrying their bags, he was sucking up to them, and he says that Hunter is a very charming and friendly man who will suck you in with his charms. Maybe it's because I don't have this ability of foresight, but like... When people come after Triple H with that, and I get that, I, honestly I do, and there's a lot of reasons to be bitter about Triple H. But as if he is this fucking master, like people come out like he has this master plan. Like he was, he came in as Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and he was yeah. like, I'm going to, basically I'm going to get in with the click, and then once I've done that, I'm going to get in with the boss's door. Yeah, like, and then I'm going to build NXT, and then I'm going to do this. Like, it's, Where the ultra is Triple H, who... Is fucking obsessed with wrestling. Mm -hmm. Like that, that he's he is a student of the game, to use that overused phrase. Fucking obsessed with wrestling. Comes into a company, seeks out the people that he views to be similarly minded. And the top dogs. Like if you're obsessed with wrestling and you're ambitious, you probably are gonna go to the top dogs. Like But it's like it's there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. It's just that when people come out with Triple H, it's like he's ambitious but also had his shady evil plan. He, did he? Really? Mm. You know, or did he just do what ambitious people do who want to be successful? Surround themselves by successful people and surround themselves with people who we could learn from. Yeah. And then you he know? stumbled into being evil later on. Yeah, like, I mean... He, he did become a massive dick. Absolutely. Like, we're not excusing that. He did abuse his power in the locker room just like the click did. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it was necessarily like this huge scheme of giving him too climbing much credit, to the top I of the think. industry. Yeah, like, like I think you're giving him way too much credit. Bob puts over the fact that he never got that far in the industry because he doesn't believe in sucking up to absolutely anyone regardless of who they are. And he says that's probably why he never really made it out of the mid-card. What about Stone Cold Steve Austin? Did he suck up to people, you know? Exception to the rule. You know, I, it's, I just think this like, kind of suck up, ambitious, non-ambitious, I think it's, it's not as black and white as that. It's so much more complex that goes into being a top guy because some of the most guarded fucking... KG people in the history of this, you know, Goldberg, Steve Austin, the two names, and they're the two most KG fucking loners I can think mm. of, and they're two of the most successful men in their respective companies. Well, it can't all be sucking up because he even, as much as he buries Sean for being a dick during the click, he always says that as much as I hated his guts, he, he, was, suck up, he yeah. was the best wrestler in the company, and the reason why he was in the top dog position is because he was the res best wrestler in the company. He even goes on to say that one of the reasons Bret Hart is such a bitter piece of shit. It is because he could never swallow the fact that Sean is and always was a better wrestler than mm. him. Bob puts over Sean the wrestler huge in this. Yeah. So I guess you could say that about Stone Cold as well. It's either you become such an undeniably great wrestler that you make it to the top, or you yeah. suck your way up there. Like, mm. and he, I, don't know. Mm. I guess by that standard as well, he's admitting that he wasn't one of the best wrestlers imaginable. Like, he wasn't, yeah, or didn't suck up enough. So do you think that Bob thinks that if he sucked up enough, that he could have been yes, the top guy? That's what he's getting at. Is he could have gone further, but if it wasn't for his damn pride, like, oh damn that pride. Yeah, it's weird how, like, your excuse for not going further in your career also manages to put you over as a person of integrity. <laughs> like. But I was too brave. <laughs> he said all of the click were cowards. Apparently one of the Harris twins one night went backstage into Sean's locker room, put a chair under the door handle so that he was locked in and beat the shit out of him, and X-Pac stood there and watched the whole thing, didn't do anything. Apparently. Well, I mean, if two Nazis were beating me up, I don't know if you would do anything, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, mate. Probably not. 
Chapter 15, the beginning of the war. Hall and Nash leave for WCW because they are disloyal cowards. The furthest thing from a man. The curtain call was stupid as fuck in Bob's opinion and Triple H's punishment was nowhere near enough. He said he didn't job to the right people on the card. Like He wasn't jobbing to real fucking low talent. He was jobbing to like guys that you would expect to job to. Yeah. And it was only like a few months until he won the IC belt again. So he felt like it wasn't a punishment at all. And he thought the whole fucking thing was stupid. I mean, like... The curtain call is so... I mean... It's it's dumb. I think it's stupid how angry people get about it, but I do think the curtain call itself is also a very stupid idea. I think it's it's both, but I, I just always try to imagine things like this that like are held loftily up as like the things that have upset wrestlers and wrestling fans. And then I think about like when I eventually bring it up on How To Wrestling, how Joe will react. And I think that she and a lot of new fans, almost all new fans, would look at the curtain call and be like, what is the big fucking yeah, deal? Yeah, why is this a problem? Why was this an obligatory chapter, an obligatory fucking segment in every fucking DVD yeah. documentary? It's like four lads having a hug on a non-televised fucking show. Yep. Big fucking deal. Move like, past it. Like, big deal on both fronts. Big deal to get upset about it. Big deal to fucking do it. No one gives a shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> got fucking friends of our own to worry that's, about. That's why I feel it's so stupid, because it was so fucking self-indulgent. Like, you're talking about a pre-internet era where no one even knew what the fucking click gesture meant, and you've got four random guys on the roster that you don't know their mates, and they're all hugging and doing their shitty little gesture because they're bros. Like, I just think it's self-indulgent. Yeah. Like, no, it's, a, it's almost as self-indulgent as the response to it yeah pretty much <laughs> so the war starts heating up between the two companies occasionally the boys all watch Nitro together backstage just to keep an eye on the competition oh that's so cool yeah I, I love that like, yeah. watching the other side from backstage well like, like, JR he said he was busy on Mondays the other guys are just kicking around like you know Apparently, if anyone was found to be socialising with anyone remotely related to WCW, they were threatened to be fired immediately, no questions asked. And Bob was saying a lot of people on the roster had mates that had gone to WCW, or mates from the indies who were now in WCW, and they were not allowed to fraternise with them in what, any way. That, as in, this is a thing from The Office, or it was, kind it was, of it was a, the boys? It was a memo from management. It was something the boys were all pissed off about, because everyone had mates that were in WCW. But That's it, it was fed down from the top, no interaction with them at all. And of course, apparently, Sean and Triple H got to bend the rules as much as they wanted to because they had mates that had just literally gone to WCW. I swear I've heard stories about, like, you know, wrestlers meeting WCW guys in, like, you know, in the airport and stuff, and it would be, like, really nice and social. Yeah, there's photos out there, isn't there, yeah. of them at an airport together, like, people bumping into folks. Like, I, I get the feeling maybe that memo was sent out, but I don't think they ever were going to no. follow up on that threat. You're fired for talking to your friends. <laughs> This is around the time that HBK is spiralling really badly into addiction as well. Apparently, in an attempt to straighten him out a bit, they saddled him with Timmy White for a little while. They got him to travel with Sean. That's so bad. Timmy White was the fucking Andre the Giant's handler. Yeah. yeah that's how he was originally brought in. <laughs> Literally to have him to handle Shawn Michaels. Eh? Apparently, he nearly quit because of it. Timmy White did. Uh, he said it was the lowest period of his career. It was absolute hell having to travel with Sean. They did that with... Um... What should we call it with uh, Ric Flair as well? Mm. Uh, they sent Heenan on the road with him in the first case to try and calm him down, and they put Earl Hebner with him. Yeah. And Earl Hebner said, like, literally, Earl Hebner, I remember him saying about it, is that, like, he felt that he began spiraling because, like, Flair oh, would take him Oh, Jesus. Yeah, they, they, like, Flair's like, let's go get some prostitutes. And Earl was like, okay, yeah, all right. Oh, and, God. A little coke, it's all right. Oh. Just a little bit. 
poison, man. So, yeah, I don't know why Vince thought for so long that referees are going to keep people in line. Because they, they maintain the law, Kevin. They just, uphold the rules. Just because like. fucking Tim White can find a big seat for Andre the Giant to sit down in doesn't mean he can stop the spiraling addictions of Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair. While all of this is going on as well, Bob finds himself being utilised less and less. He says, in 1994, I had over 200 matches. In 95, I had somewhere around 150. By 96, they have me working less than 100 matches. And in 97, I only had 50 matches. Wow! He says the only reason he was getting any matches at all towards the end there is because Psycho Sid was the only one going to bat for him. Apparently, they used to travel together quite a bit, Sid and Bob. And Mm. Sid always apparently said to him, Bob, you keep me sane. Like, you help level me out when I'm traveling on the road and (laughs) stuff. Anything more intense than driving me the wrong way. Bob, you keep me sane. So don't you do anything, anything in my nightmares. Because if you do... Jesus, in a car with that. But yeah, apparently once Sid leaves again to go to WCW, Bob finds himself being sat at home for much of the, the Monday Night War. 50 matches. I can't believe that because like... Bob Holly is a guy who I'd always be like, yeah, he was always around. Like, any year you could pick and pick a show and Bob's always fucking there. And, like, 50 matches. I mean, you only get paid per... Are you getting paid per match, I guess, this is the time when you, before you had real big downside guarantees. Yeah, so he's that's just getting right. less money that way. Yeah, just making less money. And he said that eventually he went back to his welding job and started making... Much, much better money there. In 1997. No, this isn't 97, sorry. That was him jumping ahead again here. This would be when Sid left. So this would be, what, 96? Yeah, maybe late 96. 95? Yeah, 96, because Sid would have uh, wrestled at WrestleMania 13. Yeah, so this is around 96, let's say. Sorry, that's just ridiculous, because that is when, you know, the, the war is kicking off. You know, yep. 96 when Nitro and Raw, and that's when everyone's pay packets were going up, and Bob Holly goes to become a fucking welder again. That yep. is crazy. Yeah, right after... Like, you think once you arrive, you arrive, that's it. But no, he's, he's actually better off welding at this point. You know, this reminds me of, you know, like in TNA, when, like, the the knockouts, uh, their women's division were getting the highest rated segments, and their women's champion was, like, working in a bar. Oh, for fuck's sake. Or, or, or the other women's champion was working in, like, a sunglasses hut down the road, like, because they weren't making enough money. And it's just like, you had to supplement it. And it's, it's so weird to think when you're wrestler with a big company that's on Mm -hmm. national TV and you have to have a fucking top-up job. Yeah, not even a top-up job. This is him full-time welding back then because he was sat at home. They weren't using him anymore. So they wouldn't even travel. Like, what it used to be was he would get less and less matches and then Sid said to the office, I fucking need Bob to keep me sane on the road. Let me have him travel with me. Give Bob some matches for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. Then once Sid had cleared off, that was it. He was just sitting at home. So he got a full-time job welding again. He was making really good money. Starts racing on the weekend because obviously he's got these nice cars from Vince. Oh, yeah. Got all the fucking time in the world. Can you think even from like Vince's standpoint of I've given this lad a load of cars. Let's fucking use them. It's senseless, isn't it? Yeah. Eventually, Bruce Pritchard calls him up and says, we want you back full-time. And Bob very wisely says... I'd love to wrestle, but I'm making better money on this welding gig at the minute. You have to at least match this salary guaranteed for me to consider coming back. And so Bruce calls him back and they agree to it. They say, yeah, fine, we'll give you the money we want. Just please, you know, come up to Connecticut. We'll get you back in ring shape again. I had no idea that his career, like, not to say spiral, but I had no idea at that that he had reached those low points so quickly as well. Like while still in the company and never being out of contract with the company, yeah, that is so shocking. Still I on can't the books. Believe. 
Hardcore Truth Part 4, Making Money. This is where he talks about the hypocrisy of WWF only pushing guys that they want to push mm. and he will keep people down, like such as Zack Ryder. Chapter 16, Montreal. Bob was being taken to shows but was basically not getting used, so he was given a full-time job again with the money that matched his current salary. But now all he was doing was basically travelling and staying backstage as a backup body just in case something went wrong and they needed someone on hand. Fun. Yeah, I know, what a great job. He said it sucked and it was fucking depressing, but he did get to spend a lot of time backstage, which meant he did see some interesting shit. Such as when Brett and Sean's beef was becoming more and more personal and public, you know, around the, the time of the Sunny Days comments. Ah, yes. Bob said he never saw Brett and Sonny interacting with each other, but he did walk in on Sean and Sonny in the shower together at one point. Like, what? Yep. Yeah. And he also was backstage during the Montreal screw job and saw the whole atmosphere and everything that went down back there. There's nothing really new or insightful that he brings to the story, mm. what you've already heard. Like, right, yeah. What, did he of, see like the fight afterwards, did he? Or? Yeah, he saw the atmosphere as like... Everyone went quiet when Brett finally came back and the shock from the locker room because everyone was watching it happen on TV together. So let me guess, has Bob Holly got a hot take on, on the on the Montreal Screwjob? Who's as far away from a man as possible? Well, basically his take, this is great because he's angry at Brett, but he's angry at Brett for two different reasons. His take is that Brett was pissing on the business by refusing to do the job on the way out. Like he said... Mm doesn't matter who you are or who you're yeah. being asked a job to, you do the fucking job. And I get the feeling that if Bob was asked a job to Jeff Jarrett, who he clearly fucking hates, on his way out, he would do that, even though he yeah, resents yeah. the guy. And that's his whole argument, is that Vince, doesn't matter what Vince did, if it was right or wrong, he had to do it because Brett was pissing on the business. But then the other thing is, he's also mad at Brett for only giving Vince a black eye. And he's basically saying, if someone had done to me what Vince did to Brett, I would have knocked him the fuck out. He wouldn't have left that room on his feet. Like, so... Okay. Balanced approach to the argument there, I guess. But that, once again, just kind of... takes away the the whole issue of... or the heart of that Montreal thing that everyone seems to always misunderstand, especially the wrestlers, it seems, is that it wasn't about... Oh, he won't lose. You know, he's 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 gonna leave, and he's refusing to lose. It's just he wasn't. He didn't want to lose under those circumstances at that exact time. He offered a variety of alternates. Well, the argument Bob says is that it doesn't matter what alternatives you come up with. Brett would have found ways to weasel out of them. Like if you'd have said, right. "Okay, don't lose to Sean in Montreal. Why don't you lose to this mid carder?" Then Brett would have said, "Oh, but there's no story. There's no build. I'm not doing that." Bob seemed to have it in his head that even though Brett was only saying it was just Sean and it was just Montreal, Brett was whiny enough that he wouldn't have done it to anybody. Hmm. Which I'm less inclined to believe that because yeah. Brett did love wrestling. He, he knew did. the business, like. And as full of himself as he is, I think he would have done the job. Has Bob Holly even watched wrestling with shadows? <laughs> Hardcore Truth Part 5, Shawn Michaels. It's basically <laughs> Such a random fucking... I, I don't get the Hardcore Truth, mate. I don't understand this Do you think gimmick. that's what happened when he tried to write the book himself? <laughs> and he thought they were chapters. It's like, Bob, these are like only a paragraph or two long. And it's, it's money, Shawn Michaels, is it fake? I mean, there's no structure here. You write the damn thing then. This is the bit of the book that everyone does when it comes to Shawn Michaels, where they talk relentlessly about how much of a dick Shawn was how these days Sean is the most wonderful guy you can oh, ever really? hope to meet. Yeah, Bob loves Sean Michaels now. That's interesting because Bob is one of the few people who was on the roster on 
both times. Yeah, you got to see both Sean's. And uh, because I always find even the people who really hate Shawn Michaels now, like the the kind of save Shawn Michaels, is people like RVD or Greg Helms, people who didn't know the original Shawn. How bad he could be. So yeah. I've always wanted to know. Like I think that comparison is very effective because I think Shawn always has his elements of politicking and whatnot that never yeah. went away. But yeah, I think. People who don't like him now, it's like, Rob Van Damme, if you don't like Shawn Michaels in 2000 and fucking do, you sure as shit wouldn't like him in 1996? Yeah, like. legit. <laughs> he wouldn't have got on any better. But yeah, he calls Shawn the best wrestler of all time. He says that they're, they're decent friends now. Like, when he first met Shawn after Shawn got straight and narrow, he went and he spoke to him about all that bullshit with the food tickets, and Shawn was very apologetic. And he's oh, like, really? I've no memory of doing anything like that, but it sounds like me, and I can't apologize enough. They're all completely square, they're great friends, and Bob knows exactly how Sean felt about him. And then he quickly buries Cena at the end of this chapter by saying, and Sean is the best wrestler of all time, and if you want any proof of that, go and watch that one-hour Raw match that he wrestled with John Cena, which is a great match, and you know that's 100% Sean, because Cena can't wrestle worth a damn, and he sure as hell can't lead a match. And he's furthest thing from a man. <laughs> all right. Oh, wow. Cena's really good. This was written in, what, 2013? Like, yeah, recent enough. Recent enough to see that he can at least wrestle. That's like, Yeah, that's like anything past 2011, I think that's when Cena proved that year that he, like, yeah, he can fucking come on lay off a bit now or yeah. like, he's not that bad anymore he's cancer <laughs> <laughs> chapter 17 punching the clock Stone Cold has taken off at this point now and the Attitude Era is sorry are you literally thinking of Bob punching a clock like, it's the idea of like it's like wrestling's on fire like, you know, it's fucking, it's the fucking Monday Night Wars, 1998, Mike Tyson, Stone Cold Steve Austin, fucking punch. Punching the clock. <laughs> like, he's a fucking welder still. I love that. That's where he's at at the minute. That's like so weird. It's the boom period. Everything's going off. Both companies are on fire. Stone Cold Steve Austin has finally taken off now. And Bob's just sat backstage not doing anything. And so there's less gimmicks now and more edgy characters. So Bob's getting excited because he's thinking... Finally, no more fucking... I got rid of the name Thurman Plug, but maybe we can get past Spark Plug Holly now. Move into something a bit more edgy, something a bit more me. And he talks to Vince about this, and he wants to do something new, something serious, but instead he gets put... To the new Midnight Express, baby. Fucking a. Did he say? Did he say he wanted to do something new? He didn't say. He didn't specify what, what it was that, what? he wanted. Just something that he could relate to. Something a bit more him. Something that would get over better. And here's Bart Gunn. <laughs> and the way that he sums this up is so perfect. Their entire management of us consisted of them giving us some videotapes of the original Express and saying, "Be like Dennis and Bobby." Why? That was their entire management, apparently. Jesus Christ. And that's so fucking sad, because, like, Cornette, who managed the original Midnight Express, who, by the way, they were still around, though, the original Midnight Express. You could have booked them if that's what they wanted well, so fucking bad. Apparently they wanted the Rock and Roll Express brought in badly. Um, but, but they, they did! They, they, br- they, they did, they did, but they said the Midnight Express themselves weren't up to working, basically. Like- and what, the Rock and Roll Express weren't? <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> I wouldn't want to see the fucking Midnight Express if that's what the fucking their idea of working was. Jesus! I never forget that we re- it, we reviewed a fucking Rock and Roll Express match. Remember how bad yeah, that was? Yeah, we reviewed an NWA tag team title match on a WWF show. Jesus, it was bad. They it's lucky so we got. Bad. It's lucky we made it as far as we did in the podcast, and that like Billy didn't tap out sooner from the Attitude Era with shit like that going on. You know what? It's really funny because there, that's a whole part of wrestling that I will hold my hands up and say I do not. I've never like watched it at length bits I've seen. 
call me ignorant and Phil Stein, I'd be like, I don't get it. Don't give a fuck. Yeah, it's like I'm the same. Tag meant to be amazing tag team wrestling. Uh, for me, it's maybe because I, I we grew up in an era where tag team wrestling was like different was, style. Yeah. yeah. I, I would like to go back and give it a, a, a proper watch because fucking Cornette literally will have it carved onto his fucking tombstone. Yeah. Midnight Express, Rock Roll Express, man, the greatest tag teams. Oh, okay. It's got to be a reason for it. For me, it seems like four boring dudes yep. rolling around and sometimes a double dropkick is brought out. Um, that's a very hot take. I, I've not <laughs> I've not watched any of it, but I'd love to actually get my teeth into it and really understand why it's so great. Might let you do that on your own there, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally makes it onto the WrestleMania card, which is great, but it's not the moment he dreamed of at all because it's that dream. fucking tag battle royal where he 14, like. didn't get an entrance. like so. Where our analysis in the episode seems to be, there's a lot of people in the ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brawl for all time. Woo! He says that um, apparently no one had any issues with the Brawl for All idea. They thought it was a decent idea. Like, Are you sure, Bob? Well, like, the boys were intrigued in it. Because no, no one was forced into it. And the yeah. only people that took part in it were people that were interested in the idea. And it was good money. So people liked the sound of it. No one had issue with Steve Williams being brought in. Everyone thought that he was okay. But apparently because JR would not stop going on about him everyone grew to resent the fuck out of dr mm. death like people hated him just because jr was being such a fucking big mouth about this guy all the time you know what the more i think about it because the bits i've seen of dr death i've watched a few of his bits when he was in ecw i've watched some of his stuff in japan and i fucking love love dr death so much he's just got that fucking that badass hostile, yeah. like, you know, just a fucking killer, like Brock Lesnar, Braun Strowman combined and made a little bit squatter in 4-3. <laughs> I fucking love him. And he had such a non-go, a non-run in WWE, and the only time you look up or you hear about it, anyone talks about it, it's just JR. Yeah. And there has to be a point where we all sit down and kind of go, so JR pretty much killed Dr. Death's career in yeah. WWF, and he pretty much did. Yeah, he did. I mean, because... It's not a nice thing to say because they're best mates, but he well, did. Well, yeah, but he did turn the boys on him because he wouldn't shut up about how great this Steve Williams guy is. So immediately people will put off him straight away. Because we and talked about it like, in the brawl about all, all this hype and all this talk about Steve Williams. It was coming from JR, like... Yeah, and he was the one that arrogantly thought, well, he's so good, we can put him in a shoot tournament and because he's definitely going to win, we can use that to rocket strap him. Like, Are you telling me that JR got worked and worked himself into a shoot? Apparently, like... <laughs> Apparently, the impression everyone got is that clearly JR hadn't considered for a single second that Steve Williams wasn't winning the Brawl for All. Fucking like, in hell. his mind, it was a done deal. My dad's the biggest dad of all. No one's going to be him. And Bob said as well, apparently, the attitude was that if they'd come up with the Brawl for All idea and said, yeah, we're going to present it like a shoot, but really, we want to work it because we want this guy to win, yeah. everyone would have been cool with that. All the boys would have happily put him over because it would have been clear. Yeah, and also, but, they're kind of used to that being wrestlers. Like. But this bullshit of them wanting Steve. Steve Williams to win and the office very clearly heavily pushing this guy because they all thought that's what people wanted was they convinced themselves that what people wanted was some sort of legitimacy and the boys were offended by that because they felt like they were being lied to by the office and all they wanted then was to see Steve Williams get taken down a peg well luckily for them Bart Gooden was there on a white horse like so Bob was pissed off because apparently he didn't get selected at all for the 16 contenders for Brawl for All and it wasn't until Tiger Ali Singh chickened out later on that Bob got a chance <laughs> oh, yeah. to step in. You know what, actually, I do think, I'm trying to think back a moment where it was, yeah, Bob Holly fucking made a, made a name for himself. And I'm pretty sure it's that brawl for all. It is. It definitely is. And he, he knows it as well. He talks about that. 
Because I think, like, he was, you know, he was bodacious Bob or whatever yeah. the fuck it was. Brilliant Bob. <laughs> Barry Bob. Yeah, I remember the way they talked about him on commentary after that. It was, I mean, not saying the brawl fall was good at all, but if anyone got anything out of it, it was him. Him and Bradshaw, the two guys, yes. I think, who got that kind of legitimate, okay, and I think Godfather as well. He was able to do that goofy gimmick, but have a little bit of that, you know he's a tough motherfucker because he yeah. did that brawl fall and did well in it. So I think those three got the most out of it. Got a bit of a rub from it. I yeah. think Holly more than anyone as well. This really made, this is a turning point for his career now, the Brawl for All. That's so interesting. You never would have thought that the Brawl for All was a turning point for anyone other than Bark Hunt and Steve Williams to turn around and implode. Yeah, I, it's the most <laughs> positive thing anyone's ever said about Brawl for All. Like, we got a great little section here about Steve Blackman's involvement in the Brawl for All as well. Because Steve Blackman didn't participate. No. Or was meant to, we assumed he would, because Blackman... Shamrock and Severn. Oh, the obvious ones. Yeah. Dan, Dan did one round mm-hmm. and then stopped. But <laughs> I have nothing left to prove here in the Brawl for Old tournament. Little did he know how fucking right he was. <laughs> so, Steve Blackman. He was dead serious about hurting people, planning to take people's knees out to win that hundred grand. <sighs> in the meeting where the rules were explained, they told us that it was anything goes. Steve said... So that means that if I want to take someone's knee out with a kick, I can do it, right? Right about then, they decided that we should probably make some rules. I think they got worried that Steve might kill people, and you know what? He probably could have. Unfortunately for him, but fortunately for the rest of us, Steve hurt himself training against a 300-pound guy who rolled onto Steve's leg and blew out his knee. If that hadn't happened, Steve would have won the whole thing hands down. And basically what he gets at around this section is that Steve Blackman was purely like, 100 grand, yeah. 100 grand, come on, let's do it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I will kick 15 guys' asses and I will take 100 grand home. Thank you very much. I've heard nothing but, like, legitimate... Like, it's always people like Bob Holly, like, people who have no reason other than to to call it like it is mm. about Steve Blackman's legitimacy. I know recently on The Crawl we talked about how we saw probably a tenth of what he could actually do mm. in the ring. Out of the fucking ring, I don't even think Steve Blackman knows. I mean, you'll... I really would love to have a fucking proper forensic look at Steve Blackman. Yeah. You know, ripping phone books in half. You hear all these stories about how he was on his deathbed and came back mm-hmm. from it. And then that's there. Like, that's scary. To yeah. think of what he would have done in that brawl for all. Would have been an entertaining watch. They probably would have had to stop it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, that would have been so much more fun with Blackman in there. So, Bob and Bart obviously get faced off against each other, and they basically have a mutual agreement, beat the shit out of each other, no hard feelings one way or the other, we both like fighting, let's just get it on. Little did you know, Bob Holly had stashed in some aluminium sheeting, which he had <laughs> rolled off into a ball. And Bob obviously points out the fact that he's the only one that Bart didn't knock out, like, and mm. that, the fact that he didn't get knocked out by Bart is one of the big reasons yeah. this changed his career. And that's actually one of the things as well which JR started talking about on commentary about you know, how you know, oh, the killer left of Bart Gunn and he knocked everyone out even big, big people but he didn't knock out Bob. Couldn't take him down. Um, he talks about, and this is something we noticed in our Brawl for All review, he talked about the Steve Williams versus Quebec Pierre fight and how fucking rigged the scores were in Steve Williams' favour. Yeah. And he said that all the boys were watching the screens backstage, watching that Brawl for All fight, and as soon as they saw those numbers going up way quicker than they should have done, the whole locker room it's turned on the Brawl for All, because they're like, oh, well, they're just going to fix it for their fucking boy then. Yeah, I mean, like, it's... You can't tell the boys it's a shoot and then start working it without telling them. Like, it's so shady. Also, as well, Quebec and Pierre had one fucking eye. They should have given him 10 points starting off. Legit, that, like, you legit. Know? 
Bart phoned Bruce Pritchard because he knew that he was coming up to his match against Steve Williams. And Bart phones up Bruce Pritchard and says to him, I'm going to knock out JR's boy. Just want everyone to know, be aware of that. I'm going to knock him out. What a cool phone call. Because <laughs> everyone knew that if Steve Williams didn't get knocked out, no matter how badly he performed, the scores would be rigged. Mm. And Bob points out that in the Steve Williams versus Bart match, the scores are still in Steve's favour. Yeah, They're even still though he rigged. was clearly being knocked. And so it had to be a knockout to end it for him. And so Bart was determined. He was like dead set on knocking this guy out. And that's sad because, I mean, do you think they're going to Steve Williams? Yeah, we're going to rig it a little bit in your favour. Or do you think they're telling him like, no, you're a badass. Hey, look at the scores there. there. I mean, do you think, how involved is he in in this? Is it like a Manchurian it's, candidate type of thing? It's actually really sad, Kevin, because apparently Bob is backstage after that fight and... Like everyone else is cleared off, and it's just like Steve Williams getting tended to by medical staff. And Bob says what he overheard was Steve saying to like one of these EMTs, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. They've already given me the hundred grand. Like, what? And allegedly, they'd already paid him the prize money up oh front. Oh my God. Because JR was so fucking fixed that Steve Williams was going to win. And apparently, he was livid. Apparently, JR for weeks was insufferable because of this. Like, absolutely furious i can't believe that jesus christ just thinking you know all like another wrinkle like that that is absolutely disgusting and bob even goes as far as to say the whole butterbean angle was purely just so jr could have his revenge yeah. and humiliate bart gunn who ruined his boy's career that like, was pretty much the, that was the subtitle of wrestlemania 15 wasn't it wrestlemania 15 jr's revenge <laughs> just him like ominously like that with the shadow butterbean like Looking his eyes surly like <laughs> <laughs> So, because obviously the new plan is now that they're going to bury Bart Gunn, the new Midnight Express is called off. Bob pitches to the office a really good idea that now that they've ended this feud, let's give them both something to do, go straight into a feud where Bob is like, well, Bart, you're all fucking Mr. Hotshot, brawl for all, dude. You never knocked me out, and I bet you never can knock me out. And that would be their feud, leaving easy their tag angle. team. Very easy. It would give Bart Gunn something to do off the back of his brawl for all, like... But obviously he gets turned down and instead he is put in the job squad. Oh jeez, I forgot he was in the job Such squad. Such a, a short little pre brief period of his career, it's easy to forget. It's like everything about the job squad and nothing of it aligns with Bob Holly. No, I know. It's weird, isn't it? It's such a weird, what's the word, oxymoron. Yeah. Like, it's almost like it's perfect for him and so ill-fitting at the same because, time. Because really like, he takes himself so seriously. That was the whole point of the job squad was that the guys in it were kind of like, yeah, yo, I'm a fucking jobber, am I, I guess? It's, that's not Bob Holly. In a no. million years, I could never think Bob Holly taking it lightly being called a jobber. Doing that character. He would never be in on that show. I imagine the fucking, he would go bright red every time he put that shirt on. He said he enjoyed the the gig. He liked. Really? He, he said he liked the work. You wow. know, it was it was fun. And I guess he did get to tag with like two cold Scorpio, and he got on pay per view with and this. He, yeah, that, that's the main thing. He got work from it. Like you know, mm. he, he went from being sat on the sidelines to then being in the new Midnight Express. So I think anything was a good change of pace. Yeah, he got to hell up a sparkler for Dwayne Gill when he came out as Gilbert. He said he he defends Vince Russo and says that he gets too much flack and he's not as bad as everyone makes him out to be. But he doesn't have any follow through. The case in point being there's a particular episode of Raw where the job squad are like all over the episode. They're involved in like three or four angles yeah, of the yeah. show. And apparently it really felt like there's momentum here. The job squad is going somewhere. And yeah, then that's how they debuted was that they kind of, it was like they were 
you know, sick of being mistreated and they interviewed yep. a load of matches. I think we brought it up on the episode and then nothing. Russo seemingly. just forgets about it, apparently. And that's what he says is Russo's biggest flaw is that he has these great ideas and tremendous talent, but then he just forgets about things or loses his attention. Or like... doesn't have enough... Like, he, he has an idea, but hasn't got enough guts to the idea that he could defend yeah. the job squad interfering in all these matches in the long term to Vince, basically. Yeah, you can only get away with it for one week, like... So eventually Gilberg stops getting used, Scorpio gets released, and it's looking pretty bad for both Al and Bob. Part six of The Hardcore Truth, Stay Insane on the Road. Talks a little bit about ribbing folks on the road. One story is as Billy Gunn, he's, he's traveling with Billy, and Billy's asleep in the past. Jeez, there's seat. a fucking fun car journey. Seriously. <laughs> Gunn and Bob Holly, like. Nothing but hip and... <laughs> 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 Uh, apparently Billy Gunn's asleep in the passenger seat so Bob pulls up on a train crossing and literally sits there and waits until there's a train coming <laughs> and then he and then he shakes Billy Gunn awake and he's, the best part is as well Bob has put the handbrake on for fuck's sake and he's got his hand glued to the handbrake and Billy Gunn is screaming and like pulling at Bob's hand like begging him to oh let go oh my god I want to die. I'm going to be king of the ring. And like he waits till it's like 50 yards away until they finally pull off. Like Jesus fucking Christ. I'd sorry to imagine inexplicably him coming in like, you know, hey, Barry, do you want to see my new chainsaw and hockey mask? Like, you know, <laughs> taking it too far about Polly. Like. Apparently as a rib, JBL once rear-ended Bob's car. So Bob rear-ended him back and then JBL backed off. That's funny. <laughs> what a yeah. rib. Car crashes are great fun. Travelled with Steve Blackman for a little while, who was apparently great fun to wind up. Like, apparently he was brilliant for, like, poking the bear. You know you're a straight arrow and Bob Holly's like, oh, he's great to wind up. <laughs> Old man Blackman over here, not a cool young swinging cat like Bob Holly. Like. We get that story of JBL patting Steve Blackman on the ass in an airport like repeatedly and Blackman being like fuck off or I'll kick your ass and then he kicks his ass like <laughs> that's one of Bob's favourite ribs apparently it's not a rib that like you, just because just you laugh at something doesn't mean it's a rib <laughs> you know chapter 18 getting some attitude Ow! so as we mentioned he uses his new legitimacy from the brawl for all to sort of like be like look this guy yeah he didn't win it but he didn't go down like he only lost by decision he's a tough guy tougher than people give him credit for and they want to put him in the hardcore division, which is obviously their new big gimmick and their new idea. Yeah, so that's literally only, you know, that it's literally starting at this point because you know, they go, they made the hardcore belt and gave it to, to Mankind and then he lost it to Bossman and then immediately that's kind of in with, you know, Al and Hardcore Holly, etc. And then it's up and running, like, so yeah. they want to get this division up and running straight away. So they put Bob and Al straight in there and Bob obviously becomes Hardcore Holly and he has that match in the Mississippi River with Al. That's a career-defining That is a career-defining moment. Because yeah. I, I think of things where I try to cast my mind back to when I was a kid when there was things that would come up in like either, you know, like video game magazines or, you know, TV shows where people would talk about wrestling and the one thing that people always seem to know about that was not kind of a mainstream thing like The Rock or Austin was the fight that went into the Mississippi River. Yeah. That was like a legendary thing. I remember watching it back with you guys for it and it ended up being like, this is a fucking mess. But at the time, it was like, they're the match and they fought in the fucking river. Like, you mm -hmm. know, just... Any any info on how you got the name Hardcore Holly, where that came from? Yes, we'll get to that in just a sec, okay. sorry. Before we do, there's just an interesting little note here about 
the fucked up um, WrestleMania that year, if you remember the 15. IC belts and the hardcore belts. Yeah, being switched around. Feud's being switched. He sheds a little light on that finally. Please. So it was obviously, as we know, it was going to be Al versus Bob versus Road Dog yep. in the hardcore triple threat. And you also had Billy Gunn feuding with Ken Shamrock over the IC belt. And about Venus. Yes. Yeah. But apparently, the whole reason this all got fucked up and started off is because Billy Gunn was drunk the night before the Royal Rumble pay-per-view, I believe. He was drunk in a bar and he was blabbing to everyone who would listen, oh, Ken Shamrock's putting me over tomorrow, I'm going to beat him, finally I'll be Intercontinental Champion, I'm going to beat Ken Shamrock. And he was just drunk off his ass, bragging to everyone about how he's going over. And apparently so, just to teach him a lesson, they were like, right, fuck you, we're switching these feuds up. You're in the hardcore division now, big man. Road Dog gets to be Intercontinental Champion for a week. Worked out all right for him, I guess. I guess so. Fucking hell. How quickly these plans change. So, yeah, Hardcore Holly was very straightforward. Like, he wanted to be Bob Holly because that's what he's known as now. And he and that's to... his shoot name, right? His shoot name is Bob Howard, but close enough. Like, so he wants to be Bob Holly and they want him in the Hardcore division. And him and Vince together, they come up with Hardcore, I believe. Literally says, they thought I would be a good fit for the Hardcore division. So Vince said that if I was going to be Hardcore, I'd better be called Hardcore Holly. I was more than happy with that. Literally simple as that. Makes sense. Alliteration. That's, Vince <laughs> loves his alliteration. He does. You know so he goes on to the Mania three-way and he wins that as hardcore champion. Makes 20 grand, which is easily his biggest payday so far. And he's finally, finally, finally starting to get crowd response. Like he's getting over in some form for the first time in his career. And in his own words, he says, My character finally felt right. It worked because I was comfortable. I was comfortable because hardcore Holly was me through and through. So he's finally like arrived at a gimmick that is something he can relate to and something that he truly believes is a reflection of himself. That's so funny because like so many times in wrestling books when you kind of go through the bit that you've just been talking about there, which is, you know, about struggles with, you know, connecting and da 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 it's usually they have been a big name somewhere else. Yeah. You think like Mick Foley, like any struggles he had as, you know, Dude Love or, or Early Days Mankind, it's like, well, I was a big star as Cactus Jack elsewhere. And so often that seems to be the case, but... It's so interesting that Bob knew that he had essentially never clicked. He had mm-hmm. ne- nothing had ever actually worked. And the fact that he still stuck it out for so long to actually develop and get his opportunity. Yeah, he waited and bided his time. Like. Really did. And that's funny because if Bob didn't have welding, race car driving, the other stuff to occupy his time, he would have just been like everyone else. He would have went to WCW, ECW and would have just burnt out and that yep. would have been it. And yeah, he bided his time. He was during very smart. a time where I didn't think you could do that. I know, yeah. You thought it was like the hottest period here. Like it's all bubbling up. Everyone's like all hands on deck, yeah. surely. But no, he was sat at home for a lot of it. All hands on catering for fucking Bob Holly for most of that time. That's amazing. That's a fucking incredible journey that he's been on and we've only gotten up to the point where it becomes hardcore holly yeah i was gonna say we're we're two hours here we've been sat here kevin now like this is a big read and i know that obviously the most fun and the most interesting details for us at least are still yet to come like we've just reached the part that we actually care about but we're gonna have to leave it there for now i think how do you like me now greetings there you literary snobs you book fans you have delved once more into (laughs) 
Fuck off, Kevin. We're fucking ten seconds in. This is already unbearable. Hey, I can't help it if in 2001 I've got the shoe sound effect on my mind, okay? This is where I'm at. This is going to be the toughest recording of my life. Oh, we'll wait till after my holiday, he says. We'll do the hardcore truth in two parts, he says. Wait till I've had a week off and I'm all giddy. And then we'll sit down and talk about Ian Harrison for five minutes before we record. So I'm already fucking giggly and yeah, happy. Yeah, it's going to be fine. It'll going to be okay. Welcome back to the Bibliotech. Adam Bibolo's been reading some Bibolos. He's been reading some books. And more specifically, you've been finishing The Hardcore Truth Part 2 by Hardcore Holly with Ross Williams. And we already have done a part one. So if you're listening to this and not that, you've done it wrong. You're the furthest thing from a fan that there is. So you need to go back and check out part one. (laughs) Spoiler warning, all being said, that done taking care of business. Let's hit the ground running, Adam. You've been on holiday and you finished off the hardcore truth. That I have. How was it finishing off this bad boy? The thinnest book you've done to date on the Bibliotech, I will say. Yeah, I mean, that's not saying it's a particularly thin book. It's relatively healthy size. It's just under 300 pages. But, yeah, let's be honest, if there was ever an environment to read a wrestling book in, doing it on a beach on a sunny day, like, where you've got nothing else to do, you've got, like, four hours of, we're going to sunbathe here for a while, here's your book, time to knuckle down and read it. Yeah. I'm glad it wasn't The Rock Says, because that probably would have ruined my holiday. Just on the holiday, going, (laughs) angry on the beach. But, I mean, like, I would have thought it's perfectly suited. Bob Holly with his hair the colour of a golden sandy beach. His book featuring aforementioned Bob Holly with hair like a beach I thought it would have been a match made in heaven and we saw him on Smackdown Crawl how oily he was I was much the same on the beach (laughs) and just so we know you had another holiday reading as well you weren't just reading the hardcore truth because I think this is important I'm not going to say that what else you're you're taking in is going to colour your opinion but just so we're all aware what was your other light holiday reading alongside the hardcore truth I read The Handmaid's Tale for like the first half of the holiday like a nice cool glass of water to go down there you know fucking hell well I, I took that with me I took the hardcore truth and I took Robert Webb's book How Not To Be A Boy and I was like well one of these be like a nice bit of break from work because the hardcore truth thing I have to make notes while I'm reading I thought oh, Handmaid's Tale I've seen some episodes of the TV show so that's a bit easy in it it's like watching telly then because you already know what they look like so I started that and then got too into it and was like oh actually I need to crack on with my homework here mm. and then it got to the point where like on day four on the beach Alice's family were looking at me like e- what are you, you alright? Because I literally was sat on the beach with like a highlighter pen and a notebook, like feverishly. Look, look, I'm not alright. Look how this is my handwriting when I'm on the plane, Kevin. Yep. And then you see, like, as we get uh, me lying on my back on the beach, it gets a little bit more sloppy and it's a bit bigger as we go on. Like, uh, now I'm really worried as well, Adam, that I've heard about these beach bullies who prowl <laughs> looking for young men to kick sand into the face of. Well, there's me with my glasses on, yeah. reading a book with a, no- with a notepad and a highlighter. <laughs> What are you reading about? Oh, it's a wrestling book. It's research for my podcast. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> well, I like that you could you could go between the hardcore truth and the handmaid's tale, right? Because it's like looking from hearing rumors about Bob's spicy takes on women's wrestling. It feels like the handmaid's tale is just the ultimate escalation of Bob Holly's <laughs> viewpoint on women in the world of wrestling. Like, well, you, have you read Handmaid's Tale? I've not. I've I've watched the first season of it because the book opens with Offred saying I've never been a fan of bullies like (laughs) 
And it's actually quite similar parallels between the two books. Right, so let's uh, stop beating around let's the bush. F- fucking get to it. You know how where, these things go on. Where like. we last left Bob off, where was he? We frame of mind. Yeah, we'd been through the brawl for all. We'd been through the new Midnight Express, and finally he'd landed in the hardcore division with Al Snow. And he was finally known as Hardcore Holly. And it was the first time he felt like a gimmick actually fit him as a person. And it kind of, if I recall, it ended by saying Hardcore Holly was just Bob Holly with the volume turned. New font. <laughs> hey, give me some of that show card gothic. <laughs> that's my personality. I'm a big shot. <laughs> Way up. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's how we left it off. So... Diving straight back into part two of the book here, we are pretty much at the 50% point in the, the book itself. Hardcore Truth Part 7. Oh, I forgot about these. Yeah, yeah, it's going to amp up the fucking format of this book. Hardcore Truth Part 7, keeping it real. We're keeping it real, Kevin. We're keeping it real. This is just about being stiff. He <laughs> loves being stiff. He loves working with blokes that are stiff. Now, when he says stiff, because I've heard there's there's 50 shades of stiff from what <laughs> I've heard, right? Because Stone Cold Steve Austin will use the word snug. Yeah, snug. Which means there's a tightness to it. Like, mm-hmm. if you got in the headlock, you'll cinch it up a little bit. It's kind of like, no one's going to get fucking hurt from you cinching in that headlock nice and tight. Yeah. Like, you know, we're all a bit of give and take. You know what's going on. But there's, I'm going to approach this with a certain, I say disregard for your safety, but like a certain uh, assumption that you that we'll make some contact and we're going to make it look good. We're both going to take a little bit of a sacrifice for that. Is that yeah. Bob's outlook or? <clears throat> no, you see, I think he would like you to think that's kind of his outlook, but I know that a lot of it comes down to the fact that he loves fighting and he loves violence. Like he talks about it in a way where it's almost salacious. Like he loves the idea of if he hits a guy too hard in the match, the guy's not going to bitch and complain about it. The guy's just going to hit Bob back, and that that really gets Bob going. Like that's the ultimate respect in the ring. Wrestle Vader, mate, you'd love it. Like. <laughs> put the two of them together on an island, and they could just beat each other up for the rest of time. Like so, he's talking here about what it's like working with some of his favorite people to work stiff with. Got a nice little section here about working with Benoit. Benoit told me after one match, "You chopped me harder than Inoki. That was the hardest I've ever been chopped." <laughs> That explains why he didn't chop me that often. He was worried that I was going to chop him back. Wow, Jesus Christ. Benoit. Vince took me aside at one point and told me I wasn't allowed to chop anymore. Everybody was throwing chops and Vince wanted to save the move for Flair. They even put a sign up in Gorilla that said no chops in capital letters. Wow, that's funny because I remember when I did work experience when I was 15 in the hospital and the guy who I was uh, doing it with in the hematology lab was... Total nice bloke, good as good as gold, lovely lad, fill me full of lovely knowledge. And then we popped down to the lunch cafeteria at like 11 a.m. because he's in the hospital, and there was literally a sign that said no chops today. And he was fucking livid at him. He was apt. He like he it was literally red curtains drew down, and he was a different man from that point. He needed his chops. <laughs> I have to make an example out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I've eaten chops that big since I ate chops with Anoki. <laughs> <laughs> and we wrap up this little bit of hardcore truth with him talking about who the stiffest wrestler is that he ever worked with. Do you want to okay, guess? Okay, let me see here. I'm going to say either Bubba Ray Dudley, Bradshaw. Or um, is, did he work Shamrock much? No, I'll put Shamrock it, in there. It's as well. Bradshaw. It's yeah. Bradshaw. Yeah, he says Bradshaw, hands down. He held absolutely nothing back. If he knew you could take it, he gave it to you. 
I enjoyed working with John. When I was up against him, I knew I had it coming and I knew he was going to bring it. Believe me, any chance I got to give something back to him, I took it. One night at a TV taping, I was supposed to hit him with a chair. He found me backstage and said, I know I've got it coming to me. I told him, yes, you do, motherfucker. Jesus! I tried to rip his head clean off with that steel chair and he told me after that it about knocked him out. He loved it. That's fucking weird, man. He loved it. That's what I mean. It's not about like sort of, yeah, we're doing good business. We're making it look real. It's a foot of like a, oh yeah, this is great. Like it's a guttural enjoyment these guys it get is, out of it. It's this weird kind of like masculine display, isn't it? Because it's like, we're not like these other phony, tough, crazy, brave guys. We're fucking, <laughs> we're legit. We're like, yeah. it's like the way you always used to hear that like in the old territories, the shooters would kind of circulate together and they would kind of be in the same kind of group. Like, it's kind of like, oh, these are the guys who can stretch you for real. Yeah. They know the real fuck. They're not doing the phony shit. They, they know. It. And it's kind of like, I almost feel like to an extent they're propping each other up. Mm. You know, that Bradshaw without having the likes of Bob Holly there to kind of make him know, yeah, it's okay that you're a fucking weirdo likes yep. to get hit hard. Yep. And I'm not even going to get into the homoerotic overtones <laughs> there. The one thing I will say, though, when they're talking about, oh, I'll give as good as I got. When it comes to a tag match, though, Crash Holly was the one who was getting as good as you could be given. Pretty much. You know, Bob out in the fucking apron there coming for an old drop kick or whatever. <laughs> Crash is getting double powerbombed and dominated and clotheslined from hell all in a minute. Yeah, I mean, come on now. Well, let's be honest. He's not talking about bumps here. He's talking about taking, like, tough shots, like big clotheslines, big chair shots. I don't think Bob likes bumps. Like. Well, you know what? The reason is is because Bob has never been in a position, I think, where he has been like, okay, that's enough. He doesn't know. I always got from him, like, he ha doesn't have that experience of like, okay, that's a bit much. Because I'm sure even with the likes of Bradshaw and Bob Holly and Vader, that there is a point where it's like, okay, that's a bit much. Yeah. If Cactus Jack, when wrestling Vader... Uh, you know, before all of his injuries in like 93 or whatever, has the fucking wherewithal to be like, oh, okay, this is a bit much. Yeah. Like, Bob Holly hasn't had that and kind of feel like he... From his position on the card, it kind of feels like he's never really had to experience yeah. that. I mean, the man did get bitten on the head by a bear, so like, I think that tells you a lot about his toughness. Yeah, made him mean like a bear. Made him bold like a bear. <laughs> Chapter 19, Owen Hart. <laughs> this pirate is too hot. Who cares? <laughs> Sake, <laughs> Chapter 19, Owen Hart. He's still laughing about Goldilocks Bob Holly. His hair is gold as well. I want to see him in a nice dress, Adam. I can't help it, like. I've got a long way to go, Kevin. <laughs> Me too. Chapter 19, Owen Hart. It's a big chapter about Over the Edge 99, as you'd expect. Discusses what happened in the accident in... Pretty horrible detail, to be honest with you. Was he close with Owen at all? Or? Not massively. It's the usual story of, like, huge respect for Owen. Mm. Lovely guy. Great mentality. Would do anything for the business and for his family. It's a terrible tragedy. It was what it was. And is he kind of... I know a lot of people are hot and spicy with their takes on, on this. Like, because who doesn't love in wrestling having a hot, spicy take on a man tragically dying? But... I know a lot of the wrestlers are, would, would lay, lay blame at, like, say, Russo, and some mm -hmm. people lay blame at Vince, and some people lay blame at, you know, uh, some people lay blame at Sting, even, can you imagine? Fuck Because sake. Sting did the Come gimmick on. in WCW, oh, yeah. and that set the yeah, precedent, totally you know? totally Sting's fault, mate. How do you sleep at night, like, you Fucking know? Fucking hell. Well, but no, does he come away with any kind of, like, is he playing the blame game at all here, or...? Yeah, he does, and I'll tell you exactly who he blames for it, basically. 
What we were all told was that Owen had accidentally disconnected himself from the cable. That's not what happens. He was wearing a cape as part of his costume, and when he flipped the cape back, he hit the latch that released the cable. So when he stepped off the catwalk, he didn't have anything attached to him and just fell. The cable was still intact with the ceiling. It was awful. The guy who hooked Owen up didn't do his job. If somebody is about to jump 80 feet, you keep your eyes on that cable. So basically, Bob saying that it was a stunt coordinator didn't do his job correctly. That's why I've never heard anyone do that. Like, no, that. I know I'd not heard that before. Because, like you say, normally it's they'll blame whoever's idea it was, not the specific like crew member that wasn't looking properly or what have and you. That is weird as well. I'm not trying to do like a unsolved mysteries take on this. It's just that what I had heard before was that it was all hooked up fine, but they had given him an incorrect harness, one that wasn't meant to support his weight and had a quick release, had a release automatically catch up because right. he was too heavy for it, basically. Yeah. It wasn't meant to hold a wrestler or a man of that size, and that's why it released. But, God, I mean, yeah, I've never heard about the stunt coordinator being taken to task on it before. That's interesting. Yeah, and he talks, it's pretty horrible, the detail he talks about it in. He talks about seeing Owen's body. He talks about how, apparently in the day, Owen was t- telling other people that he wasn't comfortable with yeah, the, the stunt. Yeah. But you can't really tell that to the office because, you know, they won't favour you. And he disagreed with the idea of the pay-per-view going on ahead. Like, which, you know, still to this day, I've heard so many opinions on and I still don't know how I feel about that. Like, Well, it's you, on the network, so you know how they feel about well, it. Well, that I disagree with for definite. And you know what? I'll tell you one thing. In the four or so years since we would have done it, I think I've gotten one complaint that we didn't do Over the Edge 1999, and it was before we recorded our own episode. So yeah. there you go. It's, yeah. It shouldn't have been... I don't think it should have went on, really. No. Uh, it's, it's so tricky. Let's. I mean, that's another can another of worms. Another can of worms entirely. Chapter 20. Big Shot and Family Man. Wow. Kevin, it's the Big Shot. What is Bob Holly smoking? And you better learn to live with that, Kevin. <laughs> he talks about the Big Shot character and how that came along and it just sort of was given to him, like, out of the blue. Uh, and- I, we were always kind of in a million minds about this like was it kind of like hey Bob we're pitching you to be this tough guy and he's kind of like oh okay and it's just kind of because of how Bob delivers and how he comes off that it came off as this kind of crazy idiot who didn't realise his place on the cards no there's there's no like stupidity or irony to it whatsoever Fingers. here's Bob's view of it okay they let me start cutting promos too that was fun I developed this cocky no bullshit don't back down character I told show that if he was the big show I was the big shot. The name stuck. I was getting over more than... No, it didn't, you fucking... No, it didn't. The only two medias where it's been fucking mentioned is this book and our podcast. (laughs) Outside of the fucking show itself. Good lords. The name stuck. I was getting over more than I'd ever been before. Sure, I got my ass handed to me a lot by those two monsters, but I got to look competitive with them like I was on their level, and it was damn entertaining. I mean, it was entertaining. It There's no denying was. that. And he said that he was surprised that the office would suddenly let him work with two massive dudes like these and like present him like he was almost at their level after years of jobbing out all the time. It, it did. He was taken aback yeah. by it. And you know what? I think... 
you know, he always had a, a vague little bit of like a, an aura of like slightly better than where he was for the rest of the Attitude Era. And I think the fact that when he was tagged with Crash, it's kind of like he could always be like, hey, I've been wrestling The Undertaker and Kane and The Acolytes yeah. and The Big Show. Because, you know, he took on The Acolytes, he challenged them to like a handicap match on yeah. Raw. So I kind of, it, it was very good in terms of setting a precedent that, Bob viewed himself as being on these people's equal. Yeah. Even if he actually didn't come off that way. The crazy brave, if you will. Yes. Um, (laughs) He talks about how writers back then would get assigned to work with specific acts. So I've heard this quite a lot in the past about Brian Gewertz was apparently big for writing Edge and Christian's yeah. sketches yeah, yeah. and you know they would later get into trouble for buying him gifts or something and like, The Rock as well he he was like I mean he works for The Rock's production company yeah. and go it's like so yeah the comedy stuff from the Attitude Era kind of onwards to the mid 2000s a lot of it is Brian Goertz like yeah. yeah he was the guy and apparently Ed Kosky was the guy that would write Bob's angles for him so that mm. was the guy that came up with the big shot angle but I've never heard the name Ed Kosky before I I've heard it yeah I've heard it mentioned but yeah. like it's the kind of thing that you know as we talked about with, with Kresge and the likes your name doesn't end in Russo or Ferreira yeah you kind of don't seem like just another writer yeah, like, yeah. even though apparently Russo and Ed Ferreira were the only two writers yeah Seems like there was a couple more knocking around at times. little mention of this now, actually, while you mentioned Chris Kresge. I saw a um, one of Bruce Pritchard's podcasts recently where he went out of his way to basically try and stamp out any idea that Chris Kresge was a big deal of any kind. Well, you know, you want you go you, you to him for the unbiased opinion, Adam. You're like, you know, Bruce Pritchard's got On no... On the WWE Network. He's got no dog in the fight, Adam, you know? I mean... <laughs> Straight, straight as a telephone call, that guy. Like, you could set your watch to Bruce Pritchard, like you know. You know I won't. Most days, I won't look at the clock. I'll just think, what's Bruce Pritchard think? What time it is? What's brother love up? Because that's that's the, the the truth, isn't it? So literally, one day, Bob shows up to work, and the man himself, Bruce Pritchard, comes up to him and tells him that the big shot thing is over. Like you're not the big shot anymore. We've got a new idea for you now, and I'd like you to meet your new cousin, Crash Holly. And it's literally just like. Shows up at work. All right, this is your cousin now. That's like literally the worst way to introduce Bob to a tag partner. It's like Bob is the kind of guy that... Who the hell are you? Yeah, Bob's the kind of guy that the parents won't tell him that he's having a baby brother or sister (laughs) coming until like, they're like, well, like really short. Like, mommy's just fat at the moment. It's okay. Nothing's happened. Going into labor. Like, Bob, we need to tell you. Yeah, Bob, you're going to have a new brother. What? (laughs) Say hello to your new little brother. Who cares? (laughs) At this point, he's like he's not upset about it. He was enjoying the big shot, and he was sad to see it suddenly ended and put the brakes on it. But the important thing is they were giving him something else to do. At least he had something. He was given Crash. He was given TV time. Yeah. And apparently, at this point, they were just given bullet points for like promos. Everything else was completely up to them. So Bob like really appreciated the freedom that it allowed him. So were they set up from the get go to have that kind of? Fighting cousins, oh, yeah. little Elroy type of vibe where like Crash is kind of this like viewed as being like not a proper man by Bob and Bob uses Crash to kind of prop himself up a little bit or Yeah, Bob like knew that's where the sort of appeal for the tag team came from, is that they were the dysfunctional fighting cousins mm. and you've got little scrappy Crash and you've got like big bully Bob. And he talks about how that was like sort of the unique appeal of it. 
Apparently Ed Kosky pitched a, a big family Christmas holiday segment for the Hollies. Oh my god. They wanted to film it in a trailer park and they were gonna hire a ton of extras to have like the extended Holly family. Can you imagine? And like, like they'd all be scra- like... scrapping and fighting and shit. And I like honestly I would have fucking killed for that. Like, that would have been the best shit. All right, I'm going to pitch it. Like, it did remind me of the clumps when he said it like that, you know. So all of them are played by Bob. All played by Bob. Like, you know. You know, his mother calls his father the furthest thing from a man that there is. Like, you know. You know, the younger cousin has to apologize for grandmother, like, because of her classless remarks. Like, you know. The neighbours at the door, it's the grizzly bear from the bar. <laughs> Everybody's here. Pass me them sweet potatoes or I will break your ass in half, you <laughs> little shithead. Oh man, if only, if only they actually went through with it. It was again, it was just another one of those things that fell through. Apparently they didn't have the money or the time mm. for it in the end. It never came to fruition. Get a little quote here about where the sort of the tag team started to get diluted a bit. After a while, they stopped me and Crash fighting all the time and settled us down into a regular tag team. It sort of took the edge off our act. I wondered if somebody in the office had a problem with me or if one of the top wrestlers felt threatened or something like that. It seemed that every time I did anything that was getting over, my direction got changed to make sure I didn't get over more than some of the other wrestlers. I didn't understand. Why would you take away a character that everybody loves? And this is like really going to be a recurring thing for the second half of the book. Is like, it's not what, unique. Why, why did you change it when it was going so well? But yeah, no, he totally thinks he's being targeted. Like, it's like you and every other mid carder, man. Yeah. You know, that's like it's really sad because it's like, and it's triply so during the attitude era when if you were a mid card guy like Bob or fucking D'Lo or whoever, I mean, even if you're talented and you're over, which he was with mm-hmm. those gimmicks. They will change direction. Yep. And it's not, I don't, I've never really bought the idea where it's like, oh no, this guy's getting too popular. We better, better, better cut the wheels out from underneath him. There are instances of that happening. It I does. Think, but it's not the fucking all the time that people make it no, out to be. No, but like, by and large, it's just kind of like, you're being used as kind of to fill out this variety show. It's kind of like, what can we do this with? Or who can we do this with? And it's like, you're not protected enough or you're not over enough in their minds that... They're going to mind changing you around. No, you're not a main character. Like. It's like, hey, look, yeah, we're going to recast the mountain three or four times in Game of Thrones, but he's just not that important to just the writers. the mountain. You like, know, yeah. yeah. No, I'm personal against the mountain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Crash and Bob get split up after the tag team just becomes like another tag team. And he gets told that he's going to be working with China, which is something that he's no real issue with nothing wrong with working with a woman because you know china's meant to be very masculine and strong but he just resents the idea of working with someone that's so green is his big beef with it yeah i mean i not gonna lie i really would have assumed bob holly like when i in my mind when i think of china and the the naysayers the people who had problems with it like bob bob pops in there i would have thought bob Ahmed Johnson. Oh. Yeah. Ahmed Johnson had a problem with it, did he? Yeah, he did. Apparently, she was the furthest thing from a man. <laughs> for fuck's uh, sake! <laughs> so he said it's just that she was green. Like, I mean, that's that was a common criticism of China. Yeah, I mean, we will get more into it. There is a whole chapter on his feud with Jericho and China coming up very shortly. And then also at the end of this chapter here, we get Jarrett holding up Vince for money. And yeah, he's the furthest thing from a man. Cowardly he hates little, Jeff like yeah. a lot. I guess that's for him. That's just proof, isn't it? Like, yeah, exactly. Jeff is what he thinks he is. That's not how you do business. Hardcore Truth Part Eight. 
Women in Wrestling. Oh, for fuck's sake. Here we go. Here All it right. is. When, when did this book actually get published? What this year? This was 2013 the book was published. Okay. The only thing I'll say ahead of this, and I, I'm figured I guess what he's going to say, is that certainly women's wrestling has come a long way in the WWE since 2013. Mm-hmm. But I will say in 2013, you already had some fucking incredible women's wrestling at a main event level yep. on, like, say, TNA, for instance. It was their highest rated mm-hmm. segment for most of their big runs. So, yeah. What's Bob think about women in wrestling then, Adam? I'll just start with the first sentence of this little section. I don't care for women wrestling. Oh, okay. Fans don't want to see women wrestle. They want to see tits and ass. I, I'm not exaggerating that, Kevin. That is what's written there, as you can see. But like, fans, They don't want to see women wrestle. They you know want there to are see women fans, Bob. You know there is porn on the internet for the people that want to see tits and ass. Nah, like, none of us got internet like. Nah, you know. we watch wrestling for hours. That's, that's why I go to a live wrestling show full of fucking families to fucking beat off. Oh. Bob, you've given this as much thought as my friends who went to see Charlie's Angels full throttle when they were 13. <laughs> you can't masturbate in public, Bob. You simply can't. He says, they made the mistake of trying to get them to wrestle, though. And that was like trying to get blood from a stone in some cases. Lita was horrifying. She thought she was so much better than she really was. Wow. Like, of all the women you could go after from that period where Bob was working. But, like, you know, I think that's so unfair, though, on, like, on so many levels. Because it's like, you look and you watch, like, we watched recently on SmackDown Crawl, Ivory versus Jacqueline. And you're not going to tell me that those aren't two of the fucking... Like, forget about gender. Tough as fucking wrestlers mm-hmm. and, like, experience. They're, they've fucking been through it all and have probably had to put up a lot more shit than fucking Bob Holly has. But they couldn't wrestle a fucking match. They mm-hmm. weren't allowed to because they're not allowed to throw punches. Yep. They're not allowed to do fucking bumps. That's why you had, like, Ivory and Jacqueline doing fucking cartwheels and pratfalls like they're on a fucking school play. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that fair? Obviously, that's shit, Bob. Yeah, but that's not the full extent and capacity of what women can do in wrestling. And to specifically go after Lita like that, like, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, Lita was very rough, like, for most of her career, like, she would do, like, sloppy moves or stuff that looked dangerous and but scary. But she was the first woman on a mainstream show who was doing exactly top rope, Hurricane Rana, you'd never seen it she before. She was popping the crowd with her fucking offense, not for how she looked. She was, like, getting huge reactions for her wrestling. She would occasionally go toe-to-toe with the guys and look convincing. And like, you know what as well, you know, fans may not want to see women's wrestling, but guess what? A lot of fans did watch Lita. And they became the likes of fucking Bailey and Sasha Banks and most of your fucking women's roster who WWE uses a goddamn crutch to get themselves public support at the moment. It's like Lita was like the first female wrestler for me as a kid that actually I enjoyed for her wrestling like yes, straight up for her absolutely. in-ring style I was like wow she's cool look at the way she wrestles like and she was also the first women's wrestler where I got to see girls in my school and class gravitate towards take an interest yeah in her, take like, an interest yeah. and gravitate towards a woman and think like wow they're amazing they're all model not just like the saddest thing ever is I remember there were girls in my class who thought that the likes of China and whatnot are Deborah. that was for their dads and their brothers and stuff oh. It's not for me. The one fucking woman on the show. representation, yeah. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't bury everyone. He says he likes Mickey James, Molly Holly, Victoria, Michelle McCool. Jackie Moore's a really good wrestler. She was the Steve Blackman of women, apparently. (laughs) What? The Steve Blackman of women? What a fucking weird accolade that is. Steve Blackwoman, if anything, mate. I mean, (laughs) what the fuck? Did she she go hitting Martians and cows as well? (laughs) Gail Kim as well, he's a big fan of. 
And then he wraps up this nice little, and this is like a little two fucking page. So he's got, he's got enough fucking favourites for someone who doesn't like women's yeah, wrestling. Yeah, I know, right? I know. He, he likes plenty of women, but that plenty is plenty of really good women's wrestlers there in your list, Bob. That clutch is what I think he's saying is like out of the whole industry, those women are the only acceptable ones. Everyone else sucks. I think. Well, of course, you know, Bob is a big fan of his Joshi tapes, and he's watching a lot of Japan, and he's watching a lot of the indies. So mm-hmm. sorry, Bob. Those are literally the women the main women who were on the roster while you were on the roster Legit, that's yeah. all it is You're just showing you your ignorance like, yeah pretty much off. and yeah it's only a fucking little two-page diddly do this chapter on women's wrestling i love me some brown panties matches and yeah the last half of this chapter is basically one night he was working a house show with carlito and santino and cody rhodes and the road agent said that they wanted Maria to get involved in the match. She did a spot where she uses her ass to distract Bob. And Bob gave her a spanking and he said it was so stiff that it gave her a massive bruise on her ass and it got the pop of the night and everyone had a lovely time. Wow. And that's Bob's one story of his experience with women's wrestling that he wanted to share uh, when he spanked uh, Maria. And he's single, ladies. <laughs> Divorced only twice, can you believe? Can you believe? Chapter 21, The Rockstar and the Ninth Wonder. So he talks a lot about China here and he's got very complicated feelings about China. He says that when she first came in, she was the fucking sweetest woman that they had in the locker room. Like she was really gracious to everyone. She was really friendly and nice and just lovely to everyone, no matter what position you were in the company. Mm. But she soon became an egomaniacal shithead and he does pin a lot of that on Triple H. I feel that China, like, it's so sad because she had so many people in her ear, Mm. you know? And I don't think there was ever anyone who had so many people telling her about what she should, how she should come across and what she should be. When the reality was, is that I don't think anyone really ever knew what she should be. Because no one had ever, like, worked with anyone like China before. No one knew what China was. Yeah, they knew she had appeal. They knew she was a gateway to the mainstream. And she got them a fuckload of mainstream press. Like, Mm. but... I don't think they ever really fully knew. And that's really sad because I think China, like as her career progressed, she became more kind of, I think, isolated and insulated and stuff like that. He actually says it quite similarly here. I always wondered if her behavior when she became a big star was because somebody had, in commas, brainwashed her into thinking that she was superior to the other talent and didn't need to talk to the people that were beneath her. I knew that wasn't her deep down. The China I knew was and is a very good person. Bob suspects that it was the influence of other people in the locker room, like completely got in her ear and sort of changed her mentality about like oh you don't want to associate with all these guys around here yeah because like i heard that there was people who were telling like oh you can't fight women and all that stuff which is kind of like you know that was told to her very early on which is then when she was put into the women's division she was like well this is terrible because i was told i shouldn't fight the women because i'm like you know different or more important than the the show or whatever it's just it's just a perfect example of how not i mean it's not just wrestling it's fame yeah and wrestling and everyone else having a fucking say and the reality is is that this happens so much more often with women who become a big massive star in the company who Mm -hmm. then get the label this way and i'm not saying that they don't act in a way that probably makes people act negatively towards them but you have to realize with the likes of china and probably sable as well and probably definitely sunny as well Mm -hmm. say if you've got all these fucking tippity top tier talent Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Vince McMahon, all pulling you in different directions, telling you how to be, how to act. Mm-hmm. And then people fucking get pissed off because you act the way that the big stars tell you to act. Yep. You know, come yeah, on. That's so true. <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't think you hear about that happening so often with men in the wrestling industry where like they come in and apparently they've got like a completely wonderful Goldberg is the only one. 
Yeah, where, Goldberg, they, where they sort of like tainted him yeah. and like turned him against other people. Seems to be like, like, oh, he was a nice guy, but then they got in his ear and told him he's meant to be this big superstar and act a certain way. But Goldberg is the anomaly. Whereas with the women during the 90s, I feel like it was, if you became a star and you were a woman, that was your fate. Like. Yeah, they're going to make you into a bad person along yeah. the way. Like He talks about how... <laughs> oh, God. Come on, Adam. This is his favourite ever promo, he said, to this day. Favourite ever promo. Get your fat ass up there, Dracula. (laughs) That's my favourite prop. (laughs) It's when he's doing the fucking feud with China and Jericho. And he came out and he goes, I know what everybody's going to say, that I probably think that women should be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, but no. Let me tell you something, China. Women don't belong in the ring. Women belong in the bedroom, face down, ass up. I got a reaction like I never had in my life. 20,000 people roared. Oh god Favourite ever promo Favourite ever promo Favourite ever promo Apparently he got into huge trouble with it Linda McMahon was not pleased Figure? Jesus He got into big big trouble And he was like told that he can't ever say anything like that again Yeah you think Oh this fucking businessman He called one promo about anal sex and But then later on like a few months down the line Apparently Triple H cuts a promo on Vince where he says that Vince is going to end up in jail face down, ass up. And Bob, again, is like, Whoa, bloody Hunter, always holding me down and taking my shit. Like, it's so fucking cringy. That is so fucking, like... Because you just know when Bob said that as well, he has a little nervous twang in his voice. Where he's like, <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah, Bob, great job. Fucking hell. Mm. He loved working with Jericho. He's very much aware of how everyone hated working with him when he mm. first came in. But Bob, again, appreciated the roughness and the, the stiffness yeah, of Jericho, yeah. and he really enjoyed working Yo, with him. Yo, Bob should have went to fucking Japan. It really feels like he could have gotten a lot of this out of his system there. Yeah, like, legit, you know? legit. Get it all out with, and then come back a changed man. Like. Sometimes they'll just slap each other for hours, Bob. <laughs> over and over and over, like... So as we mentioned before, he had no real issue working with a woman. He was just pissed because it was going to be more work for him. There was an extra person that he was going to have to carry through a match, like... Like, I still can't understand why people constantly grumbled about working with China. Like, even if you take it all on board, like, oh, she's green and she has to be protected and I have to work extra hard. Well, guess what? Fucking show them that you can work extra hard. Maybe if you can carry China to an amazing match, that'll reflect well on you. Like, Jericho literally said that was, like, one of the things that finally turned them around was the fact that he managed to get some good matches out of China. And it's kind of like, oh, okay... Well, maybe he's got something then, even if we think he's terrible, it's the fact that he can work with China and get her over in a yep. way that we want. You know, we didn't get there initially. So, like, the fact that, like, Bob and all these people are kind of grumbling, like, oh, it's going to be so hard. Fucking, I'd be jumping up and down, like. Because China's, like, getting mainstream appeal. She's being presented as one of the biggest stars yeah. in the company. You're a fucking mid-carder, and they say they're going to put you in a program with one of their biggest stars. Like, yeah, grab it by the horns. Like, Go for it. DDP like, said one of the best things that he ever got to do was, like, being in the match with, uh, like, Jay. Leno, like, mm. even though Jay Leno had, it was like, oh, you know, Bob, Bob put a match with Jay Leno, but oh, the furthest thing from a man, you know, can't, <laughs> can't work, da da da. But can't host a show. DDP got the fucking got the praise and the adulation of like, oh, well, he can carry this lad, you know, yeah. precious cargo to a good match. You know, yeah. therefore he's great. That's a fucking opportunity. You think his contract's coming up in the WWF? Bischoff phones him and offers that he will double the money that WWF is paying really? him. Yeah. Bob says no, flat out, like, just this, doesn't even consider it. What year this would have been? 
2000s, yeah. This would have been like well, Royal Rumble. If he's doing Rumble in China, that's what yes, that's 2000. Yeah. yeah, this is early 2000. This is God. And he, but he doesn't even consider it. He just immediately turns it down because he's heard too many bad stories about WCW. Double the money. Yeah. Uh, so he goes and renegotiates with JR and manages to get an extra 40% on what he had the year before. That's all I think Bischoff actually managed to do. Bischoff, I think, artificially inflated so many guys' salaries without like thinking, like, oh, I'm going to make a killer offer. And then they also usually all they do is turn around and be like, well, they've made me this big offer. Yeah, leverage. Like, like yeah, that's like that's Brett, his whole thing when he was leaving. Yeah. Like, he, they knew because of how much money he was being offered. It was like, right, we have to, this is a negotiating point. Yeah. The, Bischoff just set the terms for a lot of WWE deals that realized Legit, <laughs> legit. That's totally it. Like, <laughs> hardcore truth number nine, putting on a show. He talks about the big sort of Hollywood production of the WWE and how it's very unique and how he basically puts over how important commentators and announcers are here. Like he goes into great detail about what makes a good announcer. Is he a fan of JR and King? Yeah, he's a fan of JR. JR is one of the best commentators in wrestling history. But he also says a good commentator is vital to helping the wrestlers get over. They can make or break a match or a star. Jerry Lawler is one of the best, but how he acts towards the women takes away from that. It gets old listening to him sound like a pervert. Yeah, talk about raping them like Bob wants to, or talk about them being face down with their ass up in the air. That would be way better. So, the announcer's job is really important to help get the talent over, but it gets old when Jerry Lawler just pervs on women all the time. But women's wrestling isn't something the fans want because fans only want tits and ass. But also, don't be a perv, Jerry, because the fans don't want that. He's basically saying he doesn't want to hear Jerry Lawler's commentary where he's trying to look at the tits and ass. It should be silence. So all of the the men can look Focus. at the, the tits and the yeah. ass. And with great effort and concentration, we'll hopefully achieve completion oh, um, God. <laughs> he, he talks again yeah about more production aspects of wwe how he laments the death of the manager he thought that was a great role mm. back in the day and it just doesn't really work anymore oh it's so good work so good work he well he and it does it does selena vega and andrade cien almost an nxt what he says is that the nowadays if you want to have a manager with someone it has to be far more catered to the specific wrestling character like right, right. paul bearer was a perfect fit for undertaker but he says once undertaker started talking for himself it kind of felt like paul wasn't really needed anymore mm. and apparently paul bearer was being groomed to be a timekeeper in gorilla position after his managing run so that he would still have like a job in the company but he was overheard, like, making jokes about Kevin Dunn and, like, had his headset on live without realising it or something. And, like, that was it straight away. Like, what? Yeah. So Paul Bearer was meant to have a job in Gorilla, like, supposedly. Oh, my God. it was merely because he was having a pop at Kevin Dunn. Are you fucking kidding me? Because, you know, we did H2K for H2 Wrestling and also we, in season one we got to see a lot of, like, golden Bearer. Paul Bearer. Yeah. And I will just say... Whoever thinks that once Undertaker spoke for himself, Paul Bearer didn't have anything to do. His run with Kane and Mankind, yeah. my God, that's some of the best promo work of the Attitude Era, period. Yeah. And I was always left kind of wondering, like, why would you not want, like, his mind, like, he speaks, he spoke so infrequently mm-hmm. out of kayfabe. But, like, if you've ever seen any of the shoot interviews that he's done, he did one with Jim Cornette. It's absolutely fantastic to just talk about you know, booking philosophies and wrestling and stuff like that. Cool. What a mind. Like, he's one of the greatest minds in wrestling. And the fact that you wouldn't want... Like, first of all, timekeeper? I know. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> like, making fun of Kevin Dunn. Jesus, that's like fucking everyone probably that's does that. a pastime in the office, isn't it? Seriously. Like, Don't yeah. worry, Kevin Dunn. You can go and console yourself with your millions and millions and millions <laughs> of dollars. <laughs> 
He goes on to praise the referees and puts over how their job is more complicated and harder than most people give him credit for. Mm. And he does a similar thing with agents and tries to explain the sort of role of an agent. Apparently, he was asked to be an agent later on in his <laughs> career. I think you should beat him up. <laughs> but he, he shot it down straight away because apparently he's seen Vince treat agents like shit. And if there's a bad match, it's the agents that yeah. get fucking chewed out. And Bob like knew that he couldn't stomach that, so just didn't go for it. And you have to do all the house show loops... And you have to do all the TVs. Yep. And at the house shows, there's never going to be a Triple H or a Vince there. It's always run by a road agents, which means you have to do all the all other organization the shit. Yep. It is fucking horrible job. It's the same travel that you're already on, but with more responsibility. But hey, like. don't worry about it, though, Adam, because then later on people can say things like, well, what the fuck should Dean Malenko know about having a good match? Because <laughs> he was never over, brother. Like People bury agents so fucking Dean much. Malenko, yeah, come off it. Really? Not Vince, like, oh, like other wrestlers and yeah. stuff, apparently, like I've said shit. Like, fuck you know. off. It's, yeah, you, you see when those road agents come out, they look all like they've been fucking aged horribly. Like. <laughs> Chapter 22, The Golden Age. So this is like right in the middle of the Monday Night Wars. He talks about all the talent that hopped between the two companies. Huge respect for Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. Apparently just their work and their ethic and their attitude backstage. Everything about them he totally respected and thought they were the pinnacle of professionalism in wrestling. If they didn't hit him hard in matches, here's, here's my hot take. If they didn't hit him hard in matches, he wouldn't say that. Yeah, actually, now you mention that, I'm trying to think about guys that he's gone out of his way to put over in that it's respect who haven't stiffed him yeah. in some way or another. We'll go through it, I guess. He was sad about Dean Malenko never really showing much personality on screen because apparently backstage he is a funny motherfucker, to use Bob's words. Well, that's like, why they gave him the, say, the Leto angle. <laughs> <laughs> the ladies' man role. Yeah, like. sorry, the Leto angle sounds like a fucking uh, Andy McNabb book or something like that, <laughs> like... The Lido angle. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to talk about how May and Moo were two of the nicest people you'd ever meet. He says, Fabulous Moolah and May Young are two of the sweetest ladies you'd ever meet. Two of the nicest but, sex traffickers I've ever heard. Yeah. Like. He puts, like, and again, <laughs> he says they're two of the sweetest ladies you'd ever meet. And then he follows it up by just talking about how tough they are and how much they love being stiffed and how much they love getting the shit knocked out of them. Like, are they really sweet? Or is it just the fact that they let you beat them up and you like that in a person? He, like, I just remember he did, did, did do an angle, didn't they? Where the, the Hollies laid out. May and Moo. Yeah. Smackdown and crawl, we came across that. Apparently yeah. May told him, like, you ripped my fucking head off with the clothesline. Don't hold it back on me. She said um, that to, like, you know, Bubba Ray as well. Yeah. Through the table. She's been known for that, like, so yeah. Bring it, motherfucker, is the exact word. <laughs> apparently. You know what? Every fucking day that goes by, I find out something fucking new about May Young and I just fucking love it even more. Yeah. We're doing... May Young has been requested for how to wrestle. Oh, wow. And, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, it could be out or, you know, it could be out in, you know, in the not too distant future. But, like, obviously not just for, for matches because I'm not holding out much hope for, you know, old-timey wrestling from the 50s yeah. and 60s. But just the stories. Yeah. Because they're always fucking fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Such an interesting person, May Young. We get a little section here about wrestlers' courts. There's a big story about when Mick and Al and Bob were all sharing a car together and they made some plans to go to like a fun fair. And the idea was that Bob was going to go and drop off the car at the rental place and the lads were all going to meet up and then go to the fair together. Yeah. And apparently what happened was Bob was just waiting outside the rental place in the freezing cold by himself for ages Aww. while Mick and Al were like on roller coasters and like Aww. at the fun fair having a great day out. That was, you know, that was in Foley's book and I'm pretty sure the story was, it was like, 
you know, you come meet us at the fun fair, and then Bob like didn't say anything. He was all like quiet about it because like, and they referred to him as Bob. I don't want to go to the fair, Holly. Like. <laughs> so probably what happened was the offer was there to go to the fun fair, and Bob elected to stay in the rain instead because he'd rather. St- <laughs> this is my fun fair. Look at all that rain on the windshield. Who cares? <laughs> He gets Al back by exposing his willy in a house show match. Oh, the penis suplex! Yeah, the suplex where he holds him up and then whips his dick out for everyone. That's a new wrinkle to that story. I never knew that was revenge. Ah. As Foley told it, it was literally just... Al didn't wear a jockstrap or underwear when he wore his singlet because he felt that... um, Because Al didn't groom down there. He was quite... um, quite hairy Ugh. so it, it chafed <laughs> so he went a little bit free and easy down there and Bob was like literally just he pulled it out and Foley told the, the, the story like when he did for the stall suplex like he thought it was just an accident because Bob always pulled on the tights to yeah. get up the leverage and he held it there and he couldn't see up Yeah, but it turns out that Bob knowingly exposed another man's member Bob did it on purpose and he said he got a huge pop for it like uh, Did uh, Al give a big pop when he got put on a registered sex offender's <laughs> list? <laughs> now you can't go to Iowa anymore. Oh, this is great as well. He said that Al had a little willy, which is funny. For fuck's <laughs> sake, Bob! Uh, and then apparently later on, Al got him back by shoving his thumb up Bob's ass. Like this is fucking what is this? weird, isn't it? This like, is this is just the weird. Like you look, this is the hellscape. Like look into the mirror. What will I see? Many things. <laughs> you look in. Oh, it's fucking the Steiner brothers sticking a pencil up someone's ass. Like you know, it's just. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> Wrestling's weird, hazing fraternity bullshit, and fixation with shoving shit up people's asses. Oh, all right. And doing, you've heard of Bradshaw in the yeah. showers. What the fuck is going on in wrestling at that time? But we're not gay. None of us are gay. Never would consider being well, it's, gay. It's not like, like they're playing video games or not drinking at them. Ugh, like the current wrestling. Patently homosexual activities. Like, <laughs> fucking hell. What the fuck is... Bob, go to a fucking therapist, man. <laughs> Like, that small willy exposing the willy, thumb up an ass, like, loving men hitting you, like, there's something, you, you've got issues, man. These are the ribs that are going back and forth between these lads, and then after he gets his thumb shoved up his ass, Bob gets his revenge by, before a hardcore match, he goes under the ring and swaps out the gimmick big, you know, the metal cooking trays they use, swaps them out for real, no! like, iron ones. <laughs> No. And then, like, kill Steve Blackman and Iron. <laughs> Teach you to put your thumb up my ass. I'm gonna murder you. Now I'm gonna kiss you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not. Please don't get me wrong. That I'm like taking. There's anything wrong with anyone who wants to do that? No, this it's is because it's hyper, Bob Holly. Like, yeah, this hyper displays of heterosexuality. I went to boarding school. And when I hear stuff like, I went to an all boys boarding school, and when I hear stuff like that, and that kind of like, I'm not gay, yeah. fucking chest beating bullshit, it's like really strange. Like, <laughs> animals in a fucking zoo, the way yeah, you're acting. Like, in a, then I shat in a corner where Bob was getting chained and I threw it at him, like, you know, <laughs> fucking freaks. Like, calm down, like. 24-7 hardcore title comes around. Bob was not a fan of this gimmick. Really? Yeah, he thought it was devaluing the title. By va- yeah, because it valued Crash Holly. Like. He, he genuinely thought it devalued and damaged the championship. And he hated that someone like Terry Runnels could have held the hardcore title, even though it was a fucking gimmick. Like, Oh, I mean, like, 
Come I, on, it's I the hardcore belt. That's the thing. I so disagree. It was already the fucking lowest belt on the rung. It brought like a new flavor to wrestling. It had some comedy, some entertainment. Like, yeah, and it was a fucking hardcore division. It wasn't prestigious in any way whatsoever. All it did was like, give it legs, and you know, got a lot of great comedy on screen. Mm-hmm. And I got your kayfabe cousin over. Yes, legit. But like, if they didn't do twenty four seven, it just would have. Stop! Like, yeah. like the run that like the hardcore division when when started when Bob and Al and you know Mankind and all that in you know ninety eight it was grand like it was good couldn't have gone on though but it like, was the yeah, end there was a very limited shelf life on that like but in the first few months they're fucking fighting in the Mississippi River and shit like, yeah there was no way they could have like kept it going like oh twenty four seven was fucking great I know I was disappointed to see that he was so down on it we do get a little bit of talking about the uh, hardcore spectacular from WrestleMania two thousand here Jesus with the Christ. blown ending. So, this is it at the end here. He grabs the candy jar and he smashes it over Taz's head. He went down. Crash was out and I covered him. As the ref, Timmy White, made the count, he said, We nailed this perfect. (laughs) Timmy couldn't look at the screen, so somebody backstage counted him down over his earpiece. Crash stayed down and Timmy pulled his arm just before he was about to hit three because the bell was meant to ring to signify time had expired. The problem was that the guys backstage who were counting Timmy down weren't in sync with the clock on the screen. Well, that's their fucking fault, Exactly. So it looked like I'd pinned Crash with two seconds left. They made a snap decision backstage and had Howard Finkel announce that I had won the match, not Crash. They had Crash's music queued up and played that, but they looked out since he and I used the same music. Crash wasn't upset because he didn't go over as planned. He didn't even care about that. He was just glad to have a job and enjoyed what he was doing. Backstage, management said, we'll fix it on Raw and switch the belt back to Crash, which they did. Even so, the agents and Vince himself chewed Tim White out. That seemed really unfair to me. It was not his fucking Literally fault. Literally not his fault. That's like, so fucking shitty. Such a complicated spot to try and do with the countdown syncing up. Like, mm. you've got to have it, the guy in his ear getting it perfect. Like, God, you think a little bit more thought would have went into that hardcore spectacular Like, You'd think. You'd God. really think. He talks about The Rock here. So he just basically starts to talk about some of the uh, the bigger guys. And he says like that The Rock was a genuine, really sweet guy. Never had a big head. Even when he grew in confidence mm. and he became more successful, he never had a big ego about him. He was always very humble and very genuine. He was very proud of The Rock for being able to go to Hollywood and to make it there. But he's not seen many of The Rock's movies. He saw the other guys, the one with Samuel L. Jackson. He thought it was pretty good. However, The Chaperone, he did try and watch. And he said it was just pathetic and he had to shut it off because it sucked. It's the furthest thing from a popcorn classic that there is. Like, we started off this little section here where he's talking about, like, yeah, people like The Rock, who's a great guy. And then literally just segued once again into, yeah, but everything Hunter does fucking shit, mate. I don't like Hunter. Cheeky plug time. We did do, we managed to get to the end of The Chaperone, unlike Bob Holly. And we Mm. have done a commentary track on it, as well as The Scorpion King and a bunch of others recently. If you become a Dan Severnbacker, even for one month, you get all of our commentary tracks for free. And I can tell you that we had a little bit more patience, but The Chaperone is fucking awful. I can't remember anything of it, you know. I was thinking about a scene from The Chaperone of the day involving a school bus and, like, a building that was collapsing. And then I remembered, oh, wait, that's Spider-Man Homecoming. Like, that's not The Chaperone. Like, I don't remember anything about that film. You guys, I don't feel so good. <laughs> The Rock had proved that guys could go off and be successful doing outside ventures like films and TV. And even Triple H had had a pretty decent run on Saturday Night Live. He said his appearance on that was funny. Yeah, Blade Trinity, man, don't forget. Oh, have you 
actually seen that film. Him and Ryan Reynolds on the screen at the same time. I'm, I'm sorry, I ordered a beef sandwich, not a double beef steak sandwich. <laughs> have you seen Blade Trinity? Uh, I've not seen. I've seen the scenes oh, of Triple heaven. H in it. That's all. There's not enough Triple H to do it for a commentary track, but me and you should just for fun one night just watch Yay! that. There's, there's a bit. <laughs> It's a great line where Triple H, who's like, this is like a bit pudgy, clean-shaven Triple H, <laughs> as, as looking like Gaston. Like, Gaston Triple H. With his sleeves rolled up. With his pink shirt. Like. All I'll say is there's a scene where he just he turns and looks at a guy straight away and goes, oh yeah, and when did you see my dick? <laughs> <laughs> we'll watch it together, pal. It's great. Earlier, when we were having sex. <laughs> So he talks about the movies and opportunities like that, but he says the office would keep guys from getting these opportunities. A bit like CM Punk mentioned on that mm. podcast. Like, apparently there was a movie studio that really wanted Test for a movie, but management just didn't tell Test about it. They just blocked him from it altogether. Test. Yeah, apparently they saw something in Test. They wanted him for something. There was... There's times, though, with guys like that where you can kind of feel where they're like, oh, no, you can't have them yet because... I don't think they're comfortable, even still, with their guys becoming big stars or bigger stars elsewhere until they've reached a certain level of stardom in WWE. Well, you think your test, you've just had your nose broken five times in storylines this year. You look like a huge putz on TV. If you go off to a movie studio and do an acting gig and it goes well, you might get offered more. Maybe wrestling ain't so hot after all. Well, I'm just saying, like, Kevin Nash managed to get a pretty handsome fucking career being a tall blonde lad who says nothing in, like, loads of fucking movies oh yeah oh yeah mates with fucking Tom Cruise and he was asleep half the fucking time like <laughs> Tess could have done a ten times better job like you know eating a ravioli in the fucking film yeah there's a <laughs> s- scene in the Punisher where he's meant to fight him but instead he's just got this big ravioli <laughs> Fun fact, right? If you've watched our WrestleMania 19 video, where I think we made that joke, yeah, we, we referenced that. Like Adam, like what Adam is doing is editing. He often will message me and stuff, or like call me asking for certain clips, and kind of like, I'll have to spend a bit of time trying to find them. And even though it was like five years ago, it's like uh, that clip where Kevin Nash eats a load of ravioli and shit and straight away, like yeah, here it is. <laughs> Bookmarks, <laughs> like, Favorites, like you, know, you know, Chrome's got like, your most visited videos. <laughs> 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 so he talks about this is something that we only learned about a couple months back ourselves Kevin Operation Sandman oh, Bob got man. offered a role on a made for TV movie with Ron Perlman on sci-fi yep uh, it was going to be filmed in Mexico and that's pretty much all he's got to say about that he really had, he had a good time on the set it was easy work it was it made a nice difference from wrestling where you've got to get everything in one take he liked that they had opportunities to redo stuff he didn't stay in touch with anyone from the movie industry, and he never did any more acting. That's all you've got to say about that. I swore he would have been in Wrestlers vs. Zombies. Oh, man, yeah, that totally seems like the kind of thing Bob would show yeah. up in. Like, yeah. Chapter 23, an unfortunate break. Puts over Kurt Angle strong at the start of this chapter here. I was like, going to say, an unfortunate break is the uh, really bleak, neo-noir, late 90s reboot of Big Break. Like... <laughs> Where if John Virgo misses a trick shot, his assets get seized. So, ah, <laughs> oh, poor old John. Sorry, John. That's an unfortunate break. Pop your top off. Give me the waistcoat. It's mine now. Um, so he puts over Kurt Angle strong. He says, that in his opinion, from 2002 onwards, he should have been the man, not Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Again, just any chance to bring up that Triple H didn't deserve to be in that spot. We've still not really. Is it still just? Is it the click? And that's it. Like, or no, no, no. There's, there's Triple more. H specifically. He's got a lot of beef with that. We'll we'll get into it. He just 
I mentioned it in part one. He keeps teasing his opinions on Hunter throughout the book, like, and it's very up and down. But it's the fact that it's like every opportunity he can to segue into it. Does he realize like how fucking like obsessed I, he sounds? I'm already on Triple H's side yeah, now. Like, I know. don't get me wrong. I'm very open to you know Triple H being a fucking piece of work because mm. he's done some really shitty things in wrestling. Don't get me wrong, but like it just feels like. He's coming across like Russo's opinions on Cornette or vice versa. Yeah. Like it's kind of like, oh, I've got a real bugbear with this guy. Let and it go, like... I know you hate him as well, so I don't have to explain myself. Well, you know what? In 2018, you do need to explain yourself, so it better be fucking good. I, I think Bob <laughs> blames Triple H for a lot of his career's shortcomings. And he doesn't say that so explicitly, but he mm. whinges a lot about the effect Triple H had on the rest of the company. Mm. And we will get more into that as we go along. But for now, yeah, he puts over Kurt Angle massive, talks about how he's one of the greatest of all time and was one of the quickest to take to wrestling. And we get, I'm sure you've heard about this, the match where Kurt and Bob were working together. Kurt was doing the gimmick where he was doing moonsaults and never hitting them. And mm. Bob was like, well, fuck that. You've got to hit it once in a while. Hit it on me. And, you know, Kurt never having hit it on someone before, they completely misjudged it, and Kurt's knee came down on Bob's elbow and broke his arm, like, straight away. Really horrible botch. He snookered him good and proper. For fuck's sake, Kevin, leave it. <laughs> uh, apparently, Angle is, like, crazy apologetic and, like, goes above and beyond to try and make good to Bob. That's Kurt's first big, like, injury he caused to another wrestler. Yeah, he'd have been there for only, like, 12 months at this point, if that. Yeah. So, like, I'm not surprised he felt bad, but Bob, was, Bob was taken aback. Like, Kurt was apparently driving him around, oh, would, like, man. carry his bags up to his hotel. Like, apparently, like, carried Bob's bags up to his hotel, got him checked in, and was like, if you need anything, just let me know. And Bob was, like, settling down, and then, like, half an hour later, there's a knock at the door, and Kurt's there with a load of food, like, oh, I bought food. Oh, Jesus, like, like, I know, he's such a nice guy. I literally, I just think there, like, when The Rock didn't even fucking talk to McFoley after Rumble 99, oh, like... Oh, I know! Uh, was, can you imagine if Kurt had done something like that, like, fucking giving him a foot rub afterwards? Oh, like. and yeah, and Bob's super appreciative of this. He said all of it was unnecessary. He didn't expect or want Kurt to do any of that. He really appreciated it and said that's just the kind of guy that Kurt is. Wow. Bob has the surgery on his arm, and while he's recovering, apparently Kurt's, like, phoning him every week. Oh. Kurt and Karen are, like, sending care packages to Bob's house for, like, while he's at home injured. Like, apparently they're just, like, a couple of sweet people, and they felt dreadful about what happened, like... That is literally one of the most heartwarming things... I know. ...I have ever heard. That it's is nice, so fucking lovely. This book is great for, like... Bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. Really nice story. Oh. Bitterness, bitterness. Like, Vince McMahon gave Bob a car. What? Like. The furthest thing from a man you say, though. <laughs> the furthest. So while he's out injured, he hangs out with more of his racing pals, and they build another car, and he races it around for a bit. Goes back to the WWF, hoping that they'll have some sort of logical revenge angle where he can come back for Kurt and put him in a feud. <laughs> Nothing of the sort, obviously. He's just hardcore Holly, after all. That's like... I, I get the frustration with stuff like that because I think it's something I've mentioned before on the podcast is like that's something that's gone now where someone's injured and they come back and they want their revenge because you you broke that you took my arm you make broke it into my, an angle yeah like... make it into an angle you can there's so many places to go but the really sad thing is that that's what they used to do back then in yeah. the year 2000 the fact that that didn't happen is like really fucking weird yeah you know I really think it's weird. just because they knew that Kurt was already on a different level to Bob at that point yeah. like, it was very obvious where oh. Kurt was going and where Bob was going chapter 24 the end of the war 
Molly Holly arrives. Bob hey. is pleased, like because she's a good worker. She's one of the women that he does respect. And it's going to mean more TV time for him and Crash. So it can only be a good thing getting another character. It's a shame she'll have to wrestle, though, because no one wants to see that. Oh, has she got tits and an has, ass? Has she has an she, ass? Because, I mean, people aren't going to watch if she hasn't got them. Like... Be quiet, Jerry. Shh, shh. <laughs> so confusing. <laughs> what are you seriously? Like, it's like spinning pace. These aren't pace. These are fucking aubergines. Like, it's so like, you know, <laughs> you don't even know where you're going with this, Bob. Like... He says none of them were that close, him, Molly, and Crash. But around this time, he did like get a bit close with Crash. Apparently, they got on relatively well. Crash did have a lot of personal issues, though. Apparently, there was a woman that he had a child with and causing him a lot of grief in terms of support payments and stuff. He doesn't go into who's in the right and who's in the wrong there, but it was very dramatic, apparently. All I heard is that Crash had like a serious, uh, tumultuous personal life mm-hmm. and that he was known to party and partake a fair bit. Like. Oh yeah, apparently he had a huge alcohol problem and he was starting to get more and more difficult backstage. Apparently he was just less and less agreeable to work with, caused problems and eventually got released in 2003. Really sad. Apparently Crash's life was like falling apart and he, he, had nowhere released, to, like... he had nowhere to stay. Like apparently he was Jesus. staying at Stevie Richards' place. Yes, that's, like, that's where he died. When he passed, yeah. yeah. Which is just so fucking horrible. And yeah, Bob doesn't really talk a great deal about his relationship with Crash. It's very obvious they weren't pals, but Bob wasn't really pals with anyone, to be and Bob fair. wasn't a partier anyway no. that much either. So it's kind of like, yeah, I, I, I see why they wouldn't have bonded or gelled that much. Yeah. It's just sad because, I mean... I know so little about... I've only heard little snippets here and there because Crash, I guess, was never a big enough star for people to talk extensively about that time in his life. But it's you could very easily see, like, he got over, and he got over, like, fucking Rover. Like, he got over so strong with that 24-7 gimmick. And you could see, like, if around this time the pressure is ramping up, the personal demons or whatever you want to call yeah. them are, are ramping up, and then all of a sudden his push goes away. It's kind of like you can see why they stopped pushing him because he was too much... Hassle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He he made it worse for himself, but mm. it is a really sad situation. And Bob does talk about it quite respectfully. Like he doesn't blame Crash for any of his problems or anything. He doesn't blame the company for what they did. It was just a sad thing that happened. He can be pretty fair-handed with a lot of folks in this book. It just depends on who it is. Is he any and like... if, if they passed or not? Like to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I mean, like... like for me, that speaks to a failing on the, the, the culture of wrestling at the time. Mm. You know the the excessive partying and the drinking and the the fact that you can that can go on and yeah. not be kind of no one intervenes no one says a word it's kind of viewed as like if you don't if you're not doing that then you've got a fucking problem it's like well yeah. you're, you're not partying like you know it's well you say that but at least back then the guys weren't playing video games or using instagram or anything at least oh, they man. weren't going that far like i've heard people on their phones using twitter i know the business is on its arse. Unbelievable. It's fucking, disgusting. fucking disgusting. WCW goes down. He says that while everyone speculated that there was going to be the WCW show and that was supposedly the plan to keep it as a separate show, he thinks it was always Vince's idea to shut them down and kill them dead because Vince McMahon hates competition. I mean, it's I mean, it's not. That wasn't the plan. I mean, it literally wasn't the plan. Like, it's it's Vince probably subconsciously was like I'm. Like, I think Vince, because it was such a big paradigm shift, and we're going to probably get into more of this when we finish off the, the invasion angle, but I kind of feel that, yeah, Vince, like, was open to the idea probably solely because this was new territory with the no competition. Mm-hmm. And it was probably only through doing it that he was able to convince himself. 
by booking them badly that it wasn't going to work. Yeah. He made evidence for himself. That's like, totally how Vince's brain works. Yeah. I'm sure there's a million examples of things that he's booked like that. Yeah, like, Vince is like, kind of reminds me of like, I used to read an animal, when I did animal behavior research, I used to read about all these people who were like, like there's huge issues with people making up data to kind of suit their, their kind of hypotheses or whatnot. Right. So it's kind of like, I know this to be true deep down. I I do, and I have a little bit of information that will tell me this. So I'm just going to generate this false yeah, info, or kind because of, I'm right anyway. It doesn't yeah, matter if I've made it up. Exactly, like, I'm not harming anyone because I am right. I'm right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my fake evidence that I have made has says I am right. So and it's just it's just lying in there. Yeah. Like. He thinks it was silly how they handled the invasion, and yes, it would have cost serious money to bring in Goldberg or Sting or one of the huge names, but you would have made double that money back. And I've got to agree with him on that. Like, it would have been worth the investment. Absolutely. Even if you bring him in for one fucking pay per view, you would have made fucking gangbusters. Think about the money you could have made if you had Goldberg stalking Steve Austin's wife <laughs> or. Kevin Nash stalking The Rock's wife or just there were so many top stars and so many WF guys who had wives <laughs> they could have all been stalked like you know they, well, they could have all played second fiddle to The Rock yeah like. plenty of cameras they had loads of long lenses specific quote about DDP here he would sit down and write out the whole match in great detail three to four pages of writing he would actually write things like we circle each other to the left and we lock up and I take your arm I'll punch you and you'll sell my punch and grimace he would actually write facial expressions in his match plans it was unbelievable he even tried to dictate what Taker should do in his in the ring at one point that's why he ended up on TV getting pinned by Taker's wife unless you're Vince you don't tell Taker what to do ever yeah i mean i believe that i believe I that totally buy that the only thing i'll say about ddp is that it's kind of like i get that approach it's the type of i mean there are a lot of podcasters out there for instance who will have like an essay written yeah and that's that's the intro they're either you know people think we script like our podcast really? I, I know really? i know adam's got some bullet points and stuff like i usually have bullet points but you know i don't i i write way more than you like i look at your notes sometimes when you're talking and i'm like how did he remember that from the word like chronic <laughs> the, the word the, the, like the only issue i ever have is not being able to read my own writing because mm. i'll be yeah and then like you know i'll write this kind of like horrible scroll but like that's not for me. Like, if you're someone who does a podcast and it's like to introduce this, like, you know, when I do my all my plugs and stuff at the end, I never have anything written down or I do yeah. any plugs to start. It's just kind of like, I'll say the thing, I'll do it. But that's how I work. Everyone works differently. Yeah. If you need to write your stuff out, that's fine. I just find it's like sad that in wrestling that like people are so opposed to that. I think what it is, is because I, I, I think it's totally fine to have the sort of need to write out the match and plan it. But I think it's more people took umbrage with the fact that DDP would be like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. And, and like, then your face will be Yeah, this. it's like, it's, so yeah. who are you to tell me what to do? Bob actually got put with DDP to work one day and like Chris Benoit like said to him like, oh, good luck with that. Like, you're going you're gonna to have fun with him. Uh, and he'd heard about how DDP would like want to meet up like four hours before the match and go through it in meticulous detail. So Bob spent the entire afternoon avoiding DDP like the oh play. Oh my god! And he kept bumping into him, and DDP was like covered in sweat. Like, dude, we got to talk about this match. You got to, we got to quickly get it sorted out. And like, it got to the point where it was like five minutes before their match in Gorilla, and DDP comes running up like, 
I've been looking for you all day, man. We haven't talked about the match at all. And Bob's like, we're going to call it in the ring. And DDP's like, what are you on about, bro? Like, oh. like having a fucking nervous breakdown because Bob thinks it's funny. Like, like in his defense, you know, I could sit cross-legged on the couch because of that guy. So I feel I should rush to his defense to, to some extent. Just because of your DDP's how he got in and when he got into wrestling, I un- I can understand why he's like that. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's sad that no one was able to kind of work with him to get him off of that. Yeah. Feels like he spent his whole career with people either catering to that because, you know, he was in favor with Bischoff. So it's like, you have to do what DDP says. I feel like one or two people could have worked with him and kind of said, look, you don't need to write down everything. Yeah, why don't you try doing like we do and just do this style yeah, or like, like go through his matches with them and be like, look, see, it's fucking good. Because like, yeah. you know, Randy Savage used to write all his shit out as well. Yeah, I know. No like... one gives him shit about that except Ric Flair, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's weird. It's different for DDP, I mm. guess. He puts over Booker T huge, says that he was an absolute class act. When he came in, he behaved like a respectful rookie, despite the fact that he was already quite established in WCW. Like, he fucking loves Booker, and he says that Booker and Charmel are two of the nicest people he's ever known. Like uh, Booker, he's a fucking... Yeah, uh, Booker and the Invasion is a... That is a... a, a to use that Triple H quote you popped on the live show, like, to, to learn to, to eat shit and like, like the taste of it, because you're going to be eating shit. Plates and plates yeah, and plates. Yeah, Booker T did eat plates and plates and plates. He's going to like the taste of it because he's <laughs> going to have to eat shit. Many plates. <laughs> Stacks of plates. <laughs> of shit. We of thought it was hummus this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what shit looks like after eating all that hummus. Like, you know, it comes out the same way it goes in. What gifts? <laughs> Apparently, Vince had Bob and the APA intentionally batter the fuck out of the lower car WCW lads to yeah. send a message. That was the, uh, yeah, they were like the anti-invasion squad. Yeah. Like Chavo and fucking, you know, Sean O'Hare. They whipped the shit out of them boys, like... Welcome to the company now, fuck off. Like. Yeah, those great segments where it's like S.A. Rios and Scotty Juhati sitting in the back neatly in the corner where like Bradshaw is like beating Chris Canyon to a oh, bloody pub. Die, I want to kill you. Jesus. Bob gets very little pay-per-view work around this time, as we've actually noticed on the invasion. We've not Mate, seen Bob at all. What are you talking about? He whipped the shirt off the lads because it wasn't WCW New York. Oh, yes! It's, I w- forgot about it's not WCW New York. It's <laughs> WCW New York. And then, as well, I've been you know doing my research for, for the next few episodes where we'll be recording. Bob appeared on SmackDown, and mm-hmm. he said... He was at WF New York again, and he said... How come no one wants to fight the big shot? I'll fight anyone, WCW. And no one did, because they were afraid of Bob Holly. He called himself the big shot. He did, he used the big oh, shot in 2001. Still. Remember that? The name stuck, he said it in the book, Kevin. That's the name it. stuck. Just because you remembered it, Bob. <laughs> hey, remember when I did that thing last year? Yes. Yes, we remember. Get your cousin back. He must have been an expert on the menu. Because, like, you know, I'm obsessed with finding out the menu. <laughs> My friend Matt Ricardo sent me a scan of the menu. So I kind of went on and ring up Bob on Skype and be like, Bob, what were the pretzel sticks like? You know, <laughs> And the marinara slammers, what were they like? Who cares? <laughs> he got left off for WrestleMania 17 and 18. And he was very resentful of the fact that Kevin Nash and Scott Hall got welcomed back in so readily. Like, <laughs> he says that Scott Hall might be an alright guy in person, but when he's a drunk, he's a massive bully. And we mentioned this in part one, that Bob fucking detests Scott Hall. Like, you say he hates bullies. <laughs> well, that too. Like. But yeah, I mean, Scott in 2002, that was like, you know, you hear the stories about him coming in and like, just him and, him and Nash being like 
so fucking bad. You yeah. know, and I think because Scott had problems with alcohol at the time, you kind of think it gets like, I won't say excused, but like it very much was the mindset, alcohol or no alcohol, you know, Kevin Nash was, was sober enough when he was there. Mm. Them lads just had a fucking bad attitude. Like, yeah. you know, they thought they were better than, than everyone. And well, they it- thought, you know, they spent the last five years beforehand being the smartest Literally. guys in wrestling, yep. kept those big paychecks. And what's that? Oh, we missed that whole stupid invasion thing. Here we are Here now we are. with big paychecks again. You know, I, I a lot of people would have acted the same way as those lads because they fell arse backwards into fucking gold when they should have yeah. landed Yeah, shit. that's true. And they got away with it for such a long time. Like, yeah. that's why they were such egomaniacs because, like, no yeah. one fucking cut them down when they could have. So, yeah, he's very resentful about that. And he's just not really having a great deal of luck in the company at the minute. Hardcore Truth Part 10 competition. He says the WWE these days are complacent and will never be huge again. There's not enough competition and the industry as a whole would have been much better off if Bischoff successfully bought WCW. Don't think so. I don't think you can say the industry would be better off. I think the boom period may have lasted longer. I don't think there would have been such a huge downturn after the invasion if Bischoff was the one that got WCW and bought it out. Like, I mean, the only thing that would have happened, Adam, is simply because like, when we saw what XWF, it, it was a race to the bottom. There was mm. going to be someone who had a show that was a fucking monumentally distant number two yeah. that had the le- the scraps, the leftover guys who WWE didn't want mm. for one reason or another, be it fucking you know, bad bodies, bad blood, fucking bad demons, whatever it was. Bad bones. Bad bones, fucking bad vibes. Bad men selling bad jewels. <laughs> Making my own rules. <laughs> but like XWF, it's kind of like their money fell through. So then TNA managed to get, you know, the, the bit, the, there was only so much money going for wrestling. Yeah. And if, even if Bischoff bought WCW, people weren't going to advertise it. It wasn't going to be on any sort of decent TV. They would have had to go to a, a basic pay-per-view model or go to somewhere like, you know, it was a race to who was going to go to Universal Studios and start making weekly yeah, TV there, you know? Yeah. So it would have been just, if Bischoff bought WCW, I think all that would have happened was that WCW would be what TNA became. And it yeah. would have had the same ups and downs and almost, but not quite ifs, because no one could seem to get their fucking shit together and run a wrestling company mm. in those times. So, you know, because everyone was a fucking expert, weren't they? Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I still think that if, if that happened, you'd at least have the brand name, the recognition of WCW, and you wouldn't, more importantly, Vince McMahon wouldn't be able to say that he bought WCW yeah, and he true. owned the competition. And I think that would probably stick in Vince's craw. Like There would have been a little bit of perception and reality there in the fact that just because WCW had been successful in the past. And it still existed in some form. Yeah. I think that would have at least lit a little fire underneath WWF. Geez, you know what, Adam? Maybe we should go and look when Eric Bischoff ran TNA for a bit and see no, I, how I, that could have go then. I take That's it an back. excellent you point. You're totally right. It wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't, there's no point even <laughs> dwelling on it, Kevin. Let's next chapter twenty five. Tough times. So the brand split comes about, and Bob gets moved to SmackDown, where he works underneath Paul Heyman. Fucking loves Paul Heyman, and Paul apparently tried his best to get opportunities for him, but every time he went to management with an idea for Bob, it was always shot down. He talks about how up until this point, he'd never really had a proper finish. Like, he hadn't got, like, a really legit, solid finishing move. Like, what the fuck do you call the Falcon Arrow? It was, even, it was my finisher in SmackDown 2, for fuck's sake. <laughs> he actually said that he had, like, a drop kick off the top rope, which was great, and occasionally he would win a match with. Or sometimes he would occasionally do the Falcon Arrow for his finisher. 
Vince Russo wanted to solidify the Falcon Arrow as his finisher by rebranding it as the Holly Course. Oh my god in fucking heaven. Are you serious? The Holly Course. The Holly Course. Fucking hell, that's the most tactless fucking thing I've ever heard. Sorry, move over the final solution in WCW. We've got a new anti-Semitic fave in wrestling. Fucking hell. Yeah, he says that got stopped quickly when the office decided the name would offend a lot of people. You think? After I watched a whole bunch of documentaries on the subject, I understood. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> He's like, I don't see what the big deal is. Shh, 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 just watch. watch. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> Where are those Nazis at? <laughs> and then he goes on to say that Russo is the kind of guy that probably would have asked him to do the move on people like Bill Goldberg and Billy Kidman. Like, Yeah. 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 Bob invented the Alabama Slam when he saw a move that was nearly botched and he thought, like, oh, that would actually make a decent finisher. Uh, Vince wanted to call it the Alabama Slammer, but <sighs> Bob managed to talk him out of it. So, yeah, he invented and named that move himself, apparently. I like that because when that move gets done, it still gets called It's that. the Alabama Slam. Yeah, yeah, Bob has legitimately invented a move now. Tough Enough comes around and Bob gets involved with it in uh, season two I think he gets drafted into yes he said he likes the easy money and it was <laughs> easy money <laughs> he said it was easy work and it was a, a fun little gig but it was frustrating because MTV kept trying to interfere with all the decisions like oh, really no, no, don't send him home we want we want to keep him on the show for a little oh longer. my god he's serious and wow. apparently Bob was very much like we're trying to make we're trying to fucking recruit wrestlers here and we get it you're trying to make a reality TV show but you can't dictate to us what to do Apparently, Triple H was really opposed to Tough Enough. I've heard like, that, yeah. really didn't like the idea of exposing the business to the nth degree like that. I, I wonder mean, if that maybe was the reason he put on such a fucking macho attitude in that episode we watched. Like, yeah, that amongst many, amongst other reasons. I mean, I know he wasn't the only one. I've heard, like, likes of The Undertaker and whatnot as well. I'm sure Steve Austin. I mean, a lot of the top guys didn't like that. Mm. And a lot of, you know, like Jim Ross wasn't a fan of it. There was, like, a load of people who didn't like the idea, but it did, like, it opened the door for them to do reality, and mm. that's a really, whether you like it or not, folks, that's a really important part of the WWE model at the moment, is the reality shows. This is right at the boom of reality TV as well, and they're on fucking MTV, like, yeah. major network. Like, like it, it was still a big deal to get on MTV at that time, and... Well, it's interesting you say so many people took issue with Tough Enough because the only one he mentions is Triple H. Really? It's the only person he says that had beef with Tough Enough. Well, he is the furthest thing from a fan of <laughs> Tough Enough I've ever seen <laughs> the thing. Man. 2002 rolls around, Randy Orton gets hired, and JR gives Bob explicit instructions to beat the piss out of him and test his metal and wow. to see what he's made of. And That's apparently- a weird fucking... That's a weird slippery slope with Bob Holly. Oh, I know. Like, Does he go back to talk about Tough Enough anymore? Yes. Okay. Yeah, don't worry. There's a very specific incident. Yeah, I was, yeah. So I was thinking because I think the worst thing you could do with someone like Bob Holly is, is tell him to beat someone up. It's like, oh, no, we're not going to push you, but you're you're the guy we use to beat up people and see if they're tough for real. That's like, it's given like a, that's like giving the big bully in school the fucking hall man in their past. Yeah, you know? because then when Bob roughs someone up that they're not okay with, they're like, oh, no, 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 don't rough them up like that. 
just rough up the ones that we tell you to rough up like mm. and yeah I, I don't know I don't like the idea of it being JR being the one I know JR is not the fucking nice old granddad that we all want him to be but like I really hate the idea of JR being like you want to go and beat up that Randy Orton boy test his metal see what he's made of I take mean, him down the woodshed you don't need to say that to him though do you mean like Bob Holly was a young guy guess what he's gonna fucking <laughs> beat him up him, like, like you know that's like when JR is turning the fucking key in his car going this engine better turn on now like <laughs> no fucking shit old man he talks about how Randy took it on the chin and everyone was really impressed with how he took the beat in. He said that Randy's temper was fucking atrocious and he could be a huge ass most of the time, but he was a good guy. And once he became a father, that really mellowed him out quite a lot. Chapter 26, Pushing Through the Pain Barrier. This is where we get the big infamous Lesnar botch. What's your take on this whole botch? I have heard so many things about this, and... So, I'm... sorry, first of all, the botch itself, Lesnar goes for a powerbomb, and it looks like he can't quite lift Bob up all the way. They kind of, yeah, he does get him up pretty much, like, nearly there, and it looks like they're kind of struggling a bit, and then it looks like he brings him down, mm-hmm. like, kind of, you know, like, when Jeff Hardy in the match with The Undertaker, in the ladder match, where he does that thing, and he grabs the chair and smashes him Yeah. It looks like he's going in that position, and he just kind of, like, it looks like he dumps him on his head. Yeah, and he lands right on his neck. Now, the story I'd heard, the kind of, this is pre-Bob's book coming out, the story was, wrestling legend says that Bob was super stiff with Lesnar, and he was sandbagging him yep. was the word and that he wasn't selling any of his offense and making any of his stuff look good and Lesnar was, was told under strict orders that you fucking make sure if someone doesn't sell your stuff well then you fucking you toss them you're the fucking monster because yep. Lesnar was like champ at the time he was a big deal so what I heard was that Lesnar was like teach him a lesson and he dumped him on his head because Bob was being uncooperative with the power bombs so it was like fine and he dropped him on the ground and I don't think he intended to break his neck but he did intend to hurt Bob. To stiff him, yeah. As a receipt for Bob being not uncooperative. Uncooperative, yeah. That's what I'd always heard mm. all this time. Bob refutes all of that, says that's complete BS. BS, is, of course, is bogus stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with the idea that he would go to powerbomb me. I would sit out and land on my feet and we'd go into the finish from there. He was cool with that. Brock was very easy to work with, willing to listen and follow instruction. When the time came for us to go home, we set up for the powerbomb, but when he lifted me up, our timing was off. I jumped at a different time than he lifted, so I didn't manage the rotation I needed in order to get up on his shoulders. I tried to correct it, but we were both really sweaty. He tried to hold on to me, but he couldn't, and I ended up coming down on my neck. If you watch the footage, it looks like he drove me into the mat. As soon as I landed, I knew something was wrong. Everything in my neck just crunched. My whole body went numb. It was horrifying. Brock knew something wasn't right, so he gave me a moment to come back around as the ref asked if I was alright. When we got to the back, Brock was super upset, saying, Man, I'm sorry, I feel like shit. He was trying to blame himself. I told him it was all me because I hadn't managed to sit up on the powerbomb. He didn't drop me on purpose. I knew that much. Wow, well that completely changes it. And random little aside about that, but it's something that I think us as wrestling fans really don't consider is the physics and the reality of sweat mm. and how so often when a guy ha, ha, slips off the top rope or slips off doing a springboard it's because of sweat mm-hmm. and like I I think it dawned on me when I saw like Test wrestle live in like the, the leisure centre in Galway I was like Aww. good job big man and I tapped him on the back I was like <laughs> oh, God. you know uh, the, the slime has gotten me be careful I'll get you too but when you're trying to pick someone up and 
they're a big boy like Bob Holly. I can as soon as you said that we were both they were both sweaty, that clicked with me. It's kind of like oh shit, I can see that they're losing the grip and it kind of yep. looking going down and trying to hold them up. That makes me look at it in a whole other light. Yeah, and he just. And it's something that he goes over a lot in the book is how fans are very quick to believe something that fits with the current narrative. Mm. Like, Bob Holly's a bully, so it makes sense that he would sandbag Brock and then look getting his ass kicked for it. But that's like 2004. I think a real problem that people have, and it is a difficult thing, particularly at that time period, is because that was the early days of the internet and you know, people posting on message boards and stuff like that. I still consider 2004 to be early days because it's before social media, mm. before you know there was a lot more verified stuff going around, I guess that the legends became reality very like in a lot of cases particularly with botches the legends became reality particularly if it, the legend also fits in with the viewpoint of oh Brock Lesnar's a mean bastard or Bob Holly doesn't sell and Bob Holly's mm-hmm. a sandbagger and you know Bob Holly's the kind of guy who won't sell and got, gets punished and actually if you really sit down and think about the reality of it well like Brock would have been fired if he did that you yeah. know, Bob could have sued him for you know millions and millions of dollars yeah. you know, purposely breaking a man's neck mm-hmm. just like when you don't look at it with the I heard this thing when I was 15 yeah. years old and it's funny because like, I was talking with Joe about recently it's like you know now I'm 30 now so I, I now I look back and I can kind of go like oh shit my early 20s there's a lot of shit that I thought to be true that was total bullshit but when you're in your, like, your mid-twenties or even your early twenties, you kind of refuse to believe that stuff that you thought to be true when you're 18 or 19 was bullshit. Because mm. it's like, I don't know, like five years ago, of course I had my shit together. I was still grown about? up then. Yeah. Because yeah. as soon as I hit 18, I was okay and knew everything about everything. Well-rounded. like. So it's not the case. I think there's a lot of times with, with wrestling rumors. A lot of them. That it runs away with it. Particularly with some of Bob Holly, where unfortunately there's not enough spotlight on it. Yeah, and if it fits his reputation, you're like, oh, that sounds about right. Brock and Lesnar ain't doing no shoot interview to clear the exactly. air. Exactly. <laughs> and, like, and like you say, with it being from like the really early wrestling internet stuff, like 2004, by the time fans like me come along where I'm like getting into wrestling seriously in like 2011, 2012 and like reading online about it more, at that point it's like been years established. It's accepted fact. Like it's been years since this thing happened and we all know, like, of course, yeah, Brock stiffed him because Bob was sandbagging him. Like everyone knows that. Oh, yeah. And then Stephanie McMahon was only 16 and Macho Man Randy Savage had sex with her, didn't yeah. he? And that's why, uh, it's not though. It's, it's yeah, like, it's, you know. that's the thing. There's so many wrestling legends that I think just probably have been carried away but you're right like the only other person that could really tell you what the truth is on this is Brock Lesnar and that ain't gonna happen anytime soon (laughs) so at first Bob just thinks like that was a bit of a stinger like that really fucking hurt my neck it's just gonna be another one of these things like a nagging injury that I'll have to work through until it goes away carries on as usual and he gradually notices more and more things like aren't right like you know just getting like tingling in his hands so he continues wrestling or just yeah yeah he, he carries on working Jesus I thought it was like backstage you know, he knows straight away and that's it. Like, it is, he's out fucking working. God, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, he's still, like, doing small matches and, like, there was, he was keeping the staff informed about how he was feeling and, like, how he just wasn't quite right. But he was, like, getting put in tag matches and he said there was one match where he got tagged in and he went in to do some moves and it felt like he hit a guy and it felt like he was the one that got hurt out of that Jeez, exchange. Do you think he actually took an, he probably took an F5 after that fucking match? Yeah, I know, well. right for the finish. Like, oh my God. The first time that he realises maybe something serious is up is when he can't lift a lasagna out of the fridge. Oh my God! And he's like, what the hell? Fucking hell, the Garfield nightmare become reality, like. <laughs> and then at that point he's like, okay, maybe now I should go and get it. Look. Yeah, yeah, it was like when my fucking neck felt like it was broken, you know, in the ring. That, no. 
that's not it. But when I can't get my lasagna, <laughs> I hate Mondays. <laughs> so he gets an MRI, which reveals a ruptured disc in his neck, cracked vertebrae, and pinched nerves. Jesus Christ! So fucking that's a bad that's a bad go. Triple whammy, and he's meant to be taking time off to recover when he gets a phone call asking him to do a cameo in Tough Enough Three. So he gets a call from Big John Gaborik, basically saying we need you to come down and just like do some work for one episode. Just come along and talk to some of the rookies. Dude, you'll be my bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's got a book we can read at some point. Big Child Gaborik is my new favourite thing to do. <laughs> hey, you guys. Making prank calls and shit. <laughs> so this is where we get the Matt Capitelli incident, obviously. You, ah, yes. You knew he had to write about this. So Matt Capitelli, in case you didn't know, he was one of the winners of Tough Enough Season 3. Mm-hmm. Many people view him to have been, out of all of the people who have come through Tough Enough, including Morrison and Miz and a young Ryback Ryan Reynolds. Bleh. I was called Ryback Ryan Reynolds. It's <laughs> my new favourite character. Like Ryback Ryan Reynolds hitting the ring here. But out of all of the people who have come through, apparently he was the one who was most like the natural, like, big tall fucking beautiful blonde kid built like a brick shit house he could talk he could move fast he could fly he had it pretty much all mm-hmm. and he is unfortunately known primarily for having like uh, having endured a really like lengthy horrible battle with cancer mm-hmm. brain cancer yeah. of which he had to retire from wrestling and you know, the news most recently, we're in kind of summer 2018 here, and the news most recently is that um, you know he had to stop treatments for uh, a more uh, aggressive form of cancer that has come back even after he got cleared of his original diagnosis. Yeah, it's not looking good. So basically, it is probably one of the saddest stories mm-hmm. in wrestling in terms of, here's a guy who had it all, and... You know, it, it, I put it as in, on powers of tragedy with like some of the young Von Erics and stuff, just in kind of like a what could have been. Yeah. His speech in OVW when he had to announce his retirement is probably in like 2006 is one of the most emotional things ever, and he's also remembered for in Tough Enough season three. Bob Holly took a liberty or twenty with him in the ring. Let's just say. Yeah, they were doing a, a segment where they were doing lots of tag wrestling between the rookies and the ring. And the rookies were like smiling and laughing while they were wrestling, having a good time. And the boys were not happy about this. Having so. a good time wrestling? Uh-uh. Not on my watch. So they switched it up where they like had Bill DeMott, Al Snow and Bob Holly like wrestle against some of these lads. Jesus fucking like, Bill DeMott and Bob Holly in the fucking same room. Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, that's just some attitude, shall we? Yeah. And yeah, you know what happened. Bob roughs up Capitelli. Like, he- I mean, we say rough up. He, have you seen the footage? Yeah, I have. It's fucking gross. He chucks him into the corner, mm-hmm. big open hand chops, and then comes the stomps. Yep. And the only thing I can compare the stomps to is, I don't know if you've seen in CZW, there was a time, it was Zandig or Nick Gage, someone basically is like, the other guy like owed him fucking money or some fucking shit, and he starts kicking and stomping on him, and literally he was just full force booting him in the face, and it was... Jesus He literally Christ. kicked him to a bloody pulp. And it's not that level, obviously, but... Bob's laying it in yeah. as much as you can lay it in without being like a policeman coming in and putting him in handcuffs. It's as much as you can do without like actually injuring someone. Like... And you know what? Speaking about Bill DeMott here, the best thing Bob Holly ever did for his fucking career was not become an agent or a trainer because you know exactly the environment oh God, in yes. Florida Championship Wrestling and Deep South and all the territories at the time, the environment was such that Bob Holly and, you know, he hasn't... Nothing's come out that he's done anything of the sort, but you know, in a position of power and the mentality that was there and the likes of Bill DeMott and the way they treated those fucking kids, 
you know he would have had a fucking lawsuit on his yeah. hands. Off the back of the whole Bildermott thing, there definitely would have been people being like, well, actually, while we're talking about this, Hardcore Holly was a similar thing. Like, So, yeah, you're right. He was very smart not to become an agent. Yeah, really. and if you don't like, know what Bildermott did, fucking Google it, and he's one of those reprehensible pieces of shit ever. Yeah. I hate him so much, I don't even like his cool heel entrance music anymore. And that was one of my... It had a fucking harmonica, you piece of shit. I love that. <laughs> So, that's the gist of the Matt Capitelli incident, yeah. as it's known to the wider wrestling community. People don't like Bob for that. That's where Bob got the bully there. That's, yeah, that's a huge, huge part of Bob's reputation, is this one incident. So, it was Matt's fault, obviously, because he didn't keep still and wasn't following Bob's lead. Bob was obviously in there to teach him a lesson and teach him some respect, and Matt should have just gone along with it and taken his lumps rather than keep flailing around and getting himself more hurt. It was Matt's fault that he got hurt so bad. And even then, he didn't get hurt that bad. Bob said that he's roughed up wrestlers way worse in the past, he's been roughed up way worse in the past, and that Matt was being a pussy for getting so upset over it. They show Matt crying on TV the next day, and he makes him sound like a coward. He says the whole thing was just taken way out of proportion. He wasn't cut out for the wrestling business. There was no way he was tough enough. Man, you know what? I'm not going to say it. Matt Capitelli, a fucking natural-born star. Like, that's literally... That was apparent when he was on fucking Tough Enough. Not what Bob says. That's so fucking... That's so sad. He said he had a black eye and a busted lip. I can't tell you how many black eyes and busted lips I've had, and not once did I ever complain about it. And... It's the mentality, though, that you're meant to be there to teach, and you can... You can teach and you can impart wisdom and you can get them to your mindset without taking such physical liberties with them. You, you know, For a TV show as well. Like. If I was a trainee wrestler and we were having a bit of fun in the ring, I think what would be helpful is if the trainer got in the ring and said, like, lads, fucking snap out of it. This is a job. You're going to be serious. You're going to yeah. take this seriously. You're going to look like your com- competitors fighting each other. I think I would understand that as opposed to a big angry man getting in the ring and beating me up until I understand his lesson. Does he he think he can't impart this lesson or can't put across his viewpoint without taking liberties with someone? That's the wrestling industry, isn't it? I'm so glad it's away from that. He never justifies it as like, and this is the reason this is the most effective way to teach somebody. He never tries to explain why this is the done thing. It just is the done thing. And that's how it's done and that's how it should be done. One of the worst parts of wrestling's past that I think is still pervasive in the world today yep. and Jesus Christ you know what I still worry when I hear that there are so many like you know there's so many wrestling schools now and if you're going to go to wrestling school and they're fucking doing shit like that you know it's not on like no. you can be trained you know Lance Storm ain't fucking kicking people in the fucking face no. you know you're there to learn for if fuck's the fucking sake. Dudley boys can turn out fucking yeah. recruits who get signed to fucking major companies without doing this type of a sh- thing you know yeah. you don't need to do that no, totally a generational oh, thing oh no but like... it was done to us well fuck what was done to you then you should know how much it sucks so you legit. shouldn't do it to the next legit. generation all these people that write in their biographies about how grueling their training was how miserable it made them running for fucking miles in the freezing cold yeah being have sympathy for at, me like, also I'm gonna do it to you yeah like <laughs> fuck off you know I'm, I'm so happy that it's slowly getting washed away over time mm. like Hopefully it won't be around for much longer, that kind of mentality. So he feels bad for Matt's brain tumour and everything that happened in his personal life after the fact, but he hasn't got any regrets about what he did, and he thinks that people are being very silly for reacting so strongly to it. He does not back down from that stance. 
There you go. Yeah, I know. That's that's that. There's nothing more you can say about it. He was determined to come back from his injury and to get on the WrestleMania 20 card. Good luck with that, Bob. <laughs> Maybe he didn't beat up enough fucking trainee wrestlers hard <laughs> enough. Like Cena murdered one of them this year. That's how he got a spot in WrestleMania 20. Hardcore Truth Part 11, Genuine Toughness. So now, straight from a, an incident of that magnitude, he talks about all the people in wrestling that can take their oh, legs. I see who are genuinely tough. The real man. So he talks more about how it's not ballet, it's a contact sport, you've got to be tough to survive. He runs down the real-life badasses such as Steve Blackman, Bradshaw and Farouk, Finley, Shelton Benjamin, Brian Kendrick and Paul when London. Brian Kendrick and London? Br- Brian Kendrick and Paul London are two guys that he makes sure to mention as... They weren't the biggest guys, they weren't the toughest looking thunder bitches, but they were not afraid to give as much as they took. Hands are kind, everyone! <laughs> Goofballs! <laughs> Other side of the coin, there are many guys that aren't as tough as WWE want you to think they are. <gasps> Triple H, would you believe? Really? Isn't as tough as WWE want you to I think. I always thought he was a tough guy, though, Adam. John Cena, Kevin Nash, Stone Cold Steve Austin... Dave Batista. He respects that Batista's going for MMA because that's what's going on when this book's being written. But he doesn't think he's going to go far. And it was just one match against an out-of-shape guy. He got lucky. He doesn't see Batista lasting long. He was a bum, Batista! (laughs) He was a tomato can! And he talks again about what we mentioned last time about MMA. He respects Brock's running MMA and he says that if it was, like, with 20 years younger, he would love it to have been in MMA when he was in his prime. Steve Austin's not tough. Yeah, no, Steve Austin ain't tough, apparently. Not I as tough as WWE wants you to think. I, it's you know what, because it's like I get it if you kind of think like, oh, you know, but the character on TV, you know, the toughest SOB. Da, da, da. I just kind of think independently of that, and just like knowing his story and how fucking hard he had to work, mm. and like he fucking crawled his way through the fucking every fucking company and opportunity, and busted his fucking ass. Whatever about his personal, his personal life, his personality, just in terms of like. If that doesn't, that doesn't equate to toughness, I don't know what the fuck does. Yeah, bouncing back from a fucking neck injury, like... Yeah, I mean, you think you have a little bit of a <laughs> sympathy there. You'd think. You think a little bit, like... Chapter 27, coming back for Brock. You broke my neck, Brock. <laughs> I remember that he was in a black, black room, like, oh, you broke my neck, Brock, and then crashed you when I'm... I ain't happy about that. <laughs> I'm fixing to wrestle you now. Like. How do you like me now? <laughs> well, guess what? My neck ain't broke no more. What are you going to do? Break it again? You better not. <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing the revenge angle. And like Bob's pleased that he's actually got something to come back to for once. I remember how... Like, I, like this is what, 2003 or four. 2004 this is, because it leads up to Royal Rumble 04. I do remember there was a brief... like It was like a month I stopped watching wrestling. And it was because... It was a, no, that was 2002. I watched stuff for two months, but I didn't watch literally for a month, a couple of weeks even. I remember coming back, it's like, Brock Lesnar and Bob. Like, it was so out of the blue. I was like, yeah, but he broke his neck. I know he broke his neck. So? I thought that would have ended he doesn't wrestle again. Like, you know? It's like, it was so weird for me. It's kind of like Dredrick Tatum versus Homer. That's what I really view that yeah. match as being like. You know, Pop Holly's face there. <laughs> Brock Lesnar is going to take 18 years of frustration and he's taking it out on Hardcore Holly. <laughs> Why can't we be friends? I mean, the fact we... that they're working a pay-per-view match together alone should tell you that it wasn't intentional when Brock broke his neck. Yeah. Like, you'd really think they wouldn't want to put these two lads oh, no, together no, no. again. No, because the, the line was, is 
that's why he didn't get sued or why Bob didn't, you know, make, because he got because he got his match. He got his main event out of it. Like, he got a couple of grand of a payoff bullshit. for a pay per view. So they do the revenge angle, which is obviously good, but they hot shot it, and it was nowhere near as hot as it could have been. He acknowledges that at this point in time, he was absolutely not a draw. And he isn't shocked that Brock doesn't want to work with him, but he really felt like the company should have at least tried to elevate Bob a little bit more. I do remember once or twice they did. I remember it was actually the night after the Rumble or the the SmackDown after the Rumble, and they did a thing where like Brock was onto his next challenger or whatever it was, and then Bob ran out with a chair and chased him off, and Bob and Brock like hightailed it. Yeah. And Taz was like, "Oh man, Cole, there's only one person who Brock Lesnar really fears, and that's Bob Holly. He knows that he's out from." And I was like. Whoa, and the crowd fucking big pop yeah. like. So you kind of felt like the crowd did buy into that angle. It's just a shame that the crowd were kind of just getting into it when it was already over. Exactly, yeah. That's it. he mentions that like how eventually there are a couple of segments like that exact one you mentioned where Bob just comes out and like jumps him and it actually feels like a hot feud for a minute and then like it, oh now we're having the match, that's it, like time's up. It's a shame. It's a real shame. So they get given 15 minutes total, including entrances, and Bob says that Brock didn't want to work with him, he gets that, but he was still generous in the match they had planned and the match they had laid out. In gorilla position, right before the match, they are told they've been cut down to eight minutes, including entrances. <laughs> because... Damn short match, like, guess, yeah. guess whose fault it is? Oh, is it that cast on motherfucker Triple H? <laughs> Triple H and Shawn Michaels want to go along. <laughs> <laughs> that match as well is legitimately an hour long. That's their last man standing match yeah. that ends in a fucking draw as well. <laughs> no, no, we need five more minutes. Triple H is just literally there holding his time. Like, <laughs> hey, Bob. <laughs> he moves the clock forward. <laughs> <laughs> Despite being the challenger in the WWE title match in one of the big four pay-per-views... Bob gets a five grand payday for fighting Brock Lesnar. I was literally about to make a joke and go, oh, I got, you got your five grand though, Bob. I go, no, that's a bit mean. I bet you got more than that. Five grand for five grand. being in a main event of the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Like, That's not the biggest payoff he's ever gotten, is it? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we'll get to bigger payoffs later on in the book, but that's fucking pathetic to say. So that like, couldn't be the biggest payoff. I mean, well, like, if, he, if that's not his biggest payoff, because it's a title match on a big four pay-per-view, I would have thought that would be his biggest payoff. Jeez. We'll come back to that. I think there is more talk of finances later on. Okay. So we'll get to it. Um, he respected Brock's decision to leave the company. And he praises the fact that when Brock decided that he was going to do this, he stood up apparently in a production meeting in front of all the boys and he announced it to everyone. Like, he was very upfront to everybody about the fact that he was leaving. And Explains why it leaked out immediately then. I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you, you tell everyone about it and funnily enough, word gets around. He respected Brock's decision and thought it was just a shame that his run ended the way it did. WrestleMania 20 had 50 spots on the card. Bob didn't get booked. Very bitter about this after everything he's done for the uh, company. Ah, mate, though, you're not a Mark Jindrak, though, are you? You know, you're not a Gar- you're not Garrison Cade, though, are you? Though? Garrison Cade. You're not Ultimo Dragon, though, are you? you Garrison know? Cade written a book. Can we read that? He's dead, learn- Adam, so he's, uh, he's not, no. So. Genuinely, just found that out now. This is literally the problem. You can't Jesus. like it's 2004. You literally can't be like, oh, there's a name I heard of. This, you know, honestly, from that time, it's just they, that's that was the real peak fucking period of wrestlers dying tragically Jesus fucking young. Christ. But man, I thought Bob was on that card. I guess I was. I was wrong. Like, no, 50 spots and not a place for Bob. Apparently, God. 
Hardcore Truth number 12, wrestling fans. Talks about the fact that he loves his fans. He knows he's not the most popular wrestler in the world, but the fans that he did have, he loved, and he would treat them all like they were his only fan. Not been following his Twitter closely. I do follow him. But I know that Bob, when he first, the book came out and he started his Twitter, it was just like, you know when someone takes to Twitter like really well and like seems to really enjoy having the the interface with the fans? Yeah. Bob really seemed like that and like mm. this kind of like, I didn't expect this to happen at all type of thing. So yeah. yeah. He's, he's an, I think he actually tweeted this one saying he was really happy that we were talking about it or something someone, like that. Yeah. Someone tagged him saying that we were looking at his book and he tweeted back saying something like, thanks a lot, hope you enjoyed the book or something. Like, oh, we definitely have enjoyed it, Bob. Yes, certainly have. Please don't speak to us again because I'm scared of interacting with you. I don't think Bob's going to become a backer on Patreon ever. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how he feels, sometimes when a fan approaches him these days and is like, are you that guy from wrestling? Sometimes he will just pretend he's not. Oh! Just, just so that he can sort of test the fans and see what they say. So like, if they say like, oh, aren't you that guy? And he's like, no, which guy? Hardcore Holly. Oh, no, who's he? Is he any good? Like, And he'd like, try and gauge their reactions. Like, What do you think about running 99? Did you like the big shot angle? <laughs> you ever wear a WCW shirt to WWF New York? <laughs> <laughs> just imagine that, though. As a guy look, looks like Hardcore Holly, you think. You're like, oh, well, he was just this guy from the 90s. He was never any good. And fucking start slapping you around a bit. You like, know, the funniest thing to do with Bob is that if you met him and kind of go, oh, my God, you're Holly. You're you're the you're the my favorite wrestler. Did it does. Like, oh, my my god gush about how great you are you had all the shit you did in the hardcore division you had all those crazy feuds with your cousin and all that man go out hey adam come over here take a picture of me with crash holly <laughs> <laughs> oh man i hope we do meet him now just to get the opportunity to try that apparently occasionally you'll get the asshole fans that bob has to get in their face and be all shouty with them oh man that wouldn't be a good time apparently one guy at a house show bob smashed his camera because he wouldn't stop taking photos in his face i'm very willing to accept that there are fans out there who make wrestlers lives a fucking nightmare of course there and are. will always tell the story and you know you know <laughs> not quite like an edge in a bathroom type of a story but i do the day for instance like roman reigns is like there was someone like kind of like can't believe you turned down my 10 year old girl for an autograph like some fucking some nice guy you are and he's like quote tweet is like I just want everyone to know um, it was actually I was with my family I was feeding my two sons and my daughter and we we're all together and I said he came up, came up to me three times during the meal and I had to say to him I'm just with my family I'll catch you in a moment and then he said fuck you and called me a sellout and walked away and it was a grown man not a 10 year old girl Fuck's you know sake. and it, it, it's everyone's got a fucking story like that and yeah. you know I've been to enough wrestling shows where there's been enough you know horrible fans there to other fans and each other so I can imagine how entitled and horrible they can feel with certain wrestlers. Yeah, and unbearable. Bob Holly's a man, he's basically like one of those old-timey computers from the 50s you see in a sci-fi movie This is full of buttons to press and flashing lights. <laughs> Very easy to push the buttons of, I imagine. Yeah. Unwittingly and wittingly. Yeah. Chapter 28, Back on My Back. Bob is back to jobbing again. At this time, JBL is getting his big main event run and Bob is very happy for his success, but he's also thinking to himself like, I'm kind of similar to JBL. I've been around for ages, not really doing anything big. Couldn't have a character as good as JBL. Would be nice if I got a similar treatment. Like JBL was like, had like, it's one of the best gimmicks and the most well-timed gimmicks ever. 2004, second term of George Bush's presidency is starting anti-immigrant sentiment mm -hmm. they're building up a big Latino fan base with fucking Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio at the helm it was one of the most perfectly timed fucking gimmicks ever and also I mean JBL's a piece of shit don't get me wrong 
But one of my like I adore that gimmick and I oh, yeah. adored the promos. He's the amazing run. at it, like And I think Bob, it's not just as simple though as like, oh, they just picked a guy and he got to do his thing. I don't think Bob had a gimmick as good as the JBL gimmick. Yeah. Like he was basically being George Bush, you know? Well he acknowledges <laughs> it's not completely at random and that like JBL wasn't just giving it as just like a random guy. He says that JBL was apparently helping Vince on the stock market, and they the two of them became closer as a result of that. He was a pundit on Fox News. And yeah, yeah, he, he was legit like around that time. Yeah. Remember, like he had his book out and everything. More like... money now. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's him like looking angry, like give me. We are not looking at that in the Bibliotech. Oh. There is no oh, I want more chance. money now, you say. How about <laughs> creating the game, Triple H's book about how to be Pika... <laughs> That's one from Pikistan, Triple H. That's... <laughs> Can we do that next? That would be better suited less to a Bibliotech and more of like a 12-week <laughs> video diary. Yeah, me yeah. and you becoming proper Gaston Triple H boys. Like, it's really fast. Let's fucking do it. Let's do the Triple H 2004 <laughs> diet. Oh, God. <laughs> So he's talking about all the different people that he jobbed with around this period. Sylvain Granier, I remember he had a he had a feud with. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mordecai, he did work Mordecai with. Mordecai, he did. He said that Mordecai is a great worker and a great guy, and he deserved much better than what he got in WWE. I heard a very horrible thing about him. Oh God. Kevin Furtick, Mordecai, yeah. aka Kevin Thorne, the vampire, was in developmental with the one and only Jason Sensation. If you recall, Jason Sensation mm-hmm. from season one, he did the. The Impressionist the Impressions, lad. yeah. And he, he f- appeared a few bits here and there as well. They signed him to the developmental deal. Really fucking fantastically entertaining guy. And I think really sad that he never got to have a proper shot in wrestling. But uh, yeah, he told some not so nice stories about him like being very fucking physically aggressive. And mm. uh, remember that little chat we had earlier about, you know, wrestlers being, you know, a bit strange in their displays of masculinity. Yeah. A little bit of that in there. Oh. So that's just what I've heard. But yeah. He says that Orlando Jordan was great to work with and he was a good wrestler, but he was into young and he's very clear. He says legal, totally legal. But young boys and management didn't like that look, and that's why Orlando Jordan got dropped. And that's why Orlando Jordan's—he uh, was bisexual, openly bisexual—and uh, yeah, WWE were—they alleged or allegedly they were going to do a gimmick with him right. based off of his lifestyle. He didn't, and then he showed up in TNA, which is around the time Eric Bischoff was running things. Actually, now we mentioned he got to have a little bit of a free reign of that. But I, you know what? That's all right. Well, if just if if. Sometime, maybe, if we did that, you could see. You could see what he did. And we could enjoy that. Mm. You know? If, though. If. If. Yeah, just bringing it up on a recorded podcast. If. 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 Yeah. And this might even make the cut, you know? <laughs> even if this makes the cut, you if. know? If. If. Funny word, that. <laughs> Praises Haas and Benjamin, Mercury and Nitro. He says there's a lot of good talent on the roster at this point in time. Yeah, that's a, that's a roster, SmackDown 0405. Yeah. I think at the time I was like, oh, I miss Mick Foley and Stone Cold. Mm. And not realising how good it was. Yeah. And I would, that's like, you know, that's Billy's time. Yeah, it is. And even though we watched some fucking horrendous shit from 06, I think there's some good stuff around there as well. Not all good, though. He goes out of his way to bury certain wrestlers. Oh. John Heidenreich was the biggest waste oh. of money that the company ever spent. <laughs> That guy needs to be in a loony bin. He was a fucking maniac from the word go. Yeah, that's all I've heard. Yep. 
recently seen wrestling uh, man dressed as Doink the Clown outside a Golden Corral. Oh. It's kind of, I remember, like, I've told the story before about the wrestlers I knew who said, like, yeah, you know, we walked past his hotel room and he was just, like, you know, marching up and down to his music, talking to his action figures. And I was like, no. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, Jeez. that's literally him. Christ. I think a fucking maniac might be putting it lightly. <laughs> Carlito was shit, didn't like him. Really? Buries the Highlanders. He brings up the whole TNA incident, how stupid they are. Oh, for fuck's sake. And he also buries Simon Dean, the Bashams, and Luther Reigns. Luther Reigns? But the one thing that all these people have in common, all of them, all the good ones and the bad ones that are mentioned in this chapter, he put all of them over, and none of them are with the WWE anymore. And he just talks about what a waste of fucking time it was putting over all these people that didn't stick around. True. I mean, that's true. It's a fair point. Very high turnover of talent yeah, back then. Yeah, serious always in and out from what I remember. I remember yeah. the years when I would check out the SmackDown versus Raw games. Every year it was like, who the fuck are these lads? Where, where's what's his name gone? Like, why have I got this jabroni now? It was a, like, yeah, like the last three years with WWE, it's like the biannual or tri or quad annual spring cleaning. Like, really, mm. you turn on the website and it'd be like, 15 guys are gone. Yeah. You know? And it's like, whoa! Yeah. Happened all the goddamn time, 04 and 05 particularly, and particularly on SmackDown. The turnover was crazy because SmackDown was where they were bringing up a lot of OVW guys. Like, yeah. You know, the Bashams and Eminem and all that all came from OVW. And half of them were gone as soon as they came in the door because Vince is just like, oh, they're not good enough, they're not ready, and you just kick them out. Like. Yeah, straight so. away. Chapter 24, Ticket to a Fight. So this is the infamous Rene Dupree incident, if you've heard anything about this. This gets mentioned in all of Bob's shoots and most of his interviews. Like, I've heard that he was... No, see, I think I know this, but I think I'm mixing him up now with uh, the story about him and Bubba Ray Dudley. Because oh. the story was like the Dudley boys feuded with La Resistance when they first started. And La Resistance, Rene Dupree, Sylvain Grenier. Rene was like 18 or 19 yeah, years old. Yeah, the youngest ever at the time. So fucking young. And I remember that Bubba was told, you know, you know, God, these lads are new, so put them through the paces. Kind of. I don't think it was like a go beat the shit out of them. So Bubba and Devon, they gave him the match and they you know, were... You know, there were Bubba and Diva with yeah. them. Not acolytes on Public Enemy, nothing yeah, like yeah. that. Not Bob with anyone, just But they usual. weren't soft by any means. No, they were normal. And then afterwards, in front of everyone, Sylvan Granier like, pushed Bubba Ray and goes, What are you doing out there? Don't you know I'm green? <laughs> like, he was told, like, he was like, like that's like... Uh, that's how you get respect. That's like, how you, like, you go up to the biggest motherfucker in the yard, you tell him, Hey, this is my first day in prison. I don't want to have no trouble right here, man. I want to have a nice time. <laughs> What's your problem, mate? I'm still really bad at this, yeah? Give me a break. I'll never get better if that's the attitude you'll take. <laughs> like, I'll never beat you for the tag belts if you keep beating me up. Well, this story is pretty much all backstage, and Bob and Rene used to travel a lot together. Apparently, they got on all right. They had a decent relationship. And there came a point where they were driving around in the rental car, Bob's rental car, Rene asked if he could borrow it for a weekend, so Bob gave it to him. They went their separate ways or whatever. There's no wrestler's court coming up here. <laughs> like, a transaction has happened between two wrestlers. Like, if he gave him two cows as well, I'd think, oh, oh there's trouble coming no, here. They, no, they skip right over wrestler's court with this one. Like, Anyway, think nothing of it. And then a couple of weeks later, Bob gets a phone call from his mom where he gets all of his mail sent to his mom's address. And apparently there's like a warrant for his arrest from the district county of Spokane. What? Because of an unpaid parking ticket from this rental car from weeks ago. So obviously Renee had like ditched the car somewhere, got a ticket, never bothered paying it, never bothered what? 
what? Didn't bother telling Bob. This all came out of the blue. It's like Barney in, in with Homer's car in New York. Legit. Like. Bob had to like take a whole weekend off of the loop. Like he missed tapings. Oh my he had to God. go to Spokane to appear in like traffic court and like deal with this whole mess and pay a fine. If you imagine the look on his face, I, sorry, I've never <laughs> you heard imagine this. knowing that like seeing Bob in court wearing like a big gorilla suit or whatever, just thinking about Renee Dupree, like Season. trembling. Fucking hell. Let's think about Bob, right? Because you know, Bob's got the blonde hair. You know, Eric Flair had the blonde hair, so when he, bla- he bladed, the blood looked really good. Yeah. Because Bob's got the blonde hair as well. When he's particularly ticked off and his face goes very red, red. it really shows up. Yeah, like, like a light bulb. Renee constantly denies it and makes literally no attempt to make amends. Like, he just oh keeps shutting God. it down and, like, fobbing Bob, off, oh fobbing Bob off. So Bob has to go and take this weekend to sort it out, and eventually he gets sick of Renee just ignoring him and not dealing with it, and he beats the shit out of him. In a match or just backstage? Just backstage, and Renee has to go to hospital to have scans because he gets beaten up so bad. Oh, okay, I've never heard about this. This is fucking crazy. Yeah, so, yeah, you were right. It was in the ring, and then he chased him backstage and proceeded to carry on beating the shit out of him. He had to go to hospital. Was that a taping or like a house show? Uh, or? He just says they were in Rochester, New York. He doesn't say if it was a taping. Or I anything. have got to see if there's footage of that. Yeah, it's it's quite a well known incident. He, yeah. he gets asked about it on all of his shows. Wow. Finley finds out about him and asks what go what went down and why. And Bob explained why he was so pissed. And Finley's like, "Fair enough. I probably would have done the same." Apparently, there's no big issue. But then 24 hours later, apparently Vince is fucking furious. All of a sudden. Bob is pretty sure Triple H is the one that got in Vince's ear and made him all angry about it for some reason. Why? So Bob goes into Vince's office and straight away Vince is like screaming at him. And Bob, like this is the first time Vince has ever shouted at Bob. And Bob literally says to him, you keep talking to me like that, I'm just going to walk out the door. There's no point having a conversation if you're going to speak to me that way. This sorry, this is really strange because like, there's no doubt that someone got in Vince's ear. If Vince was okay, then he wasn't okay. Usually what happens in those cases is Vince thinks he's okay and then like a lawyer or something. Someone points someone out the trouble. Out, yeah, like, or yeah, even yeah. he talks to an AD Pre and he's like, well, maybe I'll sue the company, Vince. Yeah. And then, then Vince is angry. But Triple, why Triple H? Pin it all on Triple H, man. Dinkelberg. <laughs> so yeah, Vince has a go at him and Bob like immediately tells him, don't you speak to me that way. And apparently Vince like respects that and chills out. They have a chat about why it happened and what went down. This... Vince says he totally understands why Bob did it. He's got to fine him 10 grand, but it's all water under the bridge. Jeez, that's one of those fucking expensive car loans I've ever fucking seen. Legit. Jeez, I thought it was bad when I dinged the back fucking end of the rental van when I moved house. <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah, no one looks good in that story, I don't think. No, Jesus fucking Christ. What a miserable pile of shit. He got fined twice as much for his payoff that he got for the fucking Brock Royal Lesnar Rumble. Album. Yeah, I know. Fucking hell. Hardcore Truth 13, dressing for success, question mark? Eh? In 2004, Johnny Stamboli boards a plane wearing a shirt that reads, I am going to fuck your mother, and the next day Vince enforces a new dress code policy. Yeah, the dress code policy is everyone has to dress in a way that means that Johnny Stamboli can never come back and he's now released. (laughs) So apparently it's a bullshit dress code of dress shirts and pants for everyone I apart from this. Austin, Foley and Cena. I remember and this and I remember they've been up in arms about this and how McFoley wrote in his book how he got he got real shit from people Yeah, because he like... He was an exception He was an exception. I was like, what the fuck? Like he gets to wear comfy clothes and... Yeah. You're like talking about like big fuckers like the big show has to fucking wear a, you know, can't wear no sweatpants on his 
big flight, you know? I, I did two flights recently when I went to Crete. It was only four hours either way. First one, it was four hours out and I wore jeans and I was like, oh, fucking big that mistake. There's four hours back, I was wearing shorts and I was like, oh, it's better, but fucking hell, this is still horrible. Like, traveling in clothing in general. Suit, like, suit fucking pants. Wearing fucking smart clothing for all your travel is so unnecessary and it not fair. To wear dress, you have to wear dress shoes as well yeah. as the other one. And the thing was, is that if you're photographed and you didn't... Like if if like a TMZ or someone caught a picture of you and you weren't wearing the fucking suit or whatever, you're big big trouble. Big trouble. That I heard was a Triple H thing because Triple H used to dress, you know, in the suits and all that. And it's you know Triple H has always had the idea of the champion wears the suit because you know Ric Flair he wore the suit Harley yeah. Race. Even fucking Terry Funk put on a dress shirt when he was NWA world champion. Even Dusty Rhodes wore a suit. I get that for champions and for guys at the top of the card if you really want to try and keep that level of prestige and mystique about the really important wrestlers. Bob Holly don't need to be wet. He can fucking wear flip-flops and a short. I swear that would be Bob Holly, except he's uh, he's not wearing a suit, so uh, it couldn't be him. It's interesting you say that you're pretty sure it's a Triple H thing because Bob says that one day he, like... Basically, his routine was that he would wear comfy clothes until he was like a mile from the arena, stop his car, get changed into the fucking dress clothes, and then drive there in his smart outfit. And apparently there was one day where one of the referees saw him in his comfy clothes and, like, started kicking up a stink. Like, so, Yeah, literally started, <laughs> like... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like, literally, he was, like, kicking up a stink. And apparently, according to Bob, Triple H went over to the referee and was like, shut your fucking mouth. Like, you don't need to go and make a fuss oh, about okay. this. Oh, okay. Well, how about that? There's, there's several instances of Triple H doing nice things in this book, and Bob... His attitude is he's just confused by Triple H. He doesn't understand the man. So apparently all, like you say, all the roster is pissed about this and they're all ready to fucking kick off and everyone's talking like how, like, yeah, fuck this. We should fucking like, let them know what we think, give them a piece of our mind. Big meeting comes, all the agents, all the talent, everyone there. And according to Bob, he's the only person that stands up and looks Vince in the eye and says this is bullshit. And him and Vince argue while all the other boys are just like sat there watching. Yeah, and then afterwards, should... <laughs> all, the other, all the other boys are like going to Bob afterwards, like, yeah, right on, Bob. Nice one for saying that. Like, And you wonder why wrestlers don't unionize. Yeah, I know. Right? No one wants to. Chapter 30, Eddie. This is so fucking sad, this chapter of the book. So Bob talks about how Eddie's obviously had many issues with substance abuse and steroids over the years. And at the point in his career where Eddie was, where he'd just been doing main event runs and stuff, the company was asking way too much of him. Apparently he was completely fucked up and Eddie was constantly asking for time off so that he could just go and recover with Vicky for a bit. I remember being so completely flabbergasted when I heard this because there's like a Kurt Angle shoot interview that he did after he left WWE like 2006, 7, whenever it was. And he fucking buries Eddie. Completely buries him. Like, even after Eddie's passed and all that, he's like, yeah, I was working with him during that run. He'd like, he'd literally, he was un- impossible to work with. We'd start a match and he'd literally grab me and be like, I don't know what to do. I, you know, I don't know what to do. You have yeah. to take me through all this. And Yeah, apparently he was miserable and like barely functioning. Bob said that quite often Eddie would literally be like lying on the doctor's table backstage, get up, go and have his match, come back and then just lie on the table again. And just like, that was all he would do, just lay there and just be broken like... He says, yeah, he was asking for time off and the company would never give it to him and he just kept getting worse and worse. His condition deteriorated. He said, Eddie kept struggling onwards. He found it hard to cope. I remember talking with him in early November 2005. We were in Kentucky at a show and he seemed unhappy. 
I asked him what was wrong and he went off on me. He was upset about something that was going on on TV and my question just lit the powder keg. Wrong place, wrong time. Hey, we were good friends. It was okay for him to vent to me. After he finished yelling, he walked away. I hate that this was the last time I spoke to him. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of that going around. Like People are kind of like, the last time, because he was in such a fucking... I mean, you could see it in his eyes at the time like, that he was fucking exhausted. He just... Yep. And it's sad because he was bigger than he had ever been as well, like body-wise. Like he had these big fucking jacked up arms, this fucking huge six-pack. And yeah. he was fucking miserable yep. by the sounds of things. Um, Bob says he doesn't blame Vince McMahon personally, but he do think he does think that the business is responsible for Eddie's death. He says, yeah. of course, Vince has made sure to look after Vicky. But he says, on one hand, Eddie could have said to Vince, I'm taking time off. I'm going. You can't stop me from just taking time off. But... He knows that the management wouldn't really have liked it's that. It's that and... age-old thing of the, you know, at what point is it the wrestler loves wrestling so much that they're willing to put aside what's best for them? At what point does that stop? At what point does the management's responsibility take exactly. over? And they are taking advantage of a wrestler... Yes. He doesn't so know eager. when to stop exactly, and I think that's very much the case. With well, Herrera. the wellness policy came in after that, didn't it? Yeah, you know, and obviously the well, not to say that lots of tragedies didn't happen after it was brought in. It certainly did, but even little things like the fact that you know, I remember MVP tweeting ages ago about like how he had like a heart scan. They found that he had like a, a murmur in it, like a, a a defect, like a, an arrhythmia with mm. his heart. It was out of sync somehow. You never would have. You know, because it didn't affect him normally. He never yeah. would have come across it had he not been given these scans. Yeah, I'm sure. There's a million stories like that. Still think, like even with all the kind of reparations WWE has made towards its former talent and not being so forthcoming and offering rehab and help, I still feel like it is a bit of a dark cloud that hangs over wrestling and will never go away. Yeah, it's really sad. He says Eddie's death took the wind out of everybody's sails. While you couldn't compare it to Owen's death, it was a similar kind of mood. The company filmed two TV tributes to Eddie that night. I didn't work on either of the shows and I didn't record one of the backstage interviews talking about him. I didn't want to talk about it. I still don't. I shut myself off. I hated how our last conversation has gone. I couldn't even go to his funeral because we were on the road heading to Europe. That's literally fucking your classic stiff upper lip. Yeah. Toxic fucking... Toxic masculinity yeah. just... But, and he says that. Like, he, he says he just buried his feelings and just gets on with it. He so just shuts down. It's so fucked up, man. It's so fucked up. That's really sad. He, he said that he actually, when he was in Europe, he couldn't go to the funeral because he was on the tour, but he shouldn't have been on the tour in the first place because a few weeks before Eddie died, he was meant to have elbow surgery, but he noticed like a bump underneath his right armpit, like oh, a little Jesus lump of some Christ. sort. Uh, he figured it was like a pimple or something, so he tried to <laughs> squeeze it and it didn't go away. This is so fucking reminiscent of CM Punk's story, this is, because he basically was told like... you probably want to go to hospital and get that checked out but the wwe wanted him on this tour so fucking badly they basically were like you've, you've got to go on the tour so he went on the tour with this thing that was supposedly just like a boil or something uh, and wouldn't you I know mean, it come on, a fucking lump yeah i know right you don't take chances with fucking lumps like, like you're a man in your fucking early 40s at this point or late 30s and you get you find a fucking lump at a strange pace like it was one of these things where he kept saying that he felt like he had the flu. He kept getting checked out by the doctor, and the doctor said that he had a staph infection. 
Uh, he told Johnny Laurinaitis that he was sick and needed to go to the hospital, but Johnny said he'll have to wait till it was after the overseas tour. So what? basically, Bob, Bob's working really ill. Again, like CM Punk, he's like feverish and sick and really poorly. You know what? That trial's just started today. I wonder if that'll go on. Yeah, I know. Average. Yeah. You know? Uh, apparently, when they landed in Germany, his forearm was twice its normal size. Jesus um, Christ. And so... Staff infections, the... like... Because they're common, I think people think they're not serious. But Jesus, they, they get can, out of they control. Can get out of control. Yep. Real serious damage you can do. So the doctor came to his hotel oh, room. No, I know what's coming now. Made an incision in the forearm oh, to relieve the pressure. Off. He started popping and squeezing, and all of this green and red and yellow stuff came out. It smelled absolutely awful. <laughs> Adam, I'm going to eat my lunch in a bit. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Oh my fucking god. So they hideous. squeeze it and get it all out. Wouldn't you know it? Bob's not any better though. They have to keep draining his forearm every night and he still feels really sick and really poorly. It's like that wasn't enough medical attention or something. They're doing TV in England and Johnny eventually says, all right, you should probably go home. You look like shit. Goes home, goes to his doctor and wouldn't you know it? The doctor says, you need to go right to the hospital right this fucking second. You are in serious trouble. He had the hospital. He was in hospital for four weeks. They did surgery to get the infection out of the bone. Which didn't the bone? The bone. That's like borderline toxic shock syndrome, where like your entire body gets like overtaken by a fucking bacterial infection. They did surgery to get the infection out of the bone. It didn't work, so they brought a disease specialist in to talk to me, who put me on vancomycin, which is one of the strongest antibiotics out there. Oh my god! It's basically a last resort. If that didn't work, he told me, they were going to have to amputate my arm from the shoulder Oh down. my fucking god! That just about ruined my day right there. You fucking think? <laughs> Dang it, lost my arm. <laughs> that was my racing arm as well. Dang it, like... So, you know... Oh so, my god, Adam. Say what you want about CM Punk's credibility, but there is another man here... That's precedent. ...that worked through a staph infection against doctor's orders because WWE pressured him to do oh so. Oh my And then God. later found out it was very, very nearly serious. So when he had the original draining, that was their medical staff. That was the WWE doctor, like, fuck draining it for him and being like, that you're right. Fuck, that's really shocking. That, I, I was joking earlier, now I'm like, fucking submit that to evidence. Yeah, like, I know. Jesus Christ. Well, he says, because they'd gone against Dr. Rios's orders, and the doctor said to him as well, like, if you'd have come in straight away when you should have immediately, this wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, of course, because that's how got rid of things the sap. Exactly. Like, exactly. You know what's really sad as well? Like, if that, that happened, what, like 10, 13 years ago, whenever it was, you know, like, that happened now. Not, you know, because the antibiotic resistance and stuff like that. Who's to fucking say? Exactly, yeah. Could have been way, been way worse. Way, way worse. Like, so. WWE are very liable and they kiss his ass and apparently they're very very cushy to him while he's off like oh if you need anything Bob just let us know they're just doing the best they can to try and stop him from suing and he doesn't sue because the only thing he wants is a decent push when he gets back like that's all he wants from them is to get used when he comes back in get some stories about Bob bullying Ken he doesn't bully Ken Kennedy he throws him out of the locker room because he was being a bit of a diva and it turns out Ken had just lost his dad and Bob felt terrible Wellness policy gets introduced, as you said, but Bob calls it a crock of shit, and he says he'll go into that in more detail shortly. Chapter 31, steroids. Big section here, all about the subject. Bob says, I get asked a lot if I use steroids. Hell yes, I did. I'll be the first to admit I was I on the I love gas. steroids. <laughs> Ow! 
I was the first to admit I was on the gas. So was almost every single person in the locker room in the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Into the 2000s. That's very telling. I'm not ashamed of it. The real question is, did I abuse steroids? No, I do not believe I did. There is a big difference between steroid use and abuse, just like there is a big difference between drinking alcohol and abusing it. And that will be his main argument with steroids. Is he keeps comparing them to alcohol and how that's fine to consume and that's okay socially. Like, like the... The thing that's really scary about it is when you see the people who've got the back acne and mm. the, the 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 vascular chore, like the yeah. veins that like seem to be like a fucking tree roots all over their body. One thing I'll say for Bob Holly, he never seemed to have any of that. No, no, he he kept a lid on his steroid usage. I think he genuinely is correct when he said he didn't abuse steroids. I think he was using them correctly. I mean, there is the argument that's made, which is like. It's a performance-enhancing drug, which is illegal because it gives an unfair advantage in competitive performances, mm-hmm. which WWE is not. Yeah. And are you going to say, not to invoke the mountain again, but say if he was on the gas, would he be kicked off of Game of Thrones and not yeah. allowed to be on, you know? And I'm not pro-steroids at all because I think anything like that you put into your body has got side effects. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it messing with things like testosterone levels particularly yeah. and aggression and all that I think it is a little bit of a hornet's nest that should be for everyone's benefit just kicked out of touch and far away from WWE are there people who can use them safely sure there are Absolutely. but enough people are inclined to abuse them and we know the type of people get drawn to wrestling yeah and you, know? <laughs> you, you say it's not competitive because yes the actual in-ring athleticism isn't competitive it's all staged but there totally is competition in wrestling in terms of vying for a spot and wanting to be better on the card getting that precious McMahon dollars and yeah and you, you know? know Vince McMahon loves a big guy like mm-hmm. that is a well accepted fact in the locker room that Vince goes crazy for bigger guys so it's you can see the temptation to push it further and further and people get carried away with steroids and you see the people who get done in like in 2007 when the steroid scandal broke and then they come back and they're tinier than ever and their push goes away. And that's the evidence you need right there. And like. I, Ken, the Skeleton King, will never again compete in a wrestling ring. <laughs> he was fucking skeletal, wasn't Yeah, he? Ken like. Skellington. He was tiny. <laughs> he came back like... Bob's argument is that guys were scared when the steroid scandals came around like the second time in 07 like and there was like a huge kibosh on steroid use guys were scared about their recoveries Mm -hmm. more than anything else because it really helped them cope with nagging injuries and with pain and they were scared that exactly like you say they would lose their physiques and then lose their positioning on the card and there will always be arguments as well made they're constantly made i'm sure there's cases where it's true but there are cases where it's not true where people who have legitimately been prescribed something for an unrelated, yeah. like a steroid, like there was someone who was prescribed a steroid cream for some fucking yeah. surgery they had, and then they get done and get a yeah. strike on the policy. And that's like. not fair. And But Bob's main argument is that Vince McMahon loves to embellish things like height and weight statistics. Yeah. So why not just embellish people's physiques? But I mean, making up a number isn't the same as like putting chemicals in your body. No, there's not a side effect or a long-term effect of Vince McMahon saying you're six foot six when you're six foot four. He's also really pissy about the fact that you only get fined if you like get caught with pot in your system. At least back when he was there. If you get caught found with pot. The pot tax is Randy Orton referred to it about. Yeah, no strikes or anything. You just have to pay a fine, which means it's basically allowed. Like uh, he says, So what, he thinks it should be a more severe punishment. Oh yeah, he says that like it's hypocritical that something like pot he thinks that 
if I'm going to wrestle with a guy that's taking steroids, that's no problem. If I'm going to wrestle with a guy that's a pothead, I'm going to be worried about if he's safe to work with. Yeah, like, you wrestle enough people who are alcoholics, though. Yeah, I know. Seriously. I, I know, and, he, and that's the thing. He keeps going back to alcohol. Like, no one's judgmental about alcohol. No one cares if you drink. Like, What do you, you... I mean, I want to know if Bob cares, you know, because... Bob doesn't drink. Bob doesn't drink. Bob doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like, but he doesn't have... He doesn't judge people that do. Yeah, because he's got it's it's a cultural thing with him. And he wishes the culture was different surrounding steroids. Mm. Like, well, <laughs> it ain't. It ain't, pal. Hardcore Truth Part Fourteen: Working out and eating right. I don't remember any of this. Really, he's just talking about all of his different workouts, all the different food he eats. I bet he eats a lot of chicken. Uh, turkey. He's turkey. More, more of a turkey man. More into turkey. He doesn't eat any carbs. Well, I'll tell you what, Bob. I'll brine you in turkey steak. That'll knock your dick still. Um, <laughs> if if turkey and lean meats are your thing, I'm your man. Good to know. I'll pass it on to him. It's a little plug there for my turkey brining that I do. <laughs> no, you can't have any. You set up like a turkey box system or something. Like once a month, Kevin will send you some brine turkey steaks. <laughs> With like. my own selection of hand-selected salts and water to go into <laughs> brining it. Who are the people ordering brine box? I will tell you. <laughs> Chapter 32. Bob's back. <laughs> Bob's back. Needs 25 stitches. Oh, shit! We're talking ECW, baby! Yeah. So, Bob's been recovering from his staph infection. He needs to have surgery on both of his elbows. And while he's recovering from this, he is told that he's not allowed to do anything strenuous. Especially not but dirt bike racing. We know how much you love riding on your dirt bikes, Bob. That's his favourite. But he's the big shot. And they got to learn to live with that. <laughs> so, he does go dirt bike racing and ends up getting in an accident, breaking his collarbone, and sets back both of his elbows recovery quite a long way. Like, I mean, they did warn you about They told you not to, mate. Is he, Would you not listen to the doctors? Is he but, like, kind of like, oh man, I fucking, what an idiot I was. Or he's like, the stupid doctors. He doesn't really say, he just like, well, but I got, you know, shit I'm, the, happens, bi- like, I'm the big shot. Yeah. Like, shit happens, exactly. Yeah, it was just a mistake. Bob does return, and he gets told that he's now going to be put on the new ECW. Oh, dear. And while that doesn't sound particularly exciting, he at least thinks, because he's a veteran, he'll be higher up on the roster there. It's better to be a big fish in a small pond. He's still getting paid by WWE. Yeah. This might help his career, maybe. The bump Sabu off of December to December. Oh. Biggest achievement of his career. He hoped he'd be higher up on the cards in the new brand, but once again, he gets basically made into glorified enhancement talents. Gets put in a program with post-suspension RVD right after RVD had just dropped the WWE title for getting caught with Pop. Oh, Jesus. So they're trying to get RVD to get a bit of his momentum back and they put him up with Bob. September 06, you have the ECW match where they have the really fucking horrible table spot. Where one of the nastiest bumps I've ever seen in wrestling, I, just, I think. It's such a fucking freak accident. Like, just mm. shard of wood. Yeah, go through a table, shard of wood, slices Bob's back. And it's fucking grotesque. It's like a machete cut him open or something. Yeah, I honestly, I, I swear, Adam, I see that footage and that clip, and I think, how has this happened so infrequently in wrestling? I know, yeah, you'd think. When you got people, like, careening off ladders, smashing through tables, how has that not happened? Some nights you go through, like, 15 tables in one show. Yeah, like, and yeah I know what you mean. It's crazy it doesn't happen more often. Fuck. But yeah, there's blood everywhere, and Bob just feels like a slight, like a scratch on his back. He doesn't realize the magnitude of it. Did he finish the match? Yeah, yeah. He looks down and sees blood everywhere, and he's like, the referee is like saying to him, like, you need to go over and let the doctor have a look at you. But he knows because of the amount of blood that if he goes over to the doctor, they're probably just going to stop the match. So he refuses to, and he wrestles for another eight minutes, bleeding everywhere. 
apparently he gets a standing ovation after the match when he leaves and he says it is to his to this day his favourite match he's done it was the best one he's been in 25 stitches that's how big it is Jesus and on the back as well I know just, yeah he you know, will always open those up like. he says it wasn't that painful but it was just the fact that it was in such a bad place mm. he had to take two weeks off from training just because it was so painful when he was like moving oh Jesus with the lack of top heels that ECW had Bob felt like he might get a bit more look from the office he might you know start seeing a bit more TV time as like a big heel because he's been there for a long time they've not got any good heels yeah and he's tough as fuck but for some reason, because of that match and the standing ovation that he got, they turn him face, and Bob thinks it's just a fucking stupid idea. It's a waste of time, like. Yeah, and they realise it's a waste of time because three weeks later they turn him heel again and like just kills all of his momentum. Jeez, I remember I used to, I watched the original like, oh, you poor run of fucker. that ECW because I got hooked in with One Night Stand One and Two, thinking it was going to be all that in a bag of chips and Jesus fucking Christ I've forgotten about that Jeez, that was so bad for him yeah so that's that then basically he like there was a moment there where it looked like things were going to start heating up again he was a bit of a jobber but then he gets a little bit more over they turn him face then they turn him heel and then that's him pretty much killed again I mean he's one of many casualties of ECW yeah well he's not totally done yet I mean we have got the December to Dismember Extreme Elimination Chamber match still coming up one of the worst goddamn matches I have ever fucking seen is so fucking bad now this is what I got mixed up with earlier I think the Royal Rumble payday the five grand I think that might have been his oh best. no because I was thinking of this one but actually this is far worse he said it's the most painful match he has ever worked in his career because it Awful. was so fucking sore working on the, the metal and yeah the they had worked the metal the fans are like because they had nothing going for them they like the few people who are in there who are taking bumps tried to do fucking bumps on yep. the metal and stuff they all had like fucking weapons and shit and uh, the the pods with them and it was just like it was bad vibes yeah. no one wanted it was like it wasn't hardcore enough for ECW guys and guys got hurt so it was a waste it was, yeah he said it was fucking miserable and it was the most painful match he's wrestled and he got $1,000 for doing that $1,000 main event of uh, the extreme <laughs> fucking extreme elimination chamber match in a main event and he gets one grand for okay, it okay I'll say this because we did on Sam Manrisi and how to wrestling self-reported figure he was asked the biggest payday he ever got in wrestling he said 15 grand for WrestleMania 23. Nice. And that was like literally, he had one move in an eight-man tag match. Yeah. He did a senton over the top and that was pretty much it. 15 grand. Yeah. $1,000. For the worst match of his career. Like the most painful, painful match he's ever worked. Painful pain. Yeah. After him going through all that shit with his back as well. Jesus Christ. And remember like... That not- injury's got to be stacking up at this point yeah, as well. Yeah, Collarbone, fucking he's, neck. He's getting beat Elbows, up. back. And this is the guy that like a couple months ago could have sued your pants off for like nearly killing him with a staff infection I'm really surprised he didn't yeah I'm re- I th- he probably kicked himself for not doing it because he could have made far more money just from suing him than the fucking measly little bit of matter they hey, were giving him a thousand dollars though you know it's a little bit of money pal so he talks about some of the other guys that he worked with in ECW he says Big Show is one of the nicest guys in the business loves him to death but he would complain a lot of the time. He said he loved cigarettes and cheeseburgers too much to make it in wrestling properly. Like he, he was his own worst enemy because he was always complaining about being tired and not being overworked. But, but he was like, the one yeah. that wasn't in shape. Like I heard a story recently that Big Show uh, around 2003 used to have a case of Krispy Kreme donuts uh, backstage for him. Like mm. the way Hogan would have a case of beer in his locker room just for him. And Brock Lesnar found out about it and like ran and stole them and like ate them all in front of him. Like. 
I'm gonna carbo overload just to get to you, big man. Lesnar. Yeah, Lesnar eating him like a shark. Like yeah, he loves Big Show and he's got a lot of respect for him. And he thinks it's really sad that here he is again, Triple H. Oh, come on. Apparently all the time makes fun of Big Show behind his back like oh. to his little mates. And he said it's really sad because Big Show looks up to Hunter so much and Big Show loves Triple H. So, as you mentioned, the injuries are piling up. His elbows are still fucked and he needs more surgery on them, apparently. So he's requesting a bit of time off to go and get this surgery. And Vince asks him if he can hold off needs a favour because he Vince wants Bob to be Vince's boy in the upcoming Battle of the Billionaires. So it's gonna be, Fuck off he does. Yeah, it's going to be Bobby Lashley versus Hardcore Holly in one of the no, WrestleMania main that's events. that's such a... I've never once before thought that Vince would be the kind of person to be like, oh, but don't worry, you'll be the fucking this shit that'll never happen. That's a real WCW sounding thing. Not in a million years. Making up no an opportunity. way! There's no way, no how, that Vince would pick Bob Holly. who hadn't been at the previous fucking six WrestleManias. Yep, I know. Fuck, oh, that's such a lie. To sweeten the pot like that, don't go get surgery, pal. Here's a match you won't be in. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even get booked at WrestleMania 23. Bob says, sure, no problem. Hell, I was going to be in a main event match at WrestleMania. Oof. I could tolerate being uncomfortable for a little longer. <laughs> a lot longer. Then, close to Mania, I had a cage match with Bobby on ECW TV, in which he had beat me in less than five minutes, or he would lose the title, and he was going to go over. I thought that was sort of fucked up to have him beat me in less than five minutes on TV, in the build-up for a big match on pay-per-view. Didn't make me look like I had a chance. I soon discovered that I wasn't meant to. Oh, really? During the match, Umaga came down to the ring, and after Bobby had beat me, he did a running jump into the cage wall. He busted it down and made the whole thing collapse on Umaga. Right there, I knew that I was out and Umaga was in. They didn't even have the decency to let me know in advance. I wasn't angry, just disappointed. That's really sad. That's how he found out he wasn't in the match. Yeah, I mean... It really does... It's sad to me that he would not see the writing on the wall well before then. I think it's purely because at this point in time, he keeps telling himself, I've been here for like 15 years. JBL got his chance. And one day, Vince Vince can do it. Vince gave me a car in the past. One day, he's going to do something good for me again. Like That's really sad. Mm. I really... I mean, you know what? It could be that they legitimately had plans for him to do that. Mm. I don't personally buy that. And I think that is... Like if someone is hurt and needs time off and you're using the promise of a fake of a match that you aren't going to have him in stop them from healing like it just shows you that like when you're that when you're at that this way this book is so interesting to hear about is because you hear constantly just in the other books it's like and then Vince came to this idea and then we did it and then Vince came to this idea we didn't do it but then we did this instead to make good and we talked about it you never hear about this like Hey, pal, I'm going to take you out for a nice dinner tonight. Like, you know, lovely, lovely steak dinner, you know. And then, like, oh, he never calls again. Yeah. Like, Vince is, like, such a fucking horrible person to be doing business with in this respect. Well, Bob confronts him about it, and Vince apologizes to his face. And he guarantees Bob a spot on the WrestleMania card. <laughs> nope. Bob. Oh, my God. Adam, I seriously, this is really changing my viewpoint on, like... And a lot of stuff with Vince. Like, yeah, I really I know. think he. I've always heard now he won't. He won't shit you around. Vince will tell you to his face. Maybe some of the other guys in the locker room, like in the backstage, might. But not Vince wouldn't make someone up like yeah, that. Yeah, or Vince wouldn't lie to you, but he'll have Kevin Dunn lie to you, or yeah. one of the agents lie to you, and have him take the fall. Not right to your fucking face like that. Yeah. Jesus, blatant lies. Bob's had enough, and he tells Dusty he's going to go home and get the surgery, take some time off, do whatever. Like, oh man. 
Hardcore Truth, Chapter 15, Travelling for the Right Reasons. This is talking about all the different regions he gets to travel around, or what it's like working in all the different places. He fucking loved Australia. This is such a weird story. <laughs> oh, great. I can't wait to hear this. So, he loved Australia because the weather was gorgeous, the country is beautiful, and there was one trip where everyone was in Australia... And randomly, Triple H one day is like, Hey everybody, I'm going to pay for everyone to go to the zoo! And apparently Triple H hired a coach, like out of his own pocket, Triple H hired a coach, got everyone all on this bus, went to the zoo, paid for everyone's tickets, went and got everyone a raincoat in case it rained, and they all had a fucking lovely day going around the zoo together. And it's one of the things where Bob's like, he's a strange guy, like, I can't figure out what his deal is. He can be like the nicest guy on earth. And then be a complete twat. Like I think Bob is just one of those people who will never have a true view of Triple H because he's seen every phase of Triple H. He's seen him come in as the sneaky young guy with yeah. the click. He's seen him rise to power. He's seen him politicking. He's seen the stuff with Stephanie. He's seen all the fucking you know peak Gaston Triple H. Yeah. All the, the am I fucking going over bullshit? And he gets to see the star of Triple H, being like, oh shit. I'm going to be running this place. Yeah. You know? start, time to start acting like a boss. Yeah, Start yeah. getting the people to like me. You know, so I kind of think if you're someone who came into like NXT now, you probably think Triple H is a fucking, is a god. Like, yeah. Because he, he has owned in and fine-tuned how to be the coach, that the, the figure, boss, the mentor. The, the mentor. Like, yeah. To be what I think Vince was to a lot of people in the 80s and the 90s. I think Triple H is that now to the current crop of guys in NXT. So, yeah, I don't think Bob could ever figure him out because he's probably seen a lot of what seems like very hypocritical behaviour. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Again, still more to come on that. We will we will do a deep dive into Triple H eventually. He said he hated working in Canada. Anytime we worked there, we'd get paid in Canadian dollars. So when the exchange rate was bad, we lost money like crazy. You better believe that seeing Canada on the schedule was a real buzzkill. I actually preferred going to Iraq. Wow, well, there you go. He loved the uh, the tribute to the troop shows. He thought they were brilliant. Yeah, like. I figured Bob's a big ale patriot. Yeah. Like, yeah. Chapter 33, Chris Benoit. According to Bob, Chris was one of the kindest, most patient and professional men he knew. And th- this is actually, I really had to trim this down, but there is a long, long chunk about how great a guy Chris was and how patient he was and how he's the kind of guy that if they brought him the wrong order in the restaurant he would never make a big fuss about it he was always very kind and very gentle like you know what it's so fucking weird because you know Jericho's first book he wrote similarly in that way about how he was this kind of kind guy and you know you know at the start of the book he's like this was written before what happened happened so it's kind of like this is how I saw at the time things have changed and then when the second book came out it was kind of there was a bit where he's like there's always something though that wasn't quite right about him he'd laugh a little too long at a mean joke or if someone like tripped and fell he'd be in hysterics and he always would get very quiet and it's kind of like I. it kind of then became no actually Chris wasn't this really nice kind guy it was actually in retrospect Chris was a very weird guy who I'd never really trusted in some ways. It's weird you mention that. I'm pretty sure Bob says a very similar thing in here, where, but the way he says it is that Chris wasn't a mean-spirited guy or anything, but he did get enjoyment out of other people's, like, displeasure and suffering. Like, he would laugh. He would laugh <laughs> there's at... quite a lot of joy in your book, but it seems to be joy at other people's expenses. <laughs> God. He talks about how him and Chris were actually really good friends. They were very, not very close, but out of all the people in the locker room, like, you know, Bob didn't get close to anyone. They were chop chums. Yeah, Chris Chris was up there. They were good mates. 
apparently Chris took Eddie's death really hard and like traveled everywhere with an Eddie action figure after he passed like apparently you'd always drive with an Eddie on his passenger seat like you know what you see the tribute the the Benoit tribute to Guerrero and the fact that they broadcast that it's like lads you know this is a broken fucking man yeah I think it's almost therapy yeah not not in the right spirit putting that on TV like therapy how about going back on the road for 300 uh, more days Right, now this bit is is a big chunk here that I'm not going to attempt to try and skim down because it's just easier just to read it in Bob's words. During my recovery from elbow surgery, I found myself in Chris's neck of the woods in June because I had to go to Atlanta for a meeting with an attorney. Chris was getting off the road on Wednesday, so we had arranged for me to stop by his house. As I was driving back from my appointment, I figured that he probably wanted to have some time with his family because he'd only just got home. So I just went on home. I got a call from him that Friday asking me why I hadn't stopped by or called. Chris chewed me out about it. I said, you just got off the road, I know what it's like. I figured you'd want to spend time with Nancy and Daniel. He said, that doesn't fucking matter, you're one of my best friends, you should have come over. I told him that I was off for at least a few more months, so I'd definitely come to see him. Okay, you fucking better, he replied. Then he told me he'd just been to see Dr. Aston and was heading home. I asked how everything was with him and Nancy, and he told me she's acting like Hitler. I kind of laughed it off, but he said, no, really, she's acting like Hitler. I have to get out of the house. We talked a little bit more and then hung up. I went about the rest of my day. Chris went home and killed his wife. The next day he killed his son. Then on Sunday he killed himself. Again, again, he talks about how with Owen, with Crash and with Eddie and with Chris, he just sort of like... "Mm." Out of sight, out of mind. Just, ball. just Let's get rid of that. put those feelings away and not deal with it. And he does. He tries to decompress it a little bit here, and he talks about how because that's, that's going to weigh fucking heavy on you if you made plans to see your mate and your mate's like, "Why didn't we hang out? I really wanted to see you." And then that happens. Jesus like, Christ, I can't begin to imagine. Yeah, he says that he thinks the he, he speculates on what actually happened, like. As in the details of what went down in does the he, house. Does he think it's like? Does he talk about like the concussion issues and stuff like that? Yep, he doesn't. He... he doesn't buy any of that. He thinks it's BS. He thinks he's heard about the Alzheimer's brain talks, and he thinks it's all bullshit. And concussions had nothing to do with it. He thinks it's entirely down to alcohol because Chris had alcohol problems. I think it's you know it's no one thing, isn't it? It's it was it's like, a whole concoction of things. Yeah, is a lot of different this shit. Very grim and fucking complicated tale has got very grim and complicated reasons behind it. Yeah, like I say, he speculates on what actually went down, and I won't get into it because I don't think there's really any need for that. Like, but mm. it's a really fucking heavy chapter. And Does he at least allow himself to be sad about it? Because you said he kind of with the other stuff, he kind of puts it to one side. He says he kind of decompresses a bit because a lot of people. Who'd write about Benoit? Like you know, fuck him. That wasn't Chris Benoit. Like mm. you know, what he did was horrible. Oh, it's not that at all. Him. Like he's, he's not asking for me the Hall of Fame or anything. Like no, that. Like, he he thinks Benoit's actions were totally unforgivable and evil, but he thinks it was fueled by alcohol. Like he's not even one of the people that thinks that Benoit is a brilliant guy and he wasn't the real Chris Benoit when it happened. He thinks it was just that Chris was drinking and things got out of hand. Well, something changed in Chris Benoit when Eddie Guerrero died. I think that De- definitely that's definitely got to contribute. I think. Yeah. Hardcore Truth Part Sixteen: Relationships in Wrestling. Oh God, this is gonna be fucking grim. Yeah, says- I ain't got none. <laughs> I mean, it's all summed up by the quote. To be honest, if you're in the wrestling business, it's probably not a good idea to be married. He says that... You know, he's talked about the difficulties of long-term relationships on the road. It's all stuff you've heard before. He says that Molina had an affair with Batista behind John Morrison's back. And 
John Morrison wasn't man enough to deal with it and Bob despises that. That's Vince McMahon's words coming out of your mouth there. Like That's that's literally Vince apparently ne- would never push Morrison because, because of that. Yeah, very, uh, very biblical view of the world, I guess, you know. He says similar things about Matt, Lita and Edge, but then he also says that he thinks that whole thing was a work. <laughs> Fuck off. Like... God. Yeah, I'm sure Lita was thrilled about that. Yeah, idea. great like, work. Like, she came called, off great. Yeah, I mean, sh- slut in the street life for the yeah. rest of your life. That's real good. Chapter 34. It's betrayal. Hey! This is where he gets put in a program with Cody Rhodes. The whole idea is he's the old veteran, Bob is, and you've got the young upstart who keeps trying to fight him but can't quite get it and there's like a bit of a respect thing yeah, going on. Yeah, I love I the angle it with them It sounds too. like a great feud. It was, like, it was really, really great because they would have things like, he's like, hey, Cody, what are you doing? I'm just on my space. My space? Well, this here is my space. <laughs> you stay in your space and get out of my face. I'm the big shot. <laughs> 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 it's like, cutting up, tell it like it is, Bob. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, so they have the feud where they have lots of matches and eventually Cody finally manages to be him and it ends up with them going for like a mentor trainee style tag team they become tag champs together they become champs and they hold the belts for six months yeah it was, like, it was a good little run it's one of bob's biggest accolades i'd say six months of holding the tag belts and also it was cody's first real proper you know because like cody like cody's debut was essentially when his dad was being inducted into the hall of fame he did the speech with mm. with dustin and shortly thereafter he was appearing doing a few matches here and there in WWE the first proper feud first person he really had a storyline with was Bob and I think it what comes from it I remember loving that angle the whole thing how it ended as well like I was I remember thinking like oh this what could happen and then it did happen I remember being fucking jumping up and down well, Bob said that he really enjoyed it it was great like it was a really good run and he loved working with Cody Cody was a good kid but Bob was apparently way more over than Cody, according to his book. Apparently, but Bob was the established star, and Cody was was brand new. And that they knew that, and they knew the whole point of this program was to sort of get Bob to elevate Cody and yes. to get Cody over. And he said apparently that wasn't working. Bob was the only one getting over in the angle. And then one night, right before a match, he notices Cody is being really weird and like talking to Dusty like really shiftily. And they're doing this match where they've laid it out and the men are like, Cody being for five minutes and then he tags Bob in and Bob gets to do all of his shit. Apparently when the match comes though, Cody just doesn't tag in Bob and like Dusty had apparently told him to go off script and just like look out for himself. Classic Dusty, right? I mean, Dusty is going to look out for his son, isn't he? Legit. And apparently like after that, they just really soured it. Bob like lost all of his trust in Cody, like, and just, it was like, he basically said it was a really good thing and they had a good relationship and that kind of spoiled it like there. I mean, but... In terms of, like, I think he's looking at it really in the short term there, because in terms of, like, yeah, maybe Cody didn't get over as a face, but Cody got over as, like, being Bob's kind of, his guy, and he was mentoring him and helping him and all that. And so then when the betrayal came... Yeah, the heel turn. It like, actually meant more. If Cody was a beloved face, the betrayal, I don't even think it would have worked as much because it would have made more sense to make Cody a face. The yeah. fact that Cody wasn't quite at Bob's level, it made a great story that the two young guys fucking stick it to the old veteran yeah. to get... and. 
You know what? He's put over. He listed millions of people he's put over in his time. I think the best job he did of putting someone over was actually Cody and Ted DiBiase Jr. And that angle was really hot, I thought. Mm-hmm. Him being betrayed. And he, he likes the angle. I think he's just more pissed off at Cody personally for that little tag team incident like mm. where Dusty's I mean, got in his ear. That's Dusty, though, isn't it? Like mm. He loves to stir the pot, does Dusty, particularly if there's someone whose surname is Rhodes involved. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of betrayal, he's good friends with Mr. Kennedy at this point. Like, really good friends. Apparently Ken helped Bob a lot when he was going through his second divorce. Like, they talked a lot. And Ken was struggling with his mortgage when he got suspended for steroids. And Bob actually helped him out and gave him some money. Wow. He said it was one of the few proper, proper friendships he had in wrestling. Literally the last people I would have thought had that. And apparently it was quite common with him and Ken... They would always share each other's pain meds with each other, like, like, oh, what have you got? And they'd, like, share some. And it got to the point where it was like, hey, Bob, what have you got? And Bob would be like, oh, just go in my bag. Just get yourself, help yourself, get whatever you want, and you can give me back later. Does he talk about painkiller problems himself? Would he say he's got a problem? Because, I mean... No, no he, he said that he was... He did. He does actually admit there, there comes a point where he feels like he's taking them more than he needs to, and he dials it back but he never had a serious problem with painkillers. Mm. It was all a necessary part of the job. Interesting, yeah. So they're at this very casual sort of sharing their drugs kind of uh, relationship. And apparently one night, like, Bob helped himself to some stuff out of Ken's bag with Ken's permission. And Umaga sees this and starts a whole rumour that Bob nicked something out of Ken's bag. And rather than just, like, immediately clearing things up, Ken doesn't say anything. He just, like lets this go on and Bob ends up getting in really big trouble and like the office like accuse him of stealing and he gets, Jesus. He gets a slap on the wrist from John Laurinaitis and, and he was yeah, three grand fine or something and he said he still doesn't know what happened there why Ken did that and he's really bitter about it to this day and they're not friends anymore like. wow I was going to say like, the one friendship that he has and ends up being even more bitter enemies as a result yeah you can see why he doesn't really get close to people wait a minute I remember this now isn't there a thing in the issue where they ask about the different people and what he liked to do to them and then and it's like Ken Kennedy he's like I like to rip all his skin off and yes! feel his ass with ants you're right like because they, they do like a little text graphic at the bottom where it's like Scott Hall killing with poison or whatever and then it comes to Kennedy's one and the font's like three times smaller because they have to cram in this huge long description of how he would kill Ken Kennedy you're right and he's all like five o'clock shadow and like I kill him real slow <laughs> 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 So yeah, very bitter about that. Oh, that's that. really sad. Another you know, betrayal. you've been resting for that long and not have any friends. Cody turns heel on Bob, as you say. Yeah. Uh, so that Bob can go for his elbow surgery. He never comes back. And yeah, he's basically talking to the company while he's on the uh, on the bench, saying to them like, what are we going to do? Like, something with Cody when I come back? And he pitches a few different ideas for what they can do when he returns. And everything gets shot down and they're basically like, yeah, we've not got anything for you. That's such bollocks because like Cody and... I don't know if you know what happens at the angle. Cody and Ted... And Ted betray Bob. They betray Bob and they form legacy with uh, Randy Randy. Orton. And it's all like the second generation star Sim Snook is in there for a little bit. Manu is in there for a bit. It gets down to just Randy, Cody and Ted. And I thought like to get that angle over, if you had like hardcore Holly come in and be like, hey, you know, and Cody... Like tries to prove himself to Randy and Ted, like by yeah. you know, the three of them beating him his down. old mentor. Like yeah, his old mentor. I mean, the, the old veteran getting beaten down by these three young fucking studs. Like you know, and Randy could bring in you know you were you were the person who was rough to me when I first started. Well, yeah. you're not going to yeah. be the same to these boys. They're going to beat the shit out of you. Could have worked. So much stuff he could have done there. It's just it's so strange that like it felt like at this point they were trying to push him out the door. 
Yeah, no, it, it really does feel like that. Like the the antibiotic scare probably makes them to think we gotta get rid of this guy at some point. Yeah, when the opportunity arises, there's the Off door. You go. That's so sad. yeah, they tell him they've got nothing for him, and he basically says, "Just release me." And yeah, January two thousand and nine. After fifteen years of being there, he parts ways with the WWF. One of the longest tenured stars at the time. I know. Like, I know. Survived... Like, really impressive run. Like... Yeah, he survived a lot. You know, a lot of cuts. A lot of he was always at the part of the card where the talent cuts were happening. He was right in the middle there. Yeah, yeah. always. Yeah, he. You'd think he would have been on the chopping block a lot sooner at some point. You like... know, with all due respect, guys more over and you know more popular than him frequently got cut yeah and he didn't yeah he stuck around jeez he laments that he never got the sort of jbl or mark henry like later in your career push he said it didn't have to be a main event something but just something like something of note to give him yeah just to have like a sort of a thank you from the company for Mm. all these years he I think figures, if he didn't get released, then he would have gotten that eventually, I think. If he just stuck it out for a bit longer. Yeah, I think mm, so. Maybe. Because, I mean, you know, Mark Henry, they gave a, a million attempted pushes to, and then the, finally when it hit, you know, 2011, it was just fucking, it was over like Rover. It was the fucking, it was the best goddamn thing on telly. I'm sure Bob had it in him. Oh, yeah, he did. And that's what he was waiting for. He was just waiting to get that chance as well, where it's like, you've been here for a long time. Oh, have a little man. go on this. Like, that's really sad. It is quite sad. I mean... If I was him, I'd be, I'd be quite bitter. Yeah, no, well, no, he is bitter, and he, he he goes over the reasons why this may be the case, like about how there's a lot of politics involved, and but he knows that he's a good wrestler. He's always been loyal. He's always been willing to do whatever he's asked to do. He never complains. The only thing he can ever put his finger on that he wasn't always perfect at was his promos. He admits mm. that his promos were weak, and he did get better over time. But he's not saying that as like, it must be that. He's like, well, is that it? Is I can't figure yeah. it out. Is it my promos? What is it? Why didn't I ever get pushed? And uh, this is how we wrap up his time in WWE. In the end, after 15 years, I didn't even get a note or a phone call from Vince McMahon to thank me. You would think that he would thank each and every talent for busting their asses, putting their bodies through hell, keeping up with the schedule, and doing what they had to do to help make the product what it is. You'd think wrong, though. Unless you're at the level of Taker, Triple H, or Shawn Michaels, you can forget about the company being grateful for your work. It's a thankless industry. And Shit that, business. That cl- yeah, literally. That closes the chapter on WWE like with such a fucking depressing ending. <laughs> God almighty, that's fucking a good punch right there. But here's the big one. Hardcore Truth Part 17. Playing the game! Well, I heard if you play the game, you're going to die in vain. You'd be insane. You'd like, change your name. You'd change your name. <laughs> you've got to change game. your name. He does say he's playing the game. <laughs> no, you're right, but what? Change your name. Change you're going to die name. in vain. Get a new passport. I tried to ask him, then he just went, ha 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 And before he knew it, it was time to play the game, so we didn't have any time, you know? So we get a big character analysis of Triple H here. Character like, assassination, more like. Well, it's not entirely an assassination. He is relatively even-handed here. Mate, He's... leaving the fucking... La- is this the last chapter of his book? No, no, no. We're, we've got a, a little bit left. Okay, because I was going to say, like, saving like a very big bit of your book late on like that, dedicated solely to one guy, yeah. leads me to really think, I don't think you've got an unbiased few of them, and... It's it's. He hasn't got an unbiased no. view of him. Like he's, it's very obvious. He's conflicted. He wants to like Triple H. Like you said, he's and, he, and all throughout the book, he's done nothing but put over Triple H as an in-ring talent. He says yeah. he is one of the best of all time, and there's no getting around that. He's incredible, and he can be fun to be around. He can be really nice. Like he took everyone to the yeah, zoo in Australia. Zoo, right? Like he can be great, and he wants to like him, but it's just really hard to do. 
when you know about like all the careers that he's killed, all the people that he's buried, even people that end up getting over, like CM Punk, Triple H still got to get in there and mm. just squash him a little bit. Like, and he just basically goes over this and tries to figure out why Triple H is so insecure and why he can be so selfish. He says that in his opinion, Triple H did not love Stephanie at first and that they got together purely out of politics and he, he loves her now and it's definitely a real romance oh man come on look bob go watch smackdown 2000 seriously the, the tension the fucking those two if they're not in love i don't know what love is yeah i want you to go <laughs> he says that in 2006 triple h didn't want a full dx reunion even though it was possible like all the other dx guys wanted oh yeah to come i've heard back. that and he didn't want it just so that there'd be more money for him and Sean. Ah, uh, no, no, no. There's more to it than that, though, though, isn't there? Because Road Dog and Badass Billy Gunn were down in the Alamo <laughs> calling out Michael Hickenbottom and TNA. You know? oh. And then you did blackface, didn't you, Billy? Didn't you? you did, well, not just blackface. You did black all over your body to, to be mm. Devon Dudley, didn't you? That's uh, 2006, 2006, that was. So maybe, just maybe, they didn't want to have to deal with that. And then he goes off on a nice tangent about Triple H's hypocrisies regarding China and their refusal mm. to acknowledge China because of her career choices. Mm. And he calls him straight out for that about like people like Booker T and MVP who have been in prison, but they're still allowed to work for the company. Yeah. Like There is all sorts of questionable folks. X-Pac was even in one of China's sex tapes. Yeah, like, he's welcome back with open arms. Yeah, he, he calls all this out and just goes on about how Triple H just very much picks and chooses who he likes and who he doesn't like. And then he just lists down how, like, Triple H has run since 2011. Like, he does, like, six matches a year, and they're always main event, and he always yeah. goes over, and he always squashes the little guy. Like. <laughs> well, I mean, at WrestleMania, when the time is right, he'll always end up losing Triple H. But, you know, he's a Well, part now he does, yeah, yeah. I think the last four or five years, he's been losing at, Triple at WrestleMania every year. But, like, there was that period where he, like, he beat Lesnar... He beat CM Punk. Like Kevin Nash came back. Yeah, to fight the, the Punk, 2012 like... when he was switching gears from full timer to part timer, he went out swinging and he went out swinging that <laughs> shovel as fucking hard as he could. Like, and last we'll say on Triple H is Hunter doesn't need those paychecks like the big main event ones, and the business doesn't gain from him being in those big matches. Mm. He keeps people down so that they can't achieve success and make money for their families. It's a real shame he feels the need to do that. I don't think it's an active thing. I think it happens, but I don't think Triple H, particularly Triple H now, isn't like, here go baby, this, he's fucking his office now. He's, if he does it, it's who he is because he's who he is. Like, like, I think what's very difficult is for people to think that a talent can, you know, who's risen up to management or an executive, he's an executive, not even management, he's mm -hmm. an executive level. And it's like, if road agents can put their shit aside and get on with it, well, I mean, he's a fucking executive. Legit. I think he has struggled to do that initially, but I think he's very much at that place yeah now. he's there now totally you know he's he's he knows what he knows what's best for business in his own fucking words if in the next three or four years we see a photo of triple h and cm punk shaking hands backstage i would not be surprised yeah. at all like because that's the kind of person he is now like no, that'll never happen though ever not in a million years never ever 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 yeah. ever not Je and jeff Jarrett will never be in the hall of fame as well <laughs> and i will get my return from my global folks gold <laughs> as well <laughs> Hardcore Truth Part 18, The Internet. I don't have to tell you what he says here. You can guess all of it. Everything you hear on the internet, you can't believe. I don't want to ask Jeeves nothing. <laughs> it's all rumours and bullshit. The fans don't know what they're talking about. Yep. His Wikipedia page isn't even accurate. 
an he, inaccurate Wikipedia page. Well, I guess that discredits all information and data that is online yeah. ever. Well, that's me. That's my. That's the argument over with then, you know? Yeah, he's not a bully. Everything's inaccurate. People make shit up on the internet for fun because they're sad little peons, etc., etc. Also, Chap- though, I like my fans. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 35, Flirting with the Indies. So as soon as he gets released, TNA comes straight to him with an offer and he refuses immediately because he knows they won't pay him properly. Like, he just doesn't trust him immediately. Yeah, well, in 2007, you know what? He... That would have been the time to do it. I wouldn't have thought the writing would have been on the wall for TNA that early, but... No, because 2010 is when Hogan and Bischoff came in, but 2009, 2008 was probably, in many ways, peak TNA in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, it, it... had a really fun run with the main event mafia and they had like a nice mix of big stars and names if that's all you cared about but also a lot of homegrown guys like they hadn't killed off Samoa Joe or AJ Styles or Daniels or any of those guys yet so if there was a time to go in that's when it was yeah not like six years after the fact which is when he did yeah, <laughs> yeah. well that's it he turns down TNA and he gets a few indie offers as well but he turns them down like he wasn't looking to cash in at that point he was just fine he was like done with wrestling he but had, he had a trade didn't he Bob and he had other interests so he, he didn't he didn't need to do that that's exactly what he said he says I think a lot of the boys need to know when to stop wrestling and just make appearances so they don't become a parody of themselves I guess they need the money in most cases I'm lucky in that I've got a trade which many of the guys don't have so if I ever need money I'll go back to being a mechanic or a welder which makes sense but he does still end up working the indies eventually we get a little bit here about his finances in the WWE which is interesting For my last few years with the company, my downside guarantee was 175 grand, and I didn't end up making any bonuses beyond that because I didn't get many pay-per-view shows or any merchandise or real royalties. 175 grand looks nice on paper, sure. He has to pay all his own road expenses. From that, you're paying taxes, health insurance, and most of the expenses, including rental cars, gas, hotels, and food on the road. The only thing WWE pays for is your flight. You can essentially work a regular job, end up with almost as much money, and sleep in your own bed every night. A regular job isn't going to break down your body the way wrestling does. You just can't keep wrestling beyond a certain age. So unless you work on top, you're going to have to be very smart to get out of the business with savings by the time your body is done. Which is one of the smartest things he said in the book. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fucking... That's that's something that I think every wrestler needs to hear. Mm -hmm. You know, young, old, male, female, whatever your position is in wrestling... You need to hear that. Like. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why he doesn't bang on too much about his shitty paydays is because he knows how up and down it is. Like the example he gives here is one time I got paid four and a half grand for walking down to the ring with Crash on Raw. He was wrestling Bradshaw and I just stood in the corner. I made nearly as much for that as I did for wrestling Brock Lesnar for the title in the main four event. Four times as much as he did for being the extreme elimination chamber. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So I think he knows that you, oh, yeah. while you might get fucked over for some jobs, some nights you're going to get paid a load of money for doing fuck all, like, and that's wrestling. Like. And if you're not, but like that's the thing about Bob, is like, I would have thought he was at the two or three hundred thousand range. That's less than I thought he would have been making. Nothing. And if you're not getting them royalty checks, no merchandise. it's not worth it. Like no, you know. know, He does end up going to the Indies eventually. He works with a few different ones. He works for a guy called Henry Hubbard, who does shows for the military. Billy Gunn gets him involved with a startup in Canada called the WFX, which was apparently good. It would have made a great TV program, but the money wasn't there. Bushwhacker Luke got him over in Australia with a promotion called AWE, which apparently was like the most absurdly... like red carpet treatment Bob ever got in his really? career. Like, they were fucking lovely to him. They paid all of his expenses. Wow. Apparently he was meant to be getting paid to go and do like an interview at a convention, but it fell through and the promoter gave him the money for it anyway. Whoa. It was like 
Apparently, it was just like the most flawless operation he's ever been a part of. And I guess it's still in existence today if they're rolling uh, at the red carpet for everyone. Another first class promoter he works with is James Subasis, who runs Legends of the Ring. And he basically says that there's so many shitty promoters out there, and he gives a couple of examples of getting shafted out of money, that he'll only really ever work for these four or five good mm-hmm. guys that he likes if he wants to do the work. He's got the... I mean, that's the one thing that Bob has, is he has that luxury of being able to pick and choose. Yes, yeah, it's the choice. Which like, most don't. And he's got enough money to live comfortably. He likes working occasionally when an opportunity comes up with a promoter he likes, but he is getting on a bit, and he notices every time he works, he needs longer to recover. Mm. And he says, for all intents and purposes, he's retired at the minute, and he's quite happy to be that way. Did he talk about his cool new shit tattoo he got? No mention of the cool new ah. shit tattoo at all, Kevin. He went on to create a wrestler and thought those were the only ones that were available. Like, Okay, this is the final hardcore truth of the book. What is the ultimate hardcore truth, Adam? The state of modern wrestling. I don't like it! <laughs> pretty much yeah not one damn bit (laughs) he goes on about how moves mean a lot less now like he gives the usual example of the DDT used to be Mm. a finisher now everyone does it he says the roster depth is poor bearing in mind this was written in 2013 or published in 2013 so yeah literally as he's writing that 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 is not you know that's changing Yeah. yeah so the roster depth is poor he says they've got a lot of bad talent on top and a lot of good talent that are getting squandered like Dolph Ziggler and Daniel Bryan this was written just around the time that Daniel lost in eight seconds at WrestleMania. Yeah. And he specifically calls that out as such a stupid example of the way they book things now. He's very right, like. He says the storylines are bad and nonsensical. The scripted promos come off really wooden and awful, make the wrestlers look terrible. You get so many great wrestlers that were there in the past have now retired or passed away. And he says he barely ever keeps up with watching WWE, but when he does watch it, he wants to scream at the TV because it's so frustrating. I would like to see him watch, like... You know, an NXT takeover, or yeah, like a good, or a good episode of SmackDown, or yeah. a, you know, WrestleMania last year, a decent show. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people kind of made up their minds in 2012 or 13. It's like, well, that's it, wrestling sucks. It's never getting better. And then all the years, like, well, that Roman Reigns guy, I hear he's crap, so I'm not yeah. watching wrestling because I hate John Cena too. And it's like, you know what? There's a fucking, there's a great product there. You, you, unfortunately, as the fan, the onus is on you to find a way to actually Literally, to, to enjoy, to enjoy. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's there. The way to enjoy it is not how they present it. It's no. kind of like the amazing Chinese buffet that you really have to think about quickly mm-hmm. uh, when you go in there, how to attack it in a way that will leave you satisfied and not feeling like you're going to shit a brick afterwards <laughs> and not feeling like you've just been overwhelmed. So, yeah, he basically just goes on about how the business is... Yes, they're doing well and they're not in any financial trouble, but the actual quality of the product is in the toilet these days. And he doesn't see any signs of it picking up again. (sighs) Final chapter of the book. Chapter 36. How do you like me now? (laughs) So... We get a summary of his career in wrestling. Like, looking back, he's got no lifelong friends from wrestling, no real relationships. He says the only person he's remotely close with is Billy Gunn, and they can sometimes go years without speaking to each oh other. Oh my god, this is so fucking sad, Adam. He's still trying to shake his reputation. He says it's really upsetting when he meets people and they automatically assume he's a horrible bully and he has to try really hard to get them to change their minds. Well, you him. know what? That I mean, you do. You do. Because you've done things to garner that reputation. Even if it's embellished, you did those things in the first first place and his refusal to have any leeway on stuff particularly 
exactly. the Matt Capitelli Matt thing. Capitelli, where he still says Matt was a coward and he was in the right to do what he did. Well, then like, you're going to have to... You've got some splaining to do, big shot. Fucking like, embrace your reputation like JBL, at least. Like, I fucking hate JBL, but at least he's not trying to be all like, I'm not a bully, I'm a great guy. Like, what he, he does? Just, he fucking does come nah, out with no, that. JBL now. just goes quiet most yeah. of the time, like, because he knows there's no point fighting it. Well, I think if it, that's for Bob to do, and I think, you know, appearing on shoot interviews saying you're going to slowly murder people isn't going to change anyone's yeah, exactly. uh, opinion on you. I hope... For me, I feel the worry about this is that Bob will kind of, you know, he's done his book, he's had, he said his piece, and he doesn't think wrestling is any good anymore, and he has no friends in wrestling, and he thinks the fans judge him unfairly, and I just feel that he's just going to shut off entirely for the wrestling world. Yeah, it kind of does feel like that's where the book's headed, is like, I'm done with wrestling, that whole part, now I've written this, that's me finished with wrestling. See you later, bye, like. Yeah. He talks about how hard it was on all of his relationships in his life. Like, you know, he went through two divorces. He didn't really have many friends. He missed out on loads of milestones of his daughter, Stephanie. Yeah, I imagine, yeah. She was very resentful of him being a wrestler. It was really difficult for him. And then, it is a recurring theme in this book of being bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. Oh, that's really nice. (laughs) His brother sets him up on Facebook and he literally says, Facebook, what the hell is that? Facebook, get out of my book. He, he finds out about Facebook and he gets on it and I briefly skimmed over this right back at the start of part one but there was a high school sweetheart Linda that they had a really great connection with and she went off into the military and they never saw each other again well they, they got chatting on Facebook Kevin, oh Adam and they had a little catch up about what happened so after she'd been stationed in Texas Linda left for a tour in Spain. She was there for five years, and then she went to the Pope AFB Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. At one point or another, she was stationed in both Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Sacramento, California for special duty. I can't count the number of times I wrestled at the Target Center and Arco Arena. She was no more than a stone's throw from me, and I never knew. The biggest irony was that she was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama for six years, and I was living two and a half hour drive away in Mobile. My high school sweetheart had only been two and a half hours down the road. She used to visit Mobile to go to the beaches and Dolphin Island all the time. I sometimes wonder how many times we might have missed each other. They catch up, they, you know, talk about what they've been up to, and apparently she's still very much like the person that he knew. He'd been divorced for just over a year, and she'd been widowed for just about four years. And they meet up in Iowa, and they never part. They get married. Oh, Adam, that is literally golden medicine. He he literally says, that's when my happily ever after started. And I think this this comes down to a little bit of toxic masculinity again, because there's a lot of bitterness comes through, and it's very easy to think, oh, God, Bob's fucking miserable and depressed. I think he's a really happy guy. He just doesn't want to talk about all the sappy, mushy stuff too much. That's why he left it to the last page of the book. Yeah, seriously. um, also, I love my wife. I'll be back. It's her birthday. You leave like a present in the room and like leave the country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> they they get on great. They're proper soulmates. Oh, that's so they, nice. They go hiking and camping together all the time. Oh man. Bob, Bob has got really into his eye racing, which is like a virtual racing game that he plays with all of his <laughs> racing pals. <laughs> And as of this writing, they just got a puppy together. Oh, Adam, that's the fucking sweetest thing. He, he, you know what? He doesn't fucking need... He, you know, he doesn't need to have friends in the wrestling business and have opportunities in the wrestling business anymore if he doesn't want them. Because he's got a fucking trade. 
He's got a fucking he's set up mm-hmm. and he's got a fucking his his sweetheart and he's yeah. in love and that's so fucking lovely. And he's got a nice puppy now as well. Oh, Adam! So he brings it all back around home by basically saying, after everything that people have written about me and after everything I've written in this book, I hope you'll at least take my account into your opinion and sort of have a more balanced view of who I am. He just hopes that he's changed perceptions a little bit. Well, we'll just read out the, the end of the book here, actually. After all the things that have been written about me, some fairly, some unfairly, at least now I've had the chance to tell the hardcore truth. Now when people make their minds up about me, they'll have had a chance to get to know Bob Howard, the man, and not just Bob Holly, the wrestler, as presented by WWE. People can like me or not, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I just prefer that they make their judgment in possession of all the facts. At least then the conclusion they come to is properly thought through. So, how do you like me now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll ask you first. You've been uh, reading this. How do you like him now? It's nowhere near as black and white as it used to be. Like... Because it was, before reading this, it was very much like, Bob Holly, ugh, that, fuck that guy, he's an awful bully, and I've got, like, no taste for him whatsoever. Even with all the stuff we've watched on, like, because, I mean, we've with season one and with Smackdown Crawl, I feel that you and I have gotten to, like, definitely see a lot more of Bob Holly than when we were kids, and definitely appreciate him a fuck lot more, mm. as a character, as a wrestler, and what have you. But I think even with that, going into this, I still had those very black and white opinions about him yeah. and what he's done. I grew to appreciate him as a wrestler and before we sat down to read this, I've said that I started to really enjoy Hardcore Holly's work on SmackDown Crawl lately, but as a person, I was going into this like, uh, piece of shit. It's like reading JBL's biography or something. Yeah, I was yeah. ready to be like, or The King or someone that I really don't have a good taste for. Mm. And there were several points in the book where I felt really bad for him. I like, had genuine sympathy for him. I think there was points where he was treated very unfairly. Yeah. There are points where I think his reputation, like, like he's done enough horrible shit in his career that he doesn't really need people telling, you know, saying that he sandbagged Brock Lesnar because he's a massive asshole. Like, there are things that yeah, have yeah. been he's, exaggerated. He's done enough shitty things without having to... You don't need to make up additional stories about him. Like, so he like, is, he's, he's, he's right when he says there's been stuff written about him, some fairly and some unfairly. And I think yes. that is, that's the fairest estimation of the man that you can get. Yeah. Because... Yes, he was very, very bitter about a lot of things, but he's only very bitter because, you know, I can't think of a guy who's that patient and loyal in wrestling who had a an open door to go and leave it and make probably, as he said himself, better money yep. elsewhere, not killing himself. Mm-hmm. And what shines through is that he clearly loved. I mean, he obviously doesn't like talking about stuff that he loves and stuff that makes yeah. him feel good and all that. That's palpable. Mm-hmm. But he obviously enjoyed wrestling a lot more than you he have probably to. left off. You fucking have to, you like, know, to stick it out for that long. And he didn't get fabulous treatment while he was there. He got some really good opportunities and he got some really good treatment. But for the most part, he was really underutilized and underappreciated. And that's the story I think that a lot of a lot of wrestlers don't get to experience. Because usually when, you know, Bob didn't get fired for so long. That was the thing. Mm -hmm. So many people like him didn't have the chance to get a little bit of a push and then then something else and then then something else and then uh, most people it's like something didn't work, out you go. Mm -hmm. You know, he he got tenure and I think that was the greatest thing for him and that was the best thing that I think that he got out of his loyalty was the fact that he managed to be there for so long and did himself for so long because most people don't get the opportunity he's very fortunate in that sense i think very fortunate yeah he's definitely one of the lucky ones i think yeah wrapping up i was very ready to hate 
Bob reading this. And I think it's really important I try to be okay with having an opinion on someone that's more in the middle. Like, it's far too easy, I think, to really like someone and everything about them or because of one aspect of them. You're like, fuck them. I hate them as a person. I hate everything about them it's because of this. <laughs> yeah, it's fun Yeah, it's fun and it's easy to do that. But... While I'm still not a big fan of Bob Holly, this book has definitely opened my eyes to a, a lot, like a different side of him. Before reading this, I would have thought of him as a bully in the sense of how I feel of JBL being a bully, where he will hate somebody and he'll want to make someone feel insignificant and for small for his enjoyment. For his enjoyment, and that that sort of proper, the kind of bullying I had in school, where it is like really nasty, like I'm Ridicule. doing this, I'm targeting you, mm. and I'm doing this to you, and it's pleasing me. The kind of bullying that Bob is guilty of is more like... The weird hazing stuff. Hazing stuff. Protectionism, that, all that crap. In, in his head, I don't think he even hates Matt Capitelli. I no. think he can say that Matt Capitelli was a coward and believe all that stuff, but he doesn't actually have any beef or any ill will towards him. He's a different kind of problematic person to what I thought originally is the takeaway from this. I'll tell you, you get a very unique perspective with this book. I mean, just hearing about it, it's, it's just, you. these are the discussions, these are the parts of wrestling that you never get that perspective of. Nah, never. Like, no one in Bob's position thinks to write a book, to mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah. So I was blown away by it. Yeah, this is easily the best thing we've read in the Bibliotech. This is one of my favourite books I've read this year. Like, I would recommend this as just a great read for any wrestling fan. It is really, really readable. Yeah, I mean, he's got some very egregious opinions, and his recollection of things sometimes doesn't sit well, but, you know, he, he calls it like he sees it, you know? He does. It is maybe not the truth as you want it, but it most certainly is the hardcore truth. Maybe uh, even more hardcore! Stop it! <laughs> and final note, wrapping up as well, I think this is important to mention, Ross Williams did a fucking yeah. excellent job. This book was so easy to read, it was so well written, and it felt the whole time like it was Bob Holly writing it. I forgot that it was written with a co-author. Yeah, yeah. And I'm dying for him to do more work with wrestlers. He got it, his voice across quite well. Yeah, if if he says that he's writing more books for wrestlers, regardless of who, which wrestler it is, I'll probably end up reading it anyway, just because mm. it'll be a good read. Well, that does it for another installment of the Bibliotech. We will return in due course. There will be a poll up in the not-too-distant future for you guys to vote on what the next installment will be. There's been lots of recommendations. People mm. have got all sorts of things that they want you to, to read and feed back to us here on the Bibliotech. It's been an absolute pleasure as always, Adam. It will be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And me, Adam. And we'll see you next time on the Bibliotech.